Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues by Havard Mirza Tahir Ahmad Rahimahullah About the Author Havard Mirza Tahir Ahmad 1928-2003 May Allah have infinite mercy on his soul, a man of God, voice articulate of the age, a great orator, a deeply learned scholar of phenomenal intelligence, a prolific and versatile writer, a keen student of comparative religions was loved and devoutly followed by his more than 10 million Ahmadi Muslim followers all over the world as their Imam, the spiritual head, being the fourth successor of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, the Promised Musa and Mahdi, to which August office he was elected as Khalifa al in 1982. After the promulgation of General Ziaul Haq anti-Ahmadiyya ordinance of 26th April 1984, he had to leave his beloved country, Pakistan, and migrated to England from where he launched Muslim television Ahmadiyya International, MTA, which would and still does telecast its programs 24 hours a day to the four corners of the world. Besides being a religious leader, he was a homeopathic physician of world fame, a highly gifted poet and a sportsman. He had his schooling in Kardian, India, and later joined the government college Lahore, Pakistan, and after graduating from Jamia Ahmadiyya Rabwa, Pakistan, with distinction, he obtained his honors degree in Arabic from the Punjab University, Lahore. From 1955 to 1957, he studied at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. He had a divinely inspired and very deep knowledge of the Holy Quran, which he translated into Urdu. He also partially revised and added explanatory notes to the English translation of the Holy Quran, by Hazrat Malvi Sher Ali radiallahu anhu. Revelation, rationality, knowledge and truth is his magnus magnum opus. Though he had no formal education in philosophy and science, he had a, a philosophical bent of mind and tackled most difficult and abstruse theological philosophical, philosophical questions with great acumen and ease, and his intellectual approach was always rational and scientific. For a layman, he had an amazingly in-depth knowledge of science, especially life sciences, which attracted him most. He also had deep knowledge of human psychology. He was an analytical mind of high intelligence, an intellect scintillating with brilliance, capable of solving naughtiest problems with ease, leaving his listeners and readers spellbound. Forward to the present edition. Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad Rahimahullah, the fourth successor of the Promised Musa and the head of International Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat 1982-2003, delivered a lecture on February 24, 1990 at the Queen Elizabeth II Conference Centre in London. The lecture, entitled Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues, was later published in 1992 by Islam International Publications Limited, London, England. The central theme of the lecture is peace in this world, or to be more exact, the teachings of Islam regarding peace. In the world which suffers today from violence, bloodshed, conflict, wars, violation of human rights, socio-economic exploitation of the third world, and everything which violates peace and creates discord, we need peace more than anything else. In his introduction, the author says, For today's address, I have categorized some areas in which the contemporary world stands in need of guidance. 1. Interreligious peace and harmony. 2. Social peace in general. 3. 
socio-economic peace. 4. Economic peace. 5. Peace in national and international politics. 6. Individual peace. The lecture is as relevant today as it was at the time when it was delivered, especially in the backdrop of the rise of the so-called Islamic fundamentalism. Islam is portrayed today as a religion of violence. To call Islam a religion of violence is a contradiction in terms, for Islam means peace. 9-11 gave an excuse to the vested interest to launch a new crusade against Islam. The present book meets this challenge adequately. We also hear from some quarters the need for interreligious dialogue, to which the Quran invited the people of the book more than 1,400 years ago. The lecture comprehensively deals with this issue. If one runs through the contents and the index of the book, one would realize how wide the scope of the book is. Discussing peace under various heads, the author has covered a wide variety of topics which branch out from the basic theme and has thus created an aesthetically pleasing and intellectually satisfying motif in which various Islamic themes are woven together with a magic touch, as it were. It is a compulsory read for non-Muslims as well as for those Muslims who have forgotten the true mean message of Islam. Mirza Anas Ahmed, MAM Lit Ogzen, Wakilu Ishaat Rabwa, 24th December 2006. Preface to the first edition. Jamaat Ahmadiyya was founded in 1889 by Hazrat Mirza Ulam Ahmed of Qadian, who claimed on divine authority that he was the promised Messiah and world reformer of the latter centuries, whose advent was prophesied in the ancient scriptures of all great religions. In 1989, this community of Muslims celebrated its first centenary. The last major event in the celebrations was a lecture, delivered on 24th February 1990 at the Queen Elizabeth II Conference Centre in London by the head of Jamaat Ahmadiyya, Hadrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad Khalifa al-Masih IV, rahimahullah, successor to the Promised Messiah This keynote lecture was attended by 800 distinguished guests including politicians, Arabists, journalists, professors, teachers, men and women from other professions and vocations and eminent religious scholars. Mr. Aftab Ekhan, National Amir of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association UK, welcomed the guests. Mr. Edward Mortimer presided and Mr. Hugo Summerson, MP, proposed the vote of thanks. After the lecture, there was a brief session of questions and answers. As it was not possible to do full justice to such a vast subject in the space of time traditionally provided for such public addresses, only partial treatment was possible. However, in view of numerous demands by many who attended or those who missed this lecture, the book, based on the original manuscript, is being published separately. Since the original text of this address was dictated by the speaker, every effort was made to faithfully record a dictation. During the first revision, some minor mistakes were discovered here and there, which were duly corrected by the speaker himself. Later on, it was considered advisable to have parts of the text reviewed by an Englishman so that he could point out any areas where the text needed further elaboration or if some expressions were unfamiliar to the English ear. We are grateful to Mr. Barry Jeffries of Queensbury, Yorkshire, and Mr. Muzaffar Clark of Stachel, Birmingham, who volunteered their services and carried out this task admirably. Their advice was most valuable in regard to some passages. 
which may have conveyed a different impression to the reader than was intended mainly because of the gradual change in the connotation of some expressions and idioms in current use. Also, the advice with regard to the hypersensitivity of the Western mind concerning some cultural differences between the East and the West was of considerable help. Of course, everyone has a right to disagree with anyone else, but disagreement merely because of a misunderstanding of points of view should be avoided as far as possible. It is here that both these gentlemen helped immensely. As we go to print, albeit very belatedly, we are deeply conscious of the fact that a number of issues addressed herein have assumed center stage. A number of possibilities seen by the far-sightedness of the speaker have miraculously begun to prove true. For instance, there have been considerable debate on interreligious harmony in view of the renewed fatwa of on blasphemy. Enormous changes have taken place after the collapse of communism in East European countries. The UN's Security Council has acquired a new role. In Great Britain, the interest rate policy has precipitated, precipitated economic recession. All these issues and events, and indeed many more, were fully and squarely discussed beforehand in this address. Alas, had we gone to print earlier. All that remains to be said is a humble reminder to the reader that the speaker dictated the text of this address in early 1990, when the omens for these changes were yet in their formative stage. Selim is a warning given in such clear terms. The message is timeless and relates to the future prospects for peace for the entire world. If the speaker is proved right in most of his predictions, as he has already been, prov uh, been proved right in some of them, it would only be appropriate for the leaders of the world to take the message of this address seriously and make a genuine attempt to draw the maximum benefit out of it in the shaping of the new world order. May God enable them to do so. Amin. Mansoor Asia, London, July 1992. Introduction After the traditional recitation and reciting the Surah Al-Fatiha, the opening chapter of the Holy Quran, the head of Jamaat Ahmadiyya commenced as follows. Mr. Edward Mortimer, the chairman, all our distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. Let me express my deep sense of gratitude for your scholarly presence here this afternoon. Permit me to confess that the address I am going to make poses a great challenge to me. It is a wide subject, and as such, I am overawed. May I begin, however, by raising two fundamental questions. What are the modern challenges? What modern situation can any religion address? These are the fundamental questions. Absence of Peace the single most important malady for the, of the world today is the absence of peace. In the contemporary world, man as a whole has reached a high standard of achievement in material progress, made possible by the advancement of science and technology in every sphere of human requirements at a mind-boggling pace. No doubt, the more fortunate sections of human society known as the first and second world have a much larger share of the fruits of scientific progress in the contemporary age. But the third world has also benefited to a degree. Rays of progress have penetrated even the innermost recesses of the darkest areas where a section of human society still lives in a remote past. Nevertheless, man is not happy and content. There is growing restlessness, fear, premonition, lack of trust in the future and dissatisfaction with one's heritage. These are some of the important elements 
which challenge the nature of the contemporary world. It, in turn, gives birth to a deep-seated dissatisfaction of man either with his past or with his present. Particularly, it runs deep in the formative thought processes of the younger generation. Man is in search of peace. Islam's Contribution to World Peace The word Islam literally means peace. In this single word, all Islamic teachings and attitudes are most beautifully and concisely, concisely reflected. Islam is a religion of peace. Its teachings guarantee peace in every sphere of human interest and aspiration. For today's address, I have categorized some areas in which the contemporary world stands in need of guidance. 1. Inter-religious peace and harmony. 2. Social peace in general. 3. Socio-economic peace. 4. Economic peace. 5. Peace in national and international politics. 6. Individual peace. Verily, we have sent thee with the truth, as a bearer of glad tidings and as a warner. And there is no people on earth in any age who did not receive a warner from God. The Holy Quran, chapter 35, verse 25. Surely, those who have believed in Muhammad as a messenger of God, and the Jews, and the Sabians, and the Christians, whoso believes in Allah in the last day, and does good deeds, on them shall come no fear, nor shall they grieve. The Holy Quran, chapter 5, verse 70. Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues Chapter 1 Inter-Religious Peace Religious values have become redundant. Examining the overall religious scenario, one cannot fail to notice that in religion there seems to prevail a paradoxical situation today. In general, religion is losing its grip yet simultaneously tightening it in different areas. In some sections of society, in almost all religions, there seems to be a powerful swing back in the direction of dogmas with medieval rigidity and intolerance of opposition. On the moral side, religion is on the retreat, crime is rampant, truth is disappearing fast, equity and the deliverance of justice are on the verge of extinction, social responsibilities to the society are being ignored, and a selfish individualism is gaining strength in its stead even in such countries of the world us would otherwise claim to be religious. These and many other social evils, which are positive signs of a morally decadent society, have become the order of the day. If moral values in any religion form the life and soul of religion itself, then a progressive strangulation of these values can lead us to the inevitable conclusion that, while the body of religion is being resurrected, the soul is fast ebbing out of the body. So, what we observe in religion today the so-called revival of religion becomes tantamount to resurrecting dead corpses so that they walk about like zombies. In other areas, long stagnation and a lack of exciting developments generates boredom among religiously inclined people. Miraculous things which they expect to happen do not take place. The bizarre phenomenon of supernatural intervention in world events to change the world to their liking does not materialize. They want to see strange prophecies fulfilled to give credence to their faith, yet nothing materializes. Such are the people who provide fodder for new cults, which thrive on the humors of their frustrations. 
The urge to escape from the past generates a desire to fill the void with something new. Apart from these destructive trends, another extremely disturbing phenomenon, which, perhaps, is related to the revival of dogmas in religion, is threatening the peace of the world. With the rise of such dogmas, a toxic atmosphere is generated which proves fatal to the healthy spirit of dialogue and free flow of ideas. As if this were not enough, willful attempts by unscrupulous politicians, ever ready to exploit volatile situations to their own advantage, are being made to tarnish the image of religion itself. Again, historic interreligious uh, rivalries and feuds have their part to play. In addition, the so-called free media is generally controlled by unseen hands rather than being at liberty to play a completely neutral role in the affairs of the world. Therefore, when the media of a country with a predominant population belonging to one religion joins the battle in maligning the image of a rival religion, the scenario becomes very complex. The, the first victim of this melee is, undoubtedly, religion itself. I really feel deeply concerned and disturbed at what is happening in the world of religion today. There is a deep urgency for religions to make a genuine and serious effort to remove misunderstanding between them. I believe that Islam can deliver the goods with distinction in a manner that can fully satisfy our demands and requirements. To facilitate a better understanding, I have further categorized the subject into different sections. For instance, I believe that for a religion to be helpful in establishing peace in the world, it is essential that a religion which is universally capable of uniting man ultimately must itself accept the universality of religion in the sense that human beings, whatever their color, race, or geographic denomination, are all creatures of the same creator. As such, they are equally entitled to receive divine instruction, if ever divine instructions were given to any section of human society. This view obviates the concept of monopolization of truth by any religion. All religions, whatever their name or doctrines or wherever they be found, and to whichever age they belong, have the right to claim the possession of some divine truth. Also, one has to admit that, despite the differences in their doctrines and teachings, religions are most likely to have a common ori origin. The same divine authority, which gave birth to any religion in one area of the world, must also have looked after the religious and spiritual needs of other human beings in other parts of the world and belonging to different ages. This exactly is the message of the Holy Quran, the sacred scripture of Islam. Universality of Prophethood The Holy Quran has the following to say in this regard. وَلَقَدْ بَعَثْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةِ الرَّسُولًا أَنْ يَعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ وَاجْتَنِبُوا we did raise among every people a messenger with the teaching, worship Allah and shun the evil one. Secondly, the Holy Quran declares that, O Prophet ﷺ of God, you are not the only prophet in the world. We indeed sent messengers before thee. Of them are some who, whom we have mentioned to thee, and of them are some we have not mentioned to thee. The Holy Quran reminds the Holy Prophet of Islam, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, In anta illa nadhir, inna arsalnaka bil bashiran wa nadhiran, wa in min ummatin illa khala fiha nadhir. Thou art but a warner. Verily, we have sent thee 
with the truth, as a bearer of glad tidings, and as a warner. And there is no people to whom a warner has not been sent. In view of the above, it is manifestly clear that Islam does not monopolize truth to the elimination of all other religions, but categorically declares that in all ages and in all parts of the world, God has been looking after the spiritual and religious needs of mankind by raising messengers who delivered the divine message to the people for whom they were raised and commissioned. All prophets are equal. The question arises that if there are so many prophets of God sent to all peoples of the world, in different parts of the world and in different ages, do they have the same divine authority? According to the Holy Quran, all prophets belong to God, and as such, in so far as their divine authority is concerned, they exercise such authority with equal force and strength. No one has a right to discriminate between one prophet and another. As far as the authenticity of their message is concerned, all prophets must be equal. This attitude of Islam towards other religions and their founders as well as minor prophets can work as a very important uniting and cementing factor between various religions. The principle that the authenticity of each prophet's revelation enjoys the same status can be used as a very powerful unifying force, bringing various religions together. This, transform this transforms the attitude of hostility towards the revelation of prophets of other religions to that of respect and reverence. This again is the clear and logical position taken by the Holy Quran. This messenger, the holy founder of Islam, وسلم, believes in that which was revealed to him before from his Lord, which was revealed to him from his Lord. And so do the believers. All of them believe in Allah and in his angels, and in his books, and in his messengers, saying, We make no distinction between any of his messengers. And they say, We have heard, and we are obedient. This subject is repeated in other verses of the Holy Quran. For instance, Surely, those who disbelieve in Allah and His messengers and seek to make a distinction between Allah and His messengers and say, we believe in some and disbelieve in others, and seek to take away in between, these really are the disbelievers. And we have pre prepared for the disbelievers a humiliating punishment. And those who believe in Allah, and in all of his messengers, and make no distinction between any of them, to such he will soon give their rewards. And Allah is most forgiving, merciful. I stop at page 12. I start at page 12. Can rank be different if authenticity is equal?
if all prophets are equal in authenticity, must they also need to be equal in rank? The answer to this question is that in many respects, prophets can vary in their personal qualities and the way they discharge their responsibilities. As far as their nearness to God and the relative status they hold in the sight of God is concerned, messengers and prophets can differ from each other. A study of the history of prophets from the account of the Holy Bible, the Holy Quran and other scriptures also affirms this conclusion. The Holy Quran admits that there are differences of status in a manner that should not disturb the peace of man. The same Holy Quran that declares that there is no difference as far as the authenticity of messages, messages from God are concerned between one prophet of God and another declares, These messengers have we exalted, some of them above others. Among them, there are those to whom Allah spoke frequently, and some of them he exalted by degrees of rank. Having accepted this proposition, one may wonder as to who should be considered as the highest in rank among the prophets. This is a sensitive issue, yet one cannot close one's eyes to the importance of this question. Adherents of almost all religions claim that the father of their religion stands supreme and no one else can be a match to him in excellence dignity, piety, honor, and in short, all the qualities that go into the making of a prophet. Then, does Islam also claim that Muhammad, the Holy Prophet of Islam, is the most exalted of all prophets? Yes, Islam does make an unambiguous claim about the par excellence and supremacy of the qualities of the Holy Prophet over all the rest of the prophets of the world. Yet, there is a very clear difference between Islam and other religions in their attitude to this claim. First of all, it should be kept in mind that no religion other than Islam recognizes the universality of prophethood. When the Jews claim, if they do, that Moses salam, was the greatest prophet, they are not comparing Moses salam, with Buddha, salam, Krishna, salam, Jesus, salam, or Muhammad salam, because they deny the claims of all other great founders of the religions mentioned above to be genuine and worthy of acceptance. So, in the Jewish list of prophets, no prophets are included other than those specifically mentioned in the Old Testament. Even the possibility of there being prophets elsewhere is ruled out. In the light of this attitude, their claim regarding the supremacy of any Judaic prophet does not belong to the same category as that of Islam. And according to Judaism, as according to Judaism, Prophets outside the Holy Bible simply do not exist. Exactly the same is the nature of similar claims of Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Hinduism, etc. There is yet another difference to be kept in mind. When we talk of their prophets, we are aware that they do not always refer to their holy religious figures as prophets. The concept of prophets and messengers as understood in Judaism, Christianity and Islam is not exactly shared by most other religions. Instead, they treat the founders of their religion and holy men as holy personages or reincarnations of God, or God himself, or something approaching that. Perhaps in this respect, Jesus Christ also should be understood as an exception from the vantage point of Christianity. But according to Islam, all these so-called gods or reincarnations of God, or the so-called sons or children of God, are merely prophets and messengers who were deified by their followers at a much later point. In fact, to be more specific, 
According to Islam, the deification of holy personages in various religions is a very gradual process and, that, and not that of the generation contemporary to the Prophet ﷺ. But of that, we shall speak later. When Islam, however, claims that its holy founder is supreme amongst the Prophet, it takes into account the holy personages of all the religions of the world in the sense understood by the Judeo-Islamic concept of prophets. It may bear repeating... It may bear repeating that Islam considers the founders of all revealed religions to be merely human beings who were raised by God to the status of prophethood. There is no exception in this universal phenomenon. For instance, the Holy Quran declares, فَكَيْفَ إِذَا جِئْنَا مِنْ كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ بِشَهِيدٍ وَجِئْنَا بِكَ عَلَى هَاؤُلَاءِ شَهِيدًا How will it fare with them when we shall bring a witness from every people and shall bring thee as a witness against these? Having made this essential clarification, we now proceed to study the status of the Holy Prophet ﷺ of Islam, according to the Holy Quran. The most conspicuous and incontrovertible claim regarding the Holy Prophet ﷺ of Islam is made, in, is made in the widely known and extensively discussed verse of the Holy Quran, مَا كَانَ مُحَمَّدٌ أَبَا أَحَدٍ مِنْ رِجَالِكُمْ وَلَكِنْ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ وَقَاتَمَ النَّبِيِّينَ Muhammad is not the father of any of your men, but he is the messenger of Allah and Khatam al-Nabijin, the seal of prophets, and Allah has full knowledge of all things. The Arabic word Khatam in this verse has many connotations about the essence of a title Khatam al-Nabijin, but the essence of a title Khatam al-Nabijin is, without a shadow of doubt, to be the very best. The supreme, the last word, the final authority, the one who encompasses all and testifies to the truth of others. Another verse which speaks of the excellence of the holy prophet, holy founder of Islam, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, declares that the teachings of the holy prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, are perfect and final. The verse runs as follows: Al yawma akmaltu lakum dinakum wa atmamtu alaykum nirmati wa radiyatu lakum al-Islam dinan. This day have I perfected your religion for you and completed my favor upon you and have chosen for you Islam as religion. The obvious inference from this claim would be that of all law-bringing prophets of the world and in giving the world the most perfect teaching, he occupies the highest station amongst the prophets. Developing the theme further, the Holy Founder وسلم, is assured in no uncertain terms that the book being revealed to him will be guarded and protected from interpolations. As such, not only is the teaching claimed to be perfect, but also it is declared to be everlasting, to be kept pure and unadulterated in the very words in which they were revealed to the holy founder of Islam The history of the last 14 centuries has borne ample witness to the truth of this claim. The following are some relevant verses. Surely we ourselves have sent down the exaltation and we will most surely be its guardian. Surely this is a glorious Quran in a well-guarded tablet. In view of the above, the Holy Founder وسلم, of Islam is clearly not only declared to be supreme but also the last and final law-bearing Prophet وسلم, whose authority would continue to remain good till the end of time. Having said that, one begins to wonder if, 
in the eyes of some, this claim about the supremacy of the Holy Founder of Islam would be tantamount to creating ill will or misunderstanding amongst the followers of other religions. So how can one reconcile this claim with the theme of this address, namely that Islam guarantees peace in all spheres of human interest, religion being not the least important among them? It was with this question in mind that I had to elaborate this claim at some length. This question can be answered to the satisfaction of an unprejudiced and inquiring mind in more than one way. As has already been mentioned before, similar claims are also made by followers of many other religions. It is only prudent for one to investigate the relative merits of the claim without being unduly excited about it. By itself, such a claim should not offend the sensibilities of the followers of other religions who make similar counterclaims. But Islam goes one step further by teaching humility and decency to its followers so that their belief in the supremacy of the Holy Father of Islam is not expressed incautiously, thereby giving offense to others. The following two traditions of the Holy Father of Islam stand aloft as beacons to illuminate the case in point. 1. One of the companions of the Holy Founder of Islam, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, became involved in a rather heated discussion with a staunch follower of the Prophet Jonah, Alaihissalam, of the fish or whale. Both parties in the debate claimed their respective Prophet to be head and shoulders above the other in excellence. It appears that the Muslim contender might have rubbed in the claim in a manner so, so as to hurt the sensibility of the follower of Jonah who approached Prophet Muhammad and lodged a complaint against the Muslim involved in this debate. Addressing the community in general, the Prophet issued the following words of instructions. Do not declare me to be superior over Jonah, that is Yunus, son of Matta. Some Muslim commentators of traditions are perplexed by this tradition as it seemingly stands counter to the Quranic claim that Muhammad is superior not only to Jonah but all prophets. But they seem to miss the point that what he said was not that he was inferior to Jonah, not superior to Jonah, but simply that his followers should not declare him to be superior in a manner liable to hurt the feelings of others. In the context of what had passed, the only inference one can draw is that the Prophet ﷺ was teaching Muslims a lesson in decency. He was instructing them not to become involved in bragging. They should take care to avoid discussing his status in a manner that could cause offense. Such an attitude would indeed be detrimental to the cause of Islam because instead of winning hearts and minds to the message of Islam, quite, an op quite the opposite would be achieved. 2. This attitude of the Holy Prophet is corroborated further by another tradition in which a Muslim was involved in a similar argument with a Jew. Both claimed and counterclaimed the relative superiority of their spiritual leaders. Again, it was the non-Muslim contender who thought it fit to lodge a complaint against the behavior of his Muslim adversary. The Holy Prophet responded with his habitual humility and prudence and taught the Muslim the same lesson in decency and courtesy by admonition. La tufadiluni ala Musa. Do not declare my superiority over Moses a.s. The long and short of this is that it is for God to decide and declare the comparative ranking of the various prophets a.s. closeness to him. It is quite likely that in a particular age, 
in the context of a particular religion. God may have expressed his pleasure with the prophet of the time in such strong terms as to declare that he was the best. Supers can, after all, be also used in relative terms in the context of a limited application of time and space. This could easily have led the followers of that holy personage to believe that he was the best and holiest for all ages and for all times to come. To genuinely believe in this should not be considered an offense against others. A civilized attitude would require that such issues should not be abused to create friction amongst religions. That exactly is the true import of the admonition of the Holy Prophet ﷺ quoted above. If adherence to this principle of humility and decency is adopted by all religions, the world of religious controversy would be the, uh, the better for it. Salvation cannot be monopolized by any single religion. The question of salvation, howsoever innocent it may appear, is potent in its danger to peace in the religious world. It is one thing for a religion to declare that those who seek to be redeemed from Satan and attain salvation should rush to the safe haven of that religion. It is there that they would find salvation and eternal liberation from sin. But it is quite another thing for the same religion to declare in the next breath that those who do not come hither to seek revelation uh, to seek refuge will be damned eternally one and all. Whatever they, they do to please God, however much they love their creator and his creation, however much they lead a life of purity and piety, they would most certainly be condemned to an everlasting fire. When such a rigid, narrow-minded and non-tolerant view is expressed in a provocative language as generally is by religious zealots, it is known to have produced violent riots. People come in all shapes and sizes. Some are educated, cultured and refined and so are their reactions to offenses committed against them. Yet a large number of religiously inclined people, be they educated or illiterate, are likely to react violently where their religious sensibilities are hurt. Unfortunately, this seems to be the attitude of the clergy of almost all religions of the world against those who do not conform to their faith. Even Islam is presented by most medieval scholars as the only door to salvation, in the sense that ever since the advent of Islam, all the descendants of Adam salam, who have lived and died outside the pale of Islam are denied salvation. Christianity does not offer a different view, nor does any religion to my knowledge. But let me assure my audience that the attribution of this bigoted and narrow view to Islam has no justification. The Holy Quran has a completely different story to tell us in this regard. According to the Holy Quran, salvation cannot be monopolized by any single religion of the world. Even if new truths are revealed and new errors of light have dawned, those who live a life of ignorance through no fault of their own and those who generally try to lead a life of truth even if they inherited false ideologies will not be denied salvation by God. The following verses from the Holy Quran elaborate this point further. For every people we have appointed ways of worship which they observe, so let them not dispute with thee in the matter of the Islamic way of worship, and call thou the people to thy Lord, for surely thou art on the right guidance. In another verse, the Holy Quran declares in the same context, Inna 
والذين هادوا والصابئون والنصارى من آمن بالله واليوم الآخر وعمل صالحا فلا خوف عليهم ولا هم يحزنون surely those who have believed in Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the Jews and the Sabians and the Christians whoso believes in Allah and the last day and does good deeds on them shall come no fear nor shall they grieve let me remind you that although the people of the book is applicable to Jews and Christians, potentially it has a much wider application. In the context of the Quranic assertion that there is no people in the world, but we have sent a warner to them, and similar verses cited earlier, we are left with no room for doubt that these were not only the people of the Old Testament and the Gospel, or the Torah and the Injil, who were given the book, but most certainly other books were revealed for the benefit of mankind. So all religions which have a claim to be founded on divine revelation, all religions which have a claim to be founded on divine revelation would also be included among the people of the book. Again, the Holy Quran uses the term Sabi, which further clarifies the issue and dispels doubt. Sabi is a term used by the Arabs to apply to the followers of all non-Arab and non-Semitic religions which have their own revealed books. As such, followers of all religions based on divine revelation have been granted the assurance that, provided they do not fail to recognize the truth of a new religion, despite their sincere efforts to understand and stick honestly and truly to the values of their ancestral religion, they have nothing to fear from God and will not be denied salvation. The Holy Quran, speaking of whichever party from among the believers, Jews, Christians, and Sabians, promises, shall have their reward with their Lord, and no fear shall come upon them, nor shall they grieve. And, And, if they had observed the Torah and the Gospel and what has been now sent down to them from their Lord, they would surely have eaten of good things from above them and from under their feet. Among them are people who are moderate, but many of them are such that evil is what they do. To prevent Muslims from uh, censoring indiscriminately all those who do not belong to Islam, the Holy Quran categorically declares, They are not all alike. Among the people of the book are those who are very pious and God-fearing and who stand by their covenant. They recite the word of Allah in the hours of night and prostrate themselves before him. They believe in Allah in the last day and enjoin good and forbid evil and hasten to vie with one another in good works. These are among the righteous. Whatever good they do, they shall not be denied its due reward and Allah well knows those who guard against evil. There is a great misunderstanding today, born out of a recent political rivalries between the Jews and the Muslims, that according to Islam, all Jews are hell-bound. This is totally false in light of what I have recited before you from the Holy Quran 
and in light of the following verse وَمِنْ قَوْمِ مُوسَىٰ أُمَّةٌ يَهْدُونَ بِالْحَقِّ وَبِهِ يَعْدِلُونَ Of the people of Moses, there is a party who guides with truth and does justice therewith. I end at page 23. I start at page 24. Promotion of harmony and mutual respect amongst religions. It is declared in unambiguous terms in the Holy Quran that it is not only the Muslims who stand firmly by the truth and admonish and dispense justice righteously. Amongst the followers of other faiths, there are also other people who do the same. This is the attitude which the entire world of religion must adopt today to improve the quality of relationship with other faiths. Religious peace cannot be achieved without cultivating such broad-minded, magnanimous and humanely understanding attitudes towards the people of other faiths. Referring to all religions of the world in general, the Holy Quran declares, Of those we have created, there are a people that guide men with truth and do justice therewith. The Universality Concept Since time immemorial, many philosophers have been dreaming of the moment when mankind can gather as one large human family under one flag. This concept of the unification of mankind has been entertained not only by political thinkers but also by economists and sociologists alike. But nowhere has the idea been pursued with greater favor than in the domain of religion. Although Islam also shares this view with other religions, some having highly ambitious programs of world domination, within this apparent commonality, Islam stands distinctly different in its attitude to the aforementioned ambitious claim. This is no place for developing this controversial theme further and to enter into a debate as to which religion has actually been commissioned by God to gather the whole of mankind under one divine banner. But it is very important for us to understand the implications of such claims by more than one religion of the world. If two, three, or four powerful religions have long established historical traditions simultaneously claim to be universal religions, will it not generate monstrous confusion and uncertainty in the minds of all human beings? Will their mutual rivalry and struggle for domination not pose a real and substantial threat to world peace? Such movements of global dimension on the part of religions are a matter of grave concern themselves. But to add to that, the danger of such movements falling into the hands of an irresponsible, bigoted and intolerant leadership means that the risks will be manifold and more real than academic. In the case of Islam, unfortunately, there is widespread propaganda to the effect that Islam promotes the use of force wherever possible for the spread of his ideology. Such words emanate not only from opponents of Islam, but also from medieval-minded Muslim clergy. Obviously, if one religion opts for the offensive, the others will have the right to defend themselves with the same weapons. Of course, I do not agree and strongly reject the notion that Islam advocates the use of force for the spread of ideologies, but to this aspect, I will return later. Let us first examine the rationality of such a claim by any religion of the world. 
can any religion, Islam, Christianity, or whatever you may call it, become universal in its message in the sense that the message be applicable to all people of the world, whatever their color, race, or nationality? What about a host of different racial, tribal, national traditions, social habits, and cultural patterns? The concept of universality as proposed by religions should not only transcend the geographic and national boundaries, but should also transcend time. So the question would be, can a religion be timeless? That is, can the teachings of any religion be applicable with equal fitness to the people of this age, as well as to those of a thousand years ago and a thousand years hence? Even if a religion was accepted globally by the entire mankind, how could it be competent enough to fulfill the needs of the future generation? It is for the followers of every religion to suggest how the teachings of their religion propose to resolve the problems discussed above. However, on behalf of Islam, I should like to summarize very briefly the Islamic answer to these questions. Islam as a universal religion the Holy Quran repeatedly makes it clear that Islam is a religion whose teachings are related to the human psyche. Islam emphasizes that any religion which is rooted in the human psyche transcends time and space. The human psyche is unchangeable. Therefore, the religion which is truly rooted in the human psyche becomes unchangeable by the same token provided that it does not get too involved with the transient situations of man in whatever age as he, as he progresses forward. If the religion sticks to those principles which emanate from the human psyche, such a religion has the logical potential of becoming a universal religion. Islam goes one step further. In its uniquely understanding attitude, it describes all religions of the world as possessing this character of universality to some degree. As such, in every divinely revealed religion, there is always found a central core of teaching, which is bonded to the human psyche and eternal truth. This core of religions remains unchangeable, unchangeable unless, of course, the followers of that religion corrupt that teaching at a later part of time. The following verses illustrate the case in point. وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ مُخْلِصِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ حُنَفَاءَ وَيُقِيمُ الصَّلَاةَ وَيُؤْتُ الزَّكَاةَ وَذَلِكَ دِينُ الْقَيِّمَةَ they, the people of the book, were not commanded but to serve Allah, being sincere to him in obedience and being upright, and to observe prayer and pay the zakat. That is the religion of the people of the right path. فَأَقِمْ وَجْهَكَ لِلدِّينِ حَنِيفًا فِطْرَةَ اللَّهِ الَّتِي فَطَرَ النَّاسَ عَلَيْهَا لَا تَبْدِيلَ لِخَلْقِ اللَّهِ ذَلِكَ الدِّينُ الْقَيِّمْ وَلَكِنَّ أَكْثَرَ النَّاسِ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ so, set thy face to the service of religion, turning as one devoted to God, and follow the nature made by Allah, the nature in which he has created mankind. There is no altering the creation of Allah. That is the right religion, but most men know not. In view of the above, the question may be raised as to the wisdom of sending one religion after another with the same teaching. Further, one may wonder why Islam claims, in relative terms, to be more universal and perfect than all the previous religions if all had the same unchangeable universal teaching applicable to human beings at all times. 1. In answer to the first question, the Holy Quran draws the attention of mankind to the indisputable historical fact that 
the books and scriptures revealed earlier than the Quran have been tempered with. Their teachings were corrupted by a process of gradual amendment or new elements were introduced through interpolation until the validity and authenticity of these books and scriptures became doubtful and questionable. So, the onus of proof that no change whatsoever has been effected, of course, lies on the shoulders of the people belonging to such religions. As far as the Quran goes, it occupies a unique and distinct position amongst all religious books and scriptures. Even some of the staunchest enemies of Islam, who do not believe the Quran to be the word of God, have to confess that the Holy Quran, without a shadow of doubt, remains the same unchanged and unaltered book which was claimed by Muhammad وسلم, to be the word of God. For instance, there is otherwise every security, internal and external, that we possess the text which Muhammad himself gave forth and used. We may, upon the strongest assumption, affirm that every verse in the Quran is the genuine and unaltered composition of Muhammad himself. Slight clerical errors there may have been, but the Quran of Osman contains none but genuine elements, though sometimes in very strange order. The efforts of European scholars to prove the existence of later interpolations in the Quran have failed. It is a completely different domain of controversy as to which book was authored by whom. But the same book whose authorship by God is challenged by the other people of the book stands witness to the fact that not only the Torah and the Injil, collectively the Old Testament and the Gospels, were authored, were authored in part by God himself, but also other books belonging to different religions in other parts of the world were, without question, also authored by the same God. Only the contradictions one finds in them today are man-made. Need it be said that the attitude of the Holy Quran is by far the most realistic and conducive to peace among religions. 2. As to the second question, the Holy Quran draws our attention to the process of evolution in every sphere of human society. New religions were needed not only for the sake of restoring the fundamental teachings of older religions, which had been mutilated at the hands of man, but also, as society evolved, more teachings had to be added to previous ones to keep up with the pace of progress. 3. That is not all. Another factor at work in this process of change was the element of time-related secondary teachings which were revealed to meet only the requirements of a certain people or period. This means that religions were not only made of central cores of unchangeable principles, but were also dressed up with peripheral, secondary and even transient teachings. 4. Last but not least, man was not educated and trained in divine instructions in one single stride but he was gradually carried forward step by step to a stage of mental adulthood where he was considered fit and mature to receive all the fundamental principles which were needed for his guidance. According to the Quranic claim, a secondary teaching inseparably based on everlasting fundamental principles was also revealed as a part of the final, perfect and consummate religion, that is Islam. That which was of a purely local or temporal character purely local or temporary character was abrogated or omitted. That which was still needed henceforth was provided and retained. This, in essence, is the Islamic concept of religious universality, which Islam claims to possess. It is for man to investigate and judge to compare the comparative merits of different claimants. Now, once again, 
we turn to the question of such religions which have set themselves the goal of global ascendancy. Clearly, Islam does entertain such ambitions. By way of prophecy, the Holy Quran declares that Islam is destined to emerge one day as the sole religion of mankind. He, it is, who has sent his messenger with the guidance and the religion of the truth, that he may cause it to prevail over all religions, even if those who associate partners with God do not like it. Despite its commitment to the promotion of peace and harmony between various religions, Islam does not discourage the competitive dissemination of messages and ideologies with a view of gaining ascendancy over others. In fact, it sets the ultimate ascendancy of Islam over all other faiths as a noble goal, which must be pursued by the adherents of Islam. Speaking of the Holy Father وسلم, of Islam, the Holy Quran states, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ إِنِّي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ إِلَيْكُمْ جَمِيعًا الَّذِي لَهُ مُلْكُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا هُوْ يُحْيِي وَيُمِيتُ فَآمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ النَّبِيِّ الْأُمِّيِّ الَّذِي يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ وَكَلِمَاتِهِ وَاتَّبِعُوهُ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَهْتَدُونَ Say, O mankind, truly, I am a messenger to you from Allah. I am a messenger to you all from Allah to whom belongs the kingdom of the heavens and the earth. There is no God but He. He gives life and He causes death. So believe in Allah and His Messenger, the Prophet, the Immaculate One, who believes in Allah and His words, and follow Him that you may be rightly guided. However, to preempt frictions and misunderstandings, Islam prescribes a set of clear-cut rules of conduct which guarantee fair play, absolute justice, freedom of speech, right of expression, and the right of disagreement for all alike. I stop at page 31. I start at page 31. Instruments of struggle, no compulsion. How can a religion claim itself to be universal, international, or global, and yet no cause frictions and yet not cause frictions no religion with a universal message and global ambitions to unite mankind under one flag can even momentarily entertain the idea of employing force to spread its message source can win territories but not hearts force can bend heads but not minds islam does not permit the use of force as an instrument for the spread of its message it declares la ikraha there should be no compulsion in religion. Surely, right has become distinct from wrong. So, there is no need for any coercion. Leave it to man to determine where the truth belongs. Addressing the Holy Founder وسلم, of Islam, God clearly warns him of entertaining any idea of force in an attempt to reform society. His status as reformer is made very clear in the following verse. فذكر إنما أنت مذكر لست عليهم بمسيطر Admonish therefore for thou art but an admonisher thou hast no authority to compel them Further developing the same theme Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is reminded 
فإن أعرضوا فما أرسلناك عليهم حفيظا إن عليك إلا البلاغ But if they turn away we have not sent thee as a guardian over them thy duty is only to convey the message leave it to God to make the message effective Even if a struggle develops in the process of the propagation of the new ideology and violent reaction ensues then Islam strongly exhorts its adherents to show patience and perseverance and avoid conflicts as much as possible. This is why wherever a Muslim is admonished to deliver the message of Islam to the world at large, a clear-cut code of conduct is laid out for him. Out of many verses related to this subject, we quote the following few verses to illustrate the point. Ud'u ila sabili rabbika bil hikmati والموعظة الحسنة وجادلهم بالتي هي أحسن إن ربك هو أعلم بمن ضل عن سبيله وهو أعلم بالمهتدين Call unto the way of thy Lord with wisdom and goodly exhortation and argue with them in a way that is best Surely thy Lord knows best who has strayed from his way and he also knows who are rightly guided and ادفع بالتي هي أحسن السيئة نحن أعلم بما يصفون Repel evil with that which is best We know very well what they allege Here, أحسن means the best most attractive and something beautiful Describing a code of conduct under which the believers deliver the message the Holy Quran has the following comments والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر. We call to witness that age when man as a whole would be in a state of loss, except those who believe and do righteous deeds and deliver truth in a manner that is also truthful. They exhort patience while they themselves exercise patience. Again, ثم كان من الذين آمنوا Then he should have been of those who believe and exhort one another to exercise patience while they do the same themselves and they exhort one another to be considerate and merciful to others while they themselves are considerate and merciful. Survival of the fittest According to the Holy Quran, The survival and ultimate victory of a message depends entirely upon the potency of its arguments and not on the material force it can employ. The Holy Quran is very clear and specific on this subject. It declares that even if the most powerful forces are employed to annihilate truth and support falsehood, such efforts would invariably be defeated and frustrated. Reason will always prevail over the crude force of material weapons. For instance, It is stated in the Holy Quran. قَالَ الَّذِينَ يَظُنُّونَ أَنَّهُمْ مُلَاقُ اللَّهِ كَمْ مِنْ فِئَةٍ قَلِيلَةٍ غَلَبَتْ فِئَةً كَثِيرَةً بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ مَعَ الصَّابِرِينَ But those who knew for certain that they would one day meet Allah said, How many a small party has triumphed over a large party by Allah's command? And Allah is with the steadfast. The concept of the supremacy of Islam has to be understood in the context of the aforementioned divine command. In another part of the verse of the Holy Quran, it is stated, رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ وَرَضُوا عَنْهُ أُولَٰئِكَ حِزْبُ اللَّهُ 
ala inna hizballahi humul muflihun Allah is well pleased with them and they are well pleased with him they are Allah's party take note it is Allah's party who will prosper during the battle of badr the first battle in the history of islam the might of meccan idolaters was pitched against a small number of muslims overwhelmingly outnumbered outclassed in weaponry and equipment and forced to fight a defensive battle for their preservation of their ideology rather than for their personal survival commenting upon this the holy quran declares liyahlika man halaka an bayyinatin wa yahya man hayya an bayyina wa inna allaha lasami'un alim so let him perish who is condemned to perish by the verdict of manifest logic and let him survive who is worthy of survival by virtue of manifest logic this is the everlasting principle which has played the most important role in the evolution of man survival of the fittest is the essence of this message that in fact is the methodology of the evolution of life freedom of speech Freedom of speech and expression is vital to the spread of a message as well as to restore the dignity of man. No religion is worthy of any consideration unless it addresses itself to the restoration and protection of human dignity. In view of what has passed, it should become apparent that it is impossible for a religion like Islam to deny freedom of speech and expression. On the contrary, Islam upholds this principle in such a manner that in such a manner and with such boldness as is seldom witnessed in any other ideology or religion in the world. For instance, the Holy Quran declares, "Waqalu lan yadkhula al-jannata illa man kana hudan aw nasara." Tilka amaniyuhum. Qul hatu burhanakum in kuntum sadiqin. They say, "None shall ever enter heaven." unless he be a Jew or a Christian these are their vain desires say produce your proof if you are truthful again amittakhadhu min dunihi ilaha amittakhadhu min dunihi alihatan qul hatu burhanakum hadha dhikru man ma'iya wa dhikru man qabli bal aktharuhum la ya'lamuna al-haqq fa hum mu'ridun hafetakin god beside him say Bring forth your proof. Here is the book of those with me and those before me. Nay, most of them know not the truth, and so they turn away from it. And wanazana min kulli ummatin shahidan faqulna hatu burhanakum fa'alimu anna al-haqq lillahi wa dalla anhum ma kanu yaftarun. We shall draw from every people a witness and we shall say to them bring your proof then will they know that the truth belongs to allah and that which they used to forge will be lost unto them and am lakum sultanum mubin fatu bi kitabikum in kuntum sadiqin or have you a clear authority then provide your book if you are truthful liberty and emancipation in the context of the contemporary world liberty and emancipation are the two important slogans which are influencing the entire world with varying intensity and different connotations in different parts of the world 
There is no doubt whatsoever that man is gaining greater awareness and consciousness in the importance and value of liberty. There is a pressing need felt everywhere in the world for emancipation. But from what? Is it from the yoke of foreign rule, dictatorship, fascism, theocratic or other regimes with totalitarian philosophies, oppressive democracies, and corrupt bureaucracies? The economic stranglehold of the poor countries by the rich, ignorance, superstition, or fetishism. Islam champions the cause of liberty from all these maladies, but not in a manner as to cause disorder, chaos, and indiscriminate vengeance causing suffering to the innocent. And God does not like disorder. Wallahu la yuhibbul fasad is the message of Islam. Islam, like every other religion, emphasizes the role of balanced freedom in a spirit of give and take. The concept of absolute freedom is hollow, weird, and unreal in the context of society. Sometimes, the concept of freedom is so misconceived and misapplied that the beauty of the cherished principle of freedom of speech gets transformed into the ugliness of freedom to abuse, hurl insults, and to blaspheme. Blasphemy Islam goes one step further than any other religion in granting man the freedom of speech and expression. Blasphemy is condemned on moral and ethical grounds, no doubt, but no physical punishment is prescribed for blasphemy in Islam despite the commonly held view in the contemporary world. Having studied the Holy Quran extensively and repeatedly with deep concentration, I have failed to find a single verse which declares blasphemy to be a crime punishable by man. Although the Holy Quran very strongly discourages indecent behavior and indecent talk, or the hurting of the sensitivity of others, with or without rhyme or reason, Islam does not advocate the punishment of blasphemy in this world nor vest such authority in anyone. Blasphemy has been mentioned five times in the Holy Quran. 1. For instance, this subject is mentioned in generality. وَقَدْ نَزَّلَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي الْكِتَابِ أَنْ إِذَا سَمِعْتُمْ آيَاتِ اللَّهِ يُكْفَرُ بِهَا وَيُسْتَهْزَأُ بِهَا فَلَا تَقْعُدُوا مَعَهُمْ حَتَّى يَخُوضُوا فِي حَدِيثٍ غَيْرِهِ إِنَّكُمْ إِذَا مِثْلُهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ جَامِعُ الْمُنَافِقِينَ he has already revealed to you in the book that when you hear the signs of Allah being denied and mocked at, sit not with them until they engage in a talk other than that, for in that case you would be like them. Surely Allah will assemble the hypocrites and the disbelievers in hell altogether. وَإِذَا رَأَيْتَ الَّذِينَ يَخُوضُونَ فِي آيَاتِنَا فَأَعْرِضْ عَنْهُمْ حَتَّى يَخُوضُوا فِي حَدِيثٍ غَيْرِهِ وَإِمَّا يُنْسِيَنَّكَ الشَّيْطَانُ فَلَا تَقْعُدْ بَعْدَ الذِّكْرَى مَعَ الْقَوْمِ الظَّالِمِينَ When thou seest those who engage in vain discourse concerning our signs, then turn thou away from them until they engage in a discourse other than that. And if Satan cause thee to forget, then sit not after recollection with the unjust people. What a beautiful response to the utter ugliness of blasphemy. Not only does Islam disallow any human being to take the punishment of the blasphemer into his or her own hands, but declares that 
people should register their protest against blasphemy by staging a walkout from an assembly of men where religious values are being mocked and ridiculed. Suggestions of any positive measures aside, not even a permanent boycott of the blasphemer is prescribed by the Holy Quran. On the contrary, the Holy Quran makes it amply clear that this boycott is only to last for the period during which the act of blasphemy is being committed. 2. Again, blasphemy is mentioned in Surah Al-An'am, where hypothetically, the question of blasphemy is discussed not only with regard to God, but also idols and imaginary objects of worship besides God. One is overwhelmed by the beauty of Quranic teachings when one reads, وَلَا تَسُبُّ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ فَيَسُبُّ اللَّهَ عَدْوًا بِغَيْرِ عِلْمٍ كَذَلِكَ زَيَّنَّا لِكُلِّ أُمَّةٍ عَمَلَهُمْ ثُمَّ إِلَىٰ رَبِّهِمْ مَرُجِعُهُمْ فَيُنَبِّئُهُمْ بِمَا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ Revile not those whom they call upon beside Allah, lest they, out of spite, revile Allah in their ignorance. Thus, unto every people have we caused their doing seem fair. Then unto their Lord is their return, and he will inform them what they used to do. It is the Muslims who are addressed in this verse. They are strictly prohibited from blaspheming the idols and imaginary gods of the idolaters. It is also pointed out that if one does so, others may, by way of retaliation, indulge in blasphemy against God. In this hypothetical discussion of blasphemy against God and idols on equal terms, no physical punishment is prescribed in either case. The moral of this teaching is rich in profound wisdom. If one commits a crime against someone's or other spiritual sensibilities, the aggrieved party has a right to pay back in the same coin regardless of the nature of his beliefs and his being right or wrong. Neither is, neither is permitted to retaliate in different terms. One can safely conclude from this that spiritual offense should be avenged by spiritual means just as a physical offense is avenged by physical retaliation but without transgression. 3. Blasphemy is mentioned in the Holy Quran in relation to Mary and Jesus alayhi For their disbelief and for their uttering against Mary a grievous calumny. This verse refers to the historical stance of the Jews contemporary to the time of Jesus Christ According to this verse, the Jews committed a grave blasphemy by declaring Mary to be unchaste and alleging Jesus to be a child of questionable birth. The Arabic word, translated above as a grievous calumny, expresses condemnation of, of this folly on the part of the Jews in the strongest term. Yet, surprisingly, no physical punishment is prescribed. 4. It is interesting to note that while the Jews are condemned by the Quran for committing an act of blasphemy against Mary and Jesus, at the same time, the Christians, in their turn, are censored for committing blasphemy against God by claiming that a son was born to God through a human wife. In the following verse, the Holy Quran declares it as an enormity. Yet no corporal punishment of any sort is advocated, nor is the right delegated to any human authority to punish blasphemy against God. 
كبرت كلمة تخرج من أفواههم إن يقولون إلا كذبا No knowledge have they thereof nor have their fathers monstrous is the word that comes out of their mouths they speak not but a lie 5 In the end let me come to the most sensitive area more sensitive in the sense that the muslims of today are more sensitive to blasphemy against the holy founder sallallahu alaihi wasallam of islam than blasphemy against anything else even god yet there is a case of blasphemy so serious that it is recorded in the holy quran itself which speaks of abdullah bin ubay bin salul known in the history of islam as the chief of hypocrites once returning from an expedition abdullah bin ubay declared in the company of others that the moment they returned to medina the nobles would expel the meanest among the medinites yaquluna la in raja'na ila almadinati la yukhrijanna al'a'z minha al'adhal wa lillahi al'izzatu wa li rasulihi wa lil mu'minina walakinna al-munafiqina la ya'lamun they say if we return to medina the most exalted will surely drive out therefrom the most mean while true ana belongs to allah and to his messenger and the believers but the hypocrites know not everyone understood the implied insult to the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam they were seething with indignation and rage to the extent that if permitted they would have most certainly put abdullah bin ubay to the sword it is reported authentically that tempests were running so high at this incident that no less a person than the son of abdullah bin ubay himself approached the holy founder sallallahu alaihi wasallam of islam seeking permission to kill his father with his own hands the son argued that if anyone else did so he might later on in ignorance retain the thoughts of revenge against his father's killer for centuries the arabs were accustomed to take revenge at even the smallest insult held at them or their close relative perhaps this custom was what the son had in mind but the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam refused to grant his request nor did he permit anyone else from among his companions to punish the hypocrite abdullah bin ubay in any manner whatsoever having returned to medina after the expedition abdullah bin ubay continued to live in peace when he died at last a natural death of course to the surprise of everyone the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam gave abdullah's son his own shirt so that he could enshroud his father's body for burial a singular act of blessing indeed which must have left the other companions yearning to batter it from from the sun at the cost of all their possessions not only that the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam decided to lead his funeral prayer this decision must have deeply disturbed many of his companions who could never forgive abdullah for the grievous offense mentioned above yet it fell to the lot of umar radiyallahu anhu who later succeeded the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam as the second caliph to give voice to their suppressed uneasiness it is reported that as the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was proceeding to the funeral umar radiyallahu anhu suddenly stepped forward and stood in the way begging the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam to change his decision in doing so Umar radiyallahu anhu reminded the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam of the verse of the Holy Quran in which reference is made to some known hypocrite 
on whose behalf intercession would not be accepted even if the Holy Prophet ﷺ prayed for him 70 times. Incidentally, the number 70 should not be taken too literally because, according to Arab usage, it was only employed to indicate a large number. However, the Holy Prophet ﷺ smiled and responded, Stand aside, Umar, anhu. I know better. If I know God would not forgive him, even if I seek forgiveness 70 times, I would seek forgiveness for him more than 70 times. The Holy Prophet ﷺ then led the funeral prayer. This is a fitting rebuttal to those who are crying themselves hoarse in demanding death for the blasphemer who dares to insult the Holy Father of Islam ﷺ and nothing but death. Such a religion must have a claim to establish interreligious peace in the world. I stop at page 43. I start at page 44. Interreligious cooperation. In interreligious relationships, Islam goes one step further by declaring, وَلَا يَجْرِمَنَّكُمْ شَنَآنُ قَوْمٍ أَنْ صَدُّوكُمْ عَنِ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ أَنْ تَعْتَدُوا وَتَعَوَنُوا عَلَى الْبِرِّ وَالتَّقْوَى وَلَا تَعَوَنُوا عَلَى الْإِثْمِ وَالْعُدْوَانِ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ شَدِيدُ الْعِقَابِ And let not the enmity of a people that they hindered you from access to the sacred mosque incite you to treat them with iniquity. Instead, help each other in good things of life and in all such things as are based on the fear of Allah. Do not, however, help one another in the sinful things and transgression. The Holy Quran does not permit Muslims to treat with injustice even such enemies as had committed aggression against them due to religious enmity. We now turn to the category of those non-believers who were not known to have taken any active part in hostilities against Muslims. Referring to them, the believers are told in the Holy Quran, وَلَمْ يُخْرِجُوكُمْ مِنْ دِيَارِكُمْ أَنْ تَبَرُّوهُمْ وَتُقْسِطُوا إِلَيْهِمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُقْسِطِينَ It may be that Allah will bring about love between you and those of them with whom you are now at enmity. And Allah is all-powerful and Allah is most forgiving, merciful. Allah forbids you not respecting those who have not fought against you on account of your religion and who have not driven you out of your homes, that you be kind to them and deal equitably with them. Surely, Allah loves those who are equitable. Muslims are also thought to invite the people of the book and to cooperate with them in spreading the message of the unity of God, a belief shared with them. The import of the verse below is to emphasize the point of commonality and chalk a mutual program for the benefit of mankind rather than to highlight the areas of differences resulting in discord. قُلْ يَا أَهْلَ الْكِتَابِ تَعَالَوْا إِلَىٰ كَلِمَةٍ سَوَاءٍ بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَكُمْ أَلَّا نَعْبُدَ إِلَّا اللَّهَ وَلَا نُشْرِكَ بِهِ شَيْئًا وَلَا يَتَّخِذَ بَعْضُنَا بَعْضًا أَرْبَابًا مِّن دُونِ اللَّهِ فَإِن تَوَلَّوْا فَقُولُوا اشْهَدُوا بِأَنَّا مُسْلِمُونَ Say, O people of the book, Come to a word equal between us and you. 
that we worship none but Allah, and that we associate no partner with him, and that some of us take not others for lords besides Allah. But if they turn away, then say, bear witness that we have submitted to God. Conclusion Before examining any meaningful role that the bona fide religions of the world can play in providing peace to man in all areas of human activity, it is highly essential to critically examine the role of religions in establishing peace within the various sections of their own adherence and also to adjudge whether religions, as long as they exist, can ever learn to live at peace with each other. Judging from the growing influence of materialism and the emphasis of society as a whole shifting from spiritual to carnal and sensual pleasures, one may be led to believe that religion should be discarded and ignored as an unimportant factor. I regret to disagree with such a conclusion because unless we reform religious attitudes internally and externally, religion will continue to play a very strong negative role rather than a beneficial positive role in our efforts to achieve global peace. Religion, which should have played a leading role in establishing peace, removing misunderstanding between adherents of different sects and religions, cultivating decency, and promoting the principle of live and, let, and let's live, has unfortunately, in the contemporary times, played a very minor and insignificant role, if any at all, in the promotion of peace anywhere in the world. Yet, in creating disorder and bloodshed and in causing misery and immense suffering, it still is a very potent and dynamic force. We should not be underestimated at all. No global peace can be visualized without addressing this vital problem and redressing its faults. Internally, religious sentiments can be strongly excited and activated to spread misery and suffering amongst a section of its adherents which, unfortunately, happens to belong to a minority sect within that religion. The entire Muslim history is full of such ugly and despicable episodes where Islam, the religion of peace, was itself employed to shatter the peace of innocent believers who, of course, believed in Islam, but not in the way and style as others would have them. In fact, a study of Islamic history proves beyond a shadow of doubt that Islam has been misemployed for the persecution of Muslims themselves. The holy wars that the Muslims fought against the Crusaders are far more outnumbered and outweighed by the holy wars that Muslims fought against Muslims during the last 14 centuries. The chapter is not closed. What has been happening in Pakistan vis-à-vis -vis Ahmadiyya Muslims and not too infrequently against the Shia minority is enough to bring to focus of attention to the fact that this heinous problem which should have died long ago lives on. In Christianity, persecution of Christians at the hands of Christians may appear to be a very far cry buried under the debris of European and American history, but a study of the religion-political strife in Ireland appears to prove otherwise. Also, there are potential dangers of uh, sectarian strife within Christianity in other parts of the world which at present are preoccupied with other strife and feuds. In interreligious relationships, the Hindu-Muslim riots in India, or Muslim-Christian strife in Nigeria, or Jewish-Muslim hostilities in the Middle East and elsewhere, and also an undercurrent of politically and economically fragile Judeo-Christian relationship, 
are all but a few signs of latent dangers which lie like dormant volcanoes in the subterranean religious world. The importance of reforming the attitudes to such problems cannot be overemphasized. To recapitulate, to recapitulate the Islamic approach as to how such problems should be resolved, we conclude by pointing out that 1. All religions of the world, whether they believe in Islam or not, must conform to the underlying, underlying Islamic principle of not permitting the use of force and coercion in any manner as an instrument in resolving intersectarian and interreligious strife. The choice of religion, the freedom, of, uh, the freedom to profess, propagate, practice and exercise, or to denounce, or to cease to believe or change one's belief must be protected absolutely. 2. Even if other religions cannot agree with the Islamic concept of universality of truth, and even if, for instance, from the vantage point of Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, etc., other religions are all false and have nothing to do with God, then, despite this negation of truth elsewhere, all religions must conform to the Islamic principle of showing respect and reverence to the founders and holy personages of other faiths. In pursuance thereof, they do not have to compromise their principles. It is simply a matter of fundamental human rights, the right of every human being that his religious sensibilities and sentiments shall not be violated and offended must be recognized. 3. It should be remembered that the above principle cannot be enforced by any national or international law. It should be understood in conjunction with the principle that blasphemy does not warrant man-made punishment, but that it should be decried and discouraged by promoting public opinion for condemning such acts of indecent, imprudent, and loathsome. 4. Interfaith conferences on the pattern introduced by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the earlier part of this century should be widely encouraged and promoted. The soul and spirit of such conferences can be summed up by the following characteristics. A. All speakers should be encouraged to highlight the good points and attractive and distinctive features of their respective faith without maligning other faith. B. Indeed, speakers preferably belonging to one faith should genuinely try to discover the good features of other faiths, speak on them, and explain why they are impressed by them. C. Speakers belonging to different faiths should pay tribute to the nobility and character of the leaders of other faiths. For instance, a Jewish speaker could speak on the distinctive features of the Holy Prophet Muhammad وسلم, which can be appreciated by all human beings without compromising their religious dogmas. Similarly, a Muslim speaker could speak of Krishna salam. Hindus speak on Jesus Christ salam. a Buddhist on Moses salam, and so on and so forth. During the third decade of this century, such conferences were held to great benefit and growing popularity by the Ahmadiyya community to improve Hindu-Muslim relationships in India. D. Without prejudice to what has been proposed in C, the sanctity of religious dialogue must be protected between sects and faith. Interreligious exchange of views must not be condemned as attempts to sabotage religious peace. It is the manner of dialogue which, if wrong, should be condemned and not the dialogue itself. The free flow of ideas is the most important of fundamental human rights, 
essential for the survival of the fittest. It may not be compromised at any cost. E. To narrow the areas of differences and enlarge the possibility of agreements, it is highly essential that all religions accept the principle of limiting their debates with followers of other faiths to the sources of their respective religions. The Quranic declaration that all religions are the same at their sources should not be treated lightly. It comprises a world of wisdom, which should be examined and explored by all religions to their own advantage as well as to the advantage of mankind as a whole. 5. Cooperation in all good plans and schemes for the mutual benefit of mankind must be promoted and encouraged. For instance, philanthropic projects could be undertaken jointly between Christians and Muslims and Hindus and Jews, etc. Only then can we hopefully realize the time old utopian dream the time old utopian dream of past sages and thinkers namely that of uniting man under one flag in all spheres of human activity whether they be religious social economic or political fields and all that they all that really matters i end at page 50 verily allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others, and giving like kindred, and forbids indecency and manifest evil, and wrongful transgression. He admonishes you that you may take heed. The Holy Quran, chapter 16, verse 91. Know that the life of this world is only a sport and a pastime, and an adornment and a source of boasting among yourselves and rivalry in multiplying riches and children. This life is like the rain, the vegetation produced whereby rejoices the tillers. Then it dries up and thou seest it turn yellow. Then it becomes broken piece of straw. And in the hereafter, there is severe punishment and also forgiveness from Allah and his pleasure. And the life of this world is nothing but temporary enjoyment of deceitful things. The Holy Quran, chapter 57, verse 21. Chapter 2, Social Peace Let us now turn to the question of Islam's role in providing social peace for contemporary society. Contemporary social order. Unfortunately, religious influence on moral behavior is fast being lost in society. To aggravate the situation further, a strong urge for liberation from religious obligations is in motion and gaining momentum almost everywhere in the contemporary world. Yet, there is also panic born out of the growing lack of security and disorderliness in social behavior running parallel to the trends of disregard religious and ethical codes. Believe in the living God, who has shaped not only the destiny of human beings, but who has also a right to determine the patterns of their day-to-day -day life is rapidly eroding. The Holy Quran summarizes this condition as ظهر الفساد في البر والبحر Disorder has inundated land and sea. Christianity, being the predominant religion of the West, had, until the turn of this century, a strong and effective hold on the moral behavior of its adherents in the West. Alas, not so anymore. 
Instead, a civilization has evolved due to the interplay of scientific socialism, rapid scientific development, and material progress, forcing Christianity to beat a retreat step by step and adopt a progressively diminishing role in molding social behavior. Moral behavior, therefore, in the West today, is as little or as much Christian in its character as the moral behavior in most Muslim countries in Isla is Islamic. The same, unfortunately, is the state of social and moral behavior elsewhere in the world. There are so many Buddhists and Confucianists and Hindus in the world today, but unfortunately, very little of Buddhism, Confucianism, or Hinduism can be observed. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. If religious or traditional codes of ethics are wanting in a society, morality will lose all relevance to a generation which no longer blindly accepts its traditional heritage as sound and valid. Such a generation is bound to pass through a critical transitional period of emptiness. This in turn would generate a new urge for inquiry. The process of inquiry may or may not lead to the discovery of a better and more satisfying code of conduct. It may, on the other hand, end up in total chaos or a state of moral anarchy. Unfortunately, as I see things, it is the latter option which seems to be the choice of modern society. A wind of changes blowing across societies of the world, be they Eastern or Western, religious or secular, it is an evil wind which is polluting the entire world climate. The modern world seems to be far more aware and conscious of the rising level of uh, pollution in the material atmosphere than the rapidly rising level of pollution in our social environment. The Holy Quran, obviously speaking of such an age, declares, we bring to witness that age when man as a whole would be in a state of loss, except for those few who believe and do good deeds and exhort others with truth to accept truth and admonish others with patience to be patient. Exploitation, duplicity, hypocrisy, selfishness, oppression, greed, the mad pursuit of pleasure, indiscipline, corruption, theft, robbery, violation of human rights, fraud, treachery, lack of responsibility, and want of mutual respect and trust have become the hallmark of the modern societies. The thin veneer of civilization can no longer hide the ugliness, which is becoming more and more apparent. However, it would be wrong to say that these threatening signs of human feelings were absent in past ages. In fact, many civilizations in the past had also suffered the same maladies before their chapters in the book of human history were finally closed. It would be wrong to single out any one particular region of the world, which had been beset by moral evils. Societies are beginning to crumble everywhere alike. As against the countries governed by totalitarian philosophies, the rising consciousness of individual liberty in the so-called free world is in itself becoming a lopsided trend which is largely responsible for growing social misbehavior.
In the countries governed by totalitarian philosophies, this progressive rise of consciousness of individual freedom is at present engaged in a grim battle of liberation of the individual from complete totalitarian control. Unless there is a counter-revolutionary upsurge in the powerful extreme left of the armed forces, this trend for greater freedom has every likelihood of winning the battle very soon. What may happen afterwards does not augur well for the moral prospect of emancipated youth in the erstwhile communist countries. Almost two generations have grown to adulthood in the void of a godless society, with nothing to guide and discipline moral behavior, apart from the lack of an inbuilt code of moral values vested in religious ideologies, the danger of vain, playful pleasure-seeking and irresponsible trends flooding from the West on the youth in the USSR and Eastern Europe can produce devastating effects on their moral behavior in years to come. At the same time, one cannot fail to note that the experience living without religion for many decades has not only bequeathed ill to the contemporary society, but has also brought some clear advantages. The Socialist Revolution of Russia severed the ties of the socialist world not only with religion, but with religious dogmas and views which themselves were corrupted and distorted, be it Christianity or Islam. Whatever sects the Christians or Muslims belonged, there was a medievalism about the concept of their respective religions which had created in many areas of belief a parallax between religious doctrines and the realities of nature. Both could not be true at one and the same time. It took a special training of minds to view the discrepancies between the religious views and facts of nature and yet not feel disturbed. To live with paradoxes is, perhaps, not easy except when paradoxes are bred into a people, generation after generation. Gradually, the point is reached in time when religious communities can somehow live with paradoxes without noticing their presence. Among other things, what the socialist revolution did to their people was to wash them clean of ideological dogmas and cure them of the uh, strabismus and myopia. This, in turn, has gifted them with a sort of innocence, which can only be achieved when there is total lack of hypocrisy. It is too early to say whether this state of innocence can be turned to their moral advantage in the difficult time of struggle ahead. But one thing is certain, they are far more amenable to receiving the message of truth and accepting it without prejudices than any other people in the world today. Alas, the same cannot be said about the rising trends of individualism in the so-called free people living in the world today. One can do practically anything by justifying freedom in the name of individual liberty. Being the leaders in this trend, America is largely and profoundly influencing not only the first world European countries, but also the people of the second and third world. The echo of these distorted concepts of individual liberty rendering one free from the discipline of moral life is being heard far across the ideological curtains of scientific socialism. The gays, lesbians, drug addicts, skinheads, punks, and criminals of all sorts all continue to grow in numbers and strength. Their audacity to defend their behavior by simply asking their admonisher, why not? 
has become the ominous challenge to contemporary society. Two climates of social order. The Holy Quran describes two social climates. One, one in which evil is free to flourish, and two, the other in which the, gro the growth of evil is strongly inhibited. If you take up Islamic moral teachings piecemeal, it would be very difficult for the Western mind to understand the philosophy of its message. This is because moral teachings must be studied as parts of a social climate. One must look at them in totality. You cannot understand the autumnal season just by looking at the, at the fallen dry leaf of some foliage changing its color. One must look at them in totality. You cannot understand the autumnal season just by looking at the falling dry leaf for, or some foliage changing its color. One has to visualize and feel the whole atmosphere and temperament of autumn to know what autumn is and what it does to plant life. Likewise, one swallow does not a summer make. Likewise, one swallow does not a summer make. Whereas autumn discourages life, spring encourages it. It is not just a change in temperature, but a transformation in the whole atmosphere when the very wind seems to breathe life. Social systems are also like seasons with their own qualities and influences. Vanity of a materialistic society and its ultimate destination. Islam deals with this subject in exactly the same manner. First, let me describe a society which, according to the Quran, is un-Islamic. that the life of this world is only a sport and a pastime, and an adornment and source of boasting among yourselves, and of rivalry in multiplying riches and children. It is like the rain, the vegetation produced whereby rejoices the tillis, then it dries up and thou seest it turn yellow, then it becomes worthless stubble, and in the hereafter there is severe punishment for the wicked and also forgiveness from Allah, and his pleasure for the righteous. And the life of this world is nothing but temporary enjoyment of delusive things. Again, referring to the vanity of material life, the Holy Quran has this to say, as to those who disbelieve, their deeds are like a mirage in a desert. The thirsty one thinks it to be water until, when he comes up to it, he finds it to be nothing, and he finds Allah near him, who fully pays him his account, and Allah is swift in reckoning. The Holy Quran depicts this as a mirage which tantalizes the thirsty person by every running away, by ever running away from him until he becomes so exhausted that he can pursue it no more. That is when he is punished. He is made to realize that this is the goal of emptiness and void, which he had been following all along. 
Suddenly, the mirage stops running away and permits him to catch up only to make him understand the bitter meaning of pursuing nothingness. That is the punishment meted out to those who pursue the vanity of life, and that, according to the Holy Quran, is how all such societies end up. As against this, religion advocates an ideology which declares that life on this earth is not the be-all and end-all of things, but that there is a life to come hereafter. If we do not die a permanent death here, but continue to survive in one form or another, as Islam and many other religions would have us believe, if life on earth cannot be taken separately from the life hereafter, and if both lives must be understood as the continuation of the one to the other, then it will be extremely unwise to ignore the role of social influences on a person here on earth. Evil, immoral and unhealthy influences are bound to give birth to an unhealthy soul in the life to come. I end at page 62. I start at page 62. Rejection of life to come. This is no place to discuss the Islamic philosophy about life after death in detail, but let it suffice here to mention that, according to Islam, the way we lead our lives here on earth influences our souls in a manner as sometimes certain diseases of a pregnant mother influence her child in the embryonic stage. The child may be so congenitally handicapped that it may prove to be a hell for it to live with its disabilities amongst healthy children in a state of utter helplessness. The torment would, be, would become more bitter and profound with the maturity of its consciousness. This, in a nutshell, according to Islam, is how we shape our own heaven or hell. In this context, it should have become clear that any social order which promotes irresponsible, disorderly, and evil behavior, no matter how attractive or enticing it may seem to the casual observer, must be rejected. It is all right for the believers to say things and make such claims as are otherworldly in nature. After all, who has returned from the so-called other world to testify to such claims or stand witness against them? Why not be content with a bird in hand than to batter it for two in the bush? This is the materialistic answer to the Islamic philosophy regarding how society should be shaped and on what principles it should be based. The Islamic philosophy encompasses the life here on earth and the life in the hereafter as a continuous flow broken momentarily on death, which in fact is only a transformational stage of one life to another. As against this, the materialistic philosophy visualizes life as only a short, accidental span of consciousness, which drowns into nothingness at the moment of death. Therefore, the social system has only to cater for the needs related to this short span of life. The individual is answerable to the society only as long as he lives, and only for that aspect of life which is visible and detectable, that which is hidden in the form of his thoughts, intentions, plans, conspiracies, and evil crimes subtly perpetrated, goes undetected and unquestioned. Again, the crimes against society are only adjudged as crimes, when it is established beyond a reasonable shadow of doubt that 
a crime had been committed. There is the possibility of the miscarriage of justice. In such a social order, the dispensation of such justice is not only superficial and limited, but also becomes conducive to offenses against society. It promotes the pursuit of vested interests and encourages extreme selfishness on the part of the individual. It is also interesting to note that in all godless or semi-godless society, where the concept of answerability after death is rejected entirely or treated so lightly and vaguely as to practically render it meaningless, it is very difficult indeed to find a definition of crime which is fully supported in a sound moral philosophy. It is very difficult to conceive that members of a godless society will be truly convinced of the wrong they commit when they break a law. After all, what is law? It is the word of a despot or an absolute ruler, the decision of totalitarian regimes, or the dictates of a democratic majority. To a common man, which of the above should appear to be a just legislation based on sound moral philosophy? What moral philosophy indeed? If he does not owe his existence to any being, or if he has no fear of being questioned regarding his conduct during his earthly life in the life to come, since, according to him, there is no life hereafter, then the answers to the questions raised above from his vantage point could be very different from the requirements of a responsible society. He has only this short life to live. He needs society only for his own benefit. He submits to the superior authority of the society only out of necessity. If he can run away with some self-appropriated benefit and snatch a few moments of pleasure here and there while remaining clever enough to escape detection, why not? What so-called moral inhibition could stop his hand? This psychological attitude towards crime begins to develop and become stronger with the passage of time in godless and materialistic societies. This exactly has been mentioned in the Holy Quran as the essence of the materialistic society. The disbelievers declare, In hiya illa hayatuna dunya namutu wa nahya wa ma nahnu there is no life other than our present life. We shall die here, and it is only here that we shall live, and we shall not be raised again. I.e., we reject the concept of life after death or life elsewhere. Then again, the disbelievers mockingly address earlier prophets by asking them, they say, when we shall have become bones and turned to dust, shall we really be raised again into a new form of creation? They say, do you really mean to assert that when we are dead and we have become mere dust and bones, shall we indeed be raised again? This, according to the Holy Quran, is central to all evils of a materialistic society. That is why so much stress is laid on the life to come and on a day of reckoning. In one of the traditions, Ibn Mas'ud relates that the Holy Prophet ﷺ drew a rectangle 
and in the middle of it he drew a line lengthwise the upper end of which portend, portended beyond the rectangle. Across this middle line he drew a number of short lines. He indicated that the figure represented man. The encircling rectangle was death. The middle line stood for his desires and the short lines across it were the trials and tribulations of life. He said, if one of these misses him, he falls a victim to one of the others. In another narration, death is described as the terminator of pleasure. Four Characteristics of a Materialistic Society ما سلككم في سقر قالوا لم نكن من المصلين ولم نكن نطعم المسكين وكنا نخوض مع الخائضين وكنا نكذب بيوم الدين What has brought you into the fire of hell? They will say We were not of those who worshipped God nor did we feed the poor and we indulge in vain talk with those who indulge therein and we used to deny the day of judgment. The features of a godless and materialistic society could not have been summed up more precisely and comprehensively. These are 1. Failure to perform worship 2. Failure to feed the poor 3. Indulgence in vain pursuits 4. Denial of a day of reckoning or accountability before proceeding further, let us remove a confusion which makes it difficult to truly diagnose the state of a society. Even in societies where the belief in God seems to be strong and prominent, and the belief in the hereafter is an integral part of their faith, such evils flourish as cannot be logically conceived to exist among believers of God and life after death with full accountability. The question then arises, as to why such societies believe in a God and the hereafter, yet in all other characteristics remain materialistic through and through. The answer to this question is not difficult to find when we examine in depth the, na the nature of the beliefs. In fact, just a remote theosophical belief in a God cannot influence the social behavior of such believers. This is because such beliefs are only academic in nature and it's never translated into responsible, godly behavior. How can genuine belief in God cohabit with lies, falsehood, extreme selfishness, usurpation of the rights of the others, corruption and cruelty? The concept of God in such societies is only cosmetic, too unreal and airy-fairy to play an active role in the afterlife and accountability is reduced only to a pale shadow of a distant possibility. At every moment of choice, immediate interests always dominate and displace any consideration for the life to come. When we speak of materialistic societies, we do not only mean societies which have uprightly rebelled against the ideas of God and life after death. Most theistic and atheistic societies may appear to be diametrically opposed in their ideologies, yet, for all practical purposes, they have very close similarities. Accountability The Holy Quran, on the other hand, declares, 
لله ما في السماوات وما في الأرض وإن تبدوا ما في أنفسكم أو تخفوه يحاسبكم به الله فيغفر لمن يشاء ويعذب من يشاء والله على كل شيء قدير Everything which you find in the heavens and in the earth belongs to God. He is the master. He has the right to shape your destinies and your social behavior. Whether you conceal what is in your hearts or declare it, he would bring you to book and question you regarding your evil thoughts and evil doings. Then will he forgive whomsoever he considers fit to be forgiven and punish whomsoever he considers fit to be punished. And Allah has the power to do all that he wills. The Holy Quran adds, وَلَا تَقْفُ مَا لَيْسَ لَكَ بِهِ عِلْمٌ إِنَّ السَّمْعَ وَالْبَصَرَ وَالْفُؤَادَ كُلُّ أُولَائِكَ كَانَ عَنْهُ مَسْؤُولًا Follow not that of which thou hast no knowledge. Verily, the ear, and the eye, and the heart, all these shall be called to account. Here, by heart, the Holy Quran means the ultimate life force which is behind every human act. Fuad in the Holy Quran means that ultimate decisive will in man which operates the brain as one operates computers. So that ultimate will is the source of all evil and good and it is that will in the form of a new life after death which in addition to the ear and the eyes shall be held answerable. Let us now study the features of godless societies at a closer range. It so happens that atheism and disbelief in the hereafter lie vague and undetected in a semi-conscious state. In beliefs, apparently one may continue to subscribe to the existence of God and the belief in the hereafter. But for all practical purposes, they seem to be non-existent. Sometimes, it takes a crisis to bring these concealed realities to one's conscious mind. Sometimes, even generations can live without truly realizing the fickleness and fragility of their beliefs. It is at such times that atheism and disbelief in the hereafter, which had lain undetected and unchallenged, begin to surface. In society already given to indiscriminate and incontinent pursuit of pleasure, the conscious rejection of God and the hereafter brings the process of moral decay and erosion of values to a rapid head. The direction of civilization, regardless of which region of the world or which era of human history, is always from the coarse to the refined. Human basic psychological urges, which work as underlying motive forces of human behavior, remain unchangeable. What changes is the response to those changes? For instance, once hunger can be satiated by eating meat or vegetables, the quality and freshness of meat and vegetable varies. One can have them cooked and seasoned in so many ways or take them raw if one so prefers. As society develops, responses to the fun fundamental urges begin to evolve and become more and more refined and sophisticated. This process goes on and on, though its pace may be determined to a large extent by economic and political factors of the people. But the vanguard of a society always moves on, sometimes slowly, sometimes at a faster pace. When a civilization ripens or matures, over sophistication and some other detrimental phenomenon, 
begin to reverse the tide of this progressive trend. In decadent societies, the direction is reversed from the refined to the coarse. This is a subject of wide application and requires detailed study. I regret that it is beyond the scope of today's address, but I would like to elaborate a few points. When societies begin to de degenerate or become top-heavy and lopsided with over-sophistication, they begin to topple down and return to the same crude animal answer to their edges. This may not be visible in every social and cultural activity, but it is almost always pronounced in human relation and style in the pursuit of pleasure. A brief study of man in his responses to sex will demonstrate the case in point. Around the basic instinct to reproduce through sexual regeneration, pleasures are associated by nature in the entire animal kingdom. What we find different in human society is a gradual departure from the mere satiation of crude desires to a gradually more refined attitude to the fulfillment of animal urges. Nature never desired sex as an ultimate object. The ultimate object has always been reproduction and propagation of species. Sex was only secondary to it. When societies become decadent, the role is almost reversed. The gradual development of the institution of marriage, the rights associated with this institution, and the taboos regarding the interplay of male and female sexes, may be considered by a sociologist to be a phenomenon resulting from a natural growth of society and unrelated to religion. But whether the growth is directed from on high or a random phenomenon moving forward by itself, there is no denying the fact that gradually the responses to satisfy the fundamental urge become more and more sophisticated and involved. Growing promiscuousness in male and female relationships is again symptomatic of the same malady. It is not just a per permissive liberal attitude towards sexual relationships, but there is indeed much more that goes with it to change the entire atmosphere of this extremely important sphere of human interest and activity. Debates about the legitimacy of illicitness of such relationships are looked down upon as a thing of the past. Of course, there are many staunch religious-minded groups which go on discussing this issue. But during their discussions on the media, one cannot fail to observe that such old-fashioned, rigidly religious-minded people are being reduced to a minority of insignificance. It is becoming much more fashionable in the West to consider sex as a natural urge which should be responded to without any inhibitions. A traditional coyness, a traditional coyness associated with talk amongst women is becoming a thing of the past. Nakedness, exposure, display, unabashed discussion and confession are considered only as public expressions of truth. Nobody seems to take the trouble to extend the same arguments to other natural human edges. Is it not a natural animal edge, common to humans as well, to possess that which one likes? Is it not, again, a natural animal urge to feel angered and agitated and to release these emotions in the wildest possible terms, a weaker dog would be impelled by the same edges as the stronger.
But whereas the stronger would bite, the weaker one would bark at the least. What are these taboos in society? What are those taboos in society? The codes of civil behavior, the concept of decency, etc. Which keep interfering with the free expression of natural urges. Why must sex be the only motive force which should be given a free license to express itself without regard to tradition, norms, decency, appropriateness, and the question of belonging or otherwise? What we observe today is a phenomenon which has to be carefully discerned and analyzed. What we call permissiveness in sexual relationship is being expressed in the form of a growing tendency to steal and rob in other areas of human activity and to injure and hurt others. The uninhibited pursuit of pleasure with perverted tastes emanates from the same decadent tendencies which are demolishing the noblest edifices of civilization and returning mode of life back to square one. Not only do we observe a prolific growth of rights, taboos and do's and don'ts imposed upon individuals by societies, but also we find an indulgence in romance and courtship playing a vital role in this area. Poetry, literature, art, music, styles, fashions, displays, love of fragrance, and growth of decent and cultivated behavior are all byproducts, if not entirely, at least to a degree, of the same fundamental urge in the form of social responses. A time may come when a future generation begins to rebel against and reject the achievements of society attained after thousands of years of progress. This rebellion may not take the form of a total rejection of everything, yet the discerning eye cannot fail to notice the movement in this direction. Hippieism, Bohemianism, Sadism, growing violence associated with sex and the return of sexual behavior to its original, beastly, crude aspects are but a few examples of the reversal of trends mentioned above. One only has to venture out to watch a group of rebellious, unkempt youths living in their communes to realize what is happening to the younger generation. Filth and stench seems to have replaced cleanliness and fragrance. Immaculate dress have given way to shabby, couldn't care less clothes. Gone are the days when a munich speck on one's attire could cause immense embarrassment. Worn out jeans, especially torn to reveal the flesh underneath, are becoming far more valuable than a new pair of trousers. Of course, not all of society shows such extreme signs of dissatisfaction with the past or traditional heritage. But when a disease sets in, the entire body, the entire body may not always be ulcerated. A few ulcers appear here and there, and these reveal the underlying disease state or malady. Irresponsibility begins to grow. Indiscipline and disorderliness begin to be the order of the day. More signs of decadence begin to surface in different areas of human interests. The pursuit of pleasure in every sphere of life requires change and novelty to provide a greater kick. Things which used to satisfy in the past no longer do now. Smoking and traditional intoxicants fail to provide the kick. 
which the progressively restless society requires. Drugs of all sorts begin to appear and no measure whatsoever taken to suppress the menacing trend of drug addiction is enough. Yet, the drug addict requires a still greater kick, so a stronger, more addictive and lethal drug like crack is invented. In the area of music, the same trends have gradually set in during the last few decades of this century. A study of the development of music over recent centuries as against the rapid and decibel eruptive changes witnessed during the last few decades of this century provides interesting and intriguing data for comparison. I do not personally know much of music and should be pardoned if some of my remarks are considered alien to the realities of the world of music. My intuition would make me believe, however, that the progressive development of music during the last few centuries in the West has been in the direction of the sublime, exquisite, and noble. Such music brought peace to the mind and heart simultaneously. The best music was that which identified and submerged completely with the latent music of human mind and soul. Harmony and peace were the ultimate goals which the evolution of music pursued. Of course, there were passages in the works of great composers and artists which created images of volcanic eruptions, typhoons, thunderbolts, and a sense of commotion which tallied with the external phenomenon of nature. Its memories were stored and preserved indelibly in the memorizing mechanism of life. At times, its climax reached such crescendos as if the whole universe was about to burst apart. Yet, the audience sat motionless, drowning itself in the deluge of music without moving a muscle or batting an eyelid, until suddenly pin-drop silence fell. Only then would the hall explode into tremendous applause. Even the most powerful music, highly charged with emotion, would not turn the listener into a violent, eruptive and rebellious being. The message of all music was sublime, peaceful and harmonious. The best in man was brought out and awakened. The worst was banished. Alas, during the last few decades, we observe a different phenomenon altogether. The ears of the contemporary generation are deafened with music capable of arousing coarse and rudimentary passions of life. A disturbed and restless generation finds itself only attuned to such music as makes them go mad. The more violent the music, the more popular it would be. Again, I should be excused for any observation born out of my ignorance of the world of classical and popular music. But of one thing I am sure, and it is that violence, rebellion, madness, and vandalism, etc., are fast corrupting the noble human faculties. Professor Bloom, who must be credited with some knowledge of Western music, seems to agree with me in his book, The Closing of the American Minds, when he laments the erosion of the sensibilities of, of adolescents of the contemporary age who, in his words, are brutalized by constant exposure to rock music, which he dismisses as junk food for the soul. There are many visible palpable signs of this diseased state of society, which are gradually making the life of man 
more disturbed and lacking in contentment, dissatisfaction, peace and security. Man may deny the existence of God as he pleases, but he cannot deny the existence of an all-powerful nature which knows well how to punish crimes committed against it. In all materialistic societies, the major factors responsible for progressive growth and proliferation of evil are about the same. Some discussion has already preceded, so we shall briefly enumerate the responsible factors to serve as reminders. These factors are 1. Growing atheism 2. An enfeebling of the belief in a real powerful God who takes life interest in human affairs and the way human beings shape their conduct. 3. A progressive weakness in their beliefs in traditional and ethical values. And 4. A growing tendency to forget the end and to treat the means as ends in themselves. This is a situation which prevails in all the so-called civilized or advanced societies of the world. Slowly, as moral and ethical values continue to wither, they begin to influence the legislative and executive process of governments. When there is no God-made law to be accepted, and absolute ethical values and noble traditions are challenged and defied daily, any legislation to discipline moral behavior also becomes lax and more accommodating. The very platform on which laws pertaining to moral behavior are founded begins to slip away. A comparative study of legislation in this area over the last few centuries would effectively prove the case in point. Gone are the days of Oscar Wilde when homosexuality was considered a crime by a society which would most mercilessly punish it. Gone are the days of chastity not being just a virtue but a social trust which, if violated, would be brought to account. This softening on crime is no longer seen as alarming. That is the problem. The definition of crime itself is undergoing fundamental change. That which was considered a crime yesterday is no longer so. That which was concealed for fear of shame or reprimand is disclosed and displayed with great pride. If this philosophy was sound and worthy of survival, then all the religious, ethical and moral philosophies may be considered obsolete and unwanted. They no longer serve any purpose in the contemporary age. The driving force in nature, common to both the animate and inanimate world, is the universal and all-powerful principle of crime and punishment and goodness and reward. In the inanimate world, this principle can be discerned to be operational in the unconscious operation of the laws of nature. In the animate world, evolution, prior to the creation of man, was driven by the same principle which acquired a semi-conscious or semi-dormant state. As one travels through the lowest ranks of evolutionary stages up to man, the journey seems to be from the less conscious to the more conscious. In evolutionary terms, the principle of crime and punishment and goodness and reward is described as survival of the fittest. Throughout the whole evolutionary process, this remains the driving and motive force which constantly pushes evolution forward and upward. It is inconceivable that when this process had reached its consummation in man, the best of creation, and consciousness 
had acquired horizons beyond the wildest fancies of subhuman fancies. Suddenly, the principle of crime and punishment should be lifted and rendered obsolete. If there is a higher goal for creation, there has to be some accountability without which the whole exercise would be rendered meaningless. It is extremely surprising that sometimes the greatest of intellectuals and visionaries fail to see an obvious and self-evident truth like this. Such is the case of Albert Einstein, the architect of the theory of relativity, who observes, I cannot imagine a God who rewards and punishes the object of his own creation, whose purposes are modeled after our own, a God, in short, who is but a reflection of human frailty. If there is a God, the Lord Creator whose existence Albert Einstein could not deny, and if all the scientific laws operating in his creation are devised, created and governed by the same creative supreme being, it is inconceivable for him to abandon the ultimate object of his creation by lifting the principle of crime and punishment and leaving man to wander in the chaos of undisciplined and unaccountable behavior. As far as the second part of his observation is concerned, it is obvious that he failed to understand not only the role of crime and punishment in the progressive development of creation, but also completely misunderstood the meaning of man having been created in the image of God. Man is created in the image of God not as a perfect model of God on earth. Were that so, the world would become more than a heaven on earth and all human beings would be exactly alike. It is debatable, of course, whether such a place would be worthy of being called heaven or boredom, where there is no variety, change or difference between order, color and hue. Instead, a calm, multitudinous sea of colorless identical drops. That is not the meaning and purpose of man having been created in the image of God. This phrase is rich in profound wisdom and speaks of the potential with which man has been endowed. It speaks of the ultimate noble goal which man must constantly endeavor to achieve. That goal is to be as perfect as man can possibly be by acquiring godly attributes and emerging more like God. It is not a fixed goal which one can reach and then, basking in the glory of having become the image of God, stay put there. As God is unlimited or limitless in his attributes, so every journey to him remains limitless. The perfection in this context only means moving towards perfection from a lower order of things to a higher order of things. God is the most perfect, the most just, the most gracious, ever merciful, all-seeing, all-knowing, the Lord Creator and Master of the Day of Judgment. All praise belongs to God. The Holy Quran says, هو الله الخالق البارئ المصور له الأسماء الحسنى يسبح له ما في السماوات والأرض وهو العزيز الحكيم الله is he 
beside whom there is no God, nor of the unseen and the seen. He is the most gracious, the ever merciful. Allah is He, beside whom there is no God, the sovereign, the most holy, the source of peace, the bestower of security, the protector, the mighty, the subduer, the exalted. Holy is Allah, far above that which they associate with Him. He is Allah, the creator, the maker, the fashioner. His are the most perfect names. All that is in the heavens and the earth glorifies him, and he is the mighty, the wise. It is such a God who created this universe. He does not suffer from human frailties. The Holy Quran repeatedly asks the believers to reflect on his signs. For instance, تَبَارَكَ الَّذِي بِيَدِهِ الْمُنْكُ وَهُوَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٌ الذي خلق الموت والحياة ليبلوكم أيكم أحسن عملا وهو العزيز الغفور الذي خلق سبع سماوات طباقا ما ترى في خلق الرحمن من تفاوت فارجع البصر هل ترى من فطور ثم رجع البصر كرتين ينقلب إليك البصر خاسئا وهو حسير Blessed is he in whose hand is the kingdom and he has the power to do all that he wills. Who has created death and life that he might try you, which of you is best in conduct? And he is the mighty, the most forgiving. Who has created the seven heavens in order, one above the other? Thou cannot discover a flaw in the creation of the gracious one. Then look again. Seest thou any, seest thou any disparity? Look again, and yet again. Thy sight will return to thee frustrated and fatigued. Having understood the significance of the words, the image of God, when one looks back at the entire forces of the creation of the universe, from the time of the Big Bang to the present day, the entire journey of creation from the unconscious to the conscious, in fact, is a journey to become the image of God and to develop in man godly attributes. I stop at page 79. I start at page 79. Islamic Social Climate Islam, on the other hand, designs to create a climate 
which is as different from the one described above, as spring is from autumn. Within the Islamic concept of society, Islam moderates, disciplines, and trims natural desires which, if left uncontrolled, would play havoc with the gamut of human emotions. It discourages or prohibits the fulfillment of desires which can, in the final analysis, result in more misery than pleasure in the society. At the same time, Islam cultivates new tastes and develops the ability to derive pleasure and satisfaction from acts which may appear colorless, insipid, and tasteless to the uncultured and untrained. Tastes are modified and coarse sensual cravings are trained and refined and turned into aspirations for the sublime. But the question is how can we determine that the prevalent and contemporary social trends are unhealthy for society? To me, the answer seems to be a simple one. The health of a society should be judged by the same symptoms of the health as the health of an individual. When someone is in pain, restless, abnormal, or subnormal in his reactions, or when anxiety seems to displace one's content and peace of heart and mind, it does not require an exceptionally wise man or highly proficient physician to adjudge or diagnose such an unhealthy person as being seriously ill. All these symptoms are manifest in contemporary society. How true were the words of Jesus when he said, By their fruits you will recognize them. Never do people gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles, do they? Likewise, every good tree bears fine fruit, but every rotten tree produces worthless fruit. A good tree cannot bear worthless fruit, neither can a rotten tree produce fine fruit. People are crying themselves hoarse against the bitterness of the fruit today, but somehow they do not want to replace the tree with a better one. They fail to see that it is not the tree which is at fault, nor the fruit it bears. The Islamic society order stands for the uprooting of the evil tree and the planting of a, healthy, a healthier one instead. According to the Holy Quran, when Adam salam, was forbidden to eat the fruit of the tree, this is precisely what was meant. Alam tara kayfa daraballahu mathalan kalimatan tayyibatan kashajaratin tayyibatin asluha thabitun wa faruha fissamai tu'ti ukulaha kulla hinin biizni rabbiha wa yadribullahu alamthala linnasi la'allahum yatadhakkarun Do thou not see how Allah sets forth the similitude of a good word? It is like a good tree whose root is firm and whose branches reach into heaven. It brings forth its fruits at all times by the command of its Lord, and Allah sets forth similitudes for men that they may reflect. Here, the tree is just a symbol. The Quran clearly speaks of an unhealthy philosophy as against a healthy one in the same symbolic language. The evil tree and the condition of the disbeliever are described in the next two verses. وَمَثَلُ كَلِمَةٍ خَبِيثَةٍ كَشَجَرَةٍ خَبِيثَةٍ اجْتُثَّتْ مِنْ فَوْقِ الْأَرْضِ مَا لَهَا مِنْ قَرَارٍ يُثَبِّتُ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا بِالْقَوْلِ الثَّابِتِ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ وَيُضِلُّ اللَّهُ الظَّالِمِينَ وَيَفْعَلُ اللَّهُ مَا يَشَاءُ And the case of an evil word is like that of an evil tree, which is uprooted from above the earth and has no stability. Allah strengthens the believers with the word that is firmly established, 
both in the present life and in the hereafter. And Allah lets the wrongdoers go astray, and Allah does what He wills. The word is used in this context in the connotation of a philosophy, system, and order, just as the same word is also used in its much wider connotation in the opening verse of John. In the beginning, the word was, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Evil philosophies and orders are bound to meet the fate of an evil tree which fails to pass the test of survival of the fittest and is ultimately uprooted and tossed from place to place by the raging tempest. On the other hand, the example of a healthy system and order of things is like that of a healthy tree which is firmly rooted in this earth but whose lofty stems and twigs reach out into a pure heavenly atmosphere. It is nourished by heavenly light and it bears good wholesome fruit in every season. The Holy Quran describes the believers as having a firm belief in God. Their entire ethical and moral structure is securely and firmly founded in this belief. This gives a quality of absoluteness to the Islamic concept of morality and ethics, which does not permit discrimination on any known plane of social, religious, or racial divisions. The guiding principle applicable to all human activity is expressed in the following verse of the Holy Quran. وَلِلَّهِ غَيْبُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَإِلَيْهِ يُرُجَعُ الْأَمْرُ كُلُّهُ فَعْبُدُهُ وَتَوَكَّلْ عَلَيْهِ وَمَا رَبُّكَ بِغَافِلٍ عَمَّا تَعْمَلُونَ To Allah belong the hidden things of the heavens and the earth, and to Him shall the whole affair be referred. So worship Him, and put thy faith in Him alone, and thy Lord is not unmindful of what you do. Likewise, أَلَا لَهُ الْخَلْقُ وَالْأَمْرُ تَبَارَكَ اللَّهُ رَبُّ الْعَالَمِينَ Verily, His is the creation and the command. Blessed is Allah, the Lord of the worlds. All Islamic philosophies start and end with the absolute authority of God, the Lord Creator of the universe. Fundamentals of an Islamic society The Quranic verse, which is most central to this issue, is as follows. إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُ بِالْعَدْلِ وَالْإِحْسَانِ وَإِيْتَاءِ ذِي الْقُرْبَى وَيَنْهَى عَنِ الْفَحْشَاءِ وَالْمُنْكَرِ وَالْبَغْيِ يَعِذُكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَذَكَّرُونَ Verily, God enjoins justice, and more than justice, to give people more than their dues, and to serve humanity with beneficent treatment as if they belong to you, like your near kith and kin. And God prohibits the display of evil, as observed nowadays so often on television, radio, and streets of many societies of the world and forbids all that is considered wrong, not by religions, but by human conscience, and everything that leads to rebellion and chaos. God admonishes you. May you benefit from this admonishment. The first part of this verse is applicable more to the economic sphere than the social order. It paints a clear image of the Islamic concept of justice, fair play, and benevolence in treating the less fortunate sections of society. The second part applies to the social image of a society, which Islam is committed to create. In this part, God forbids all that is considered wrong by universal standards like indecent behavior, affront, insult, and indeed all social evils which, without reference to any religious teachings, 
are condemned by the general consensus of human society at large. Similarly, Islam strictly rejects and condemns every tendency, behavior, and attitude which may lead to disorder or rebellion and violence. The word rebellion should be understood in the connotation of any unjustified attempt to overthrow and establish an established order. But that is not all. Whenever the Arabic word baghi is used in the Holy Quran, it is applicable not only to an armed or political uprising, but also to a rebellion in society against its noble traditions, ethical standards, religious teachings, and moral value. In the end, a society is clearly warned that this admonition is for man's own benefit. This completes the picture of the essential features of an Islamic social order. It may be added that the first part of this verse is also deeply intertwined with the Islamic social teachings. A society which is insensitive to the sufferings of other human beings and is not always inclined to serve the cause of humanity cannot be described as an Islamic society howsoever it may adhere to other aspects of Islamic social teachings. Let us now turn to some other features of Islamic society envisaged in the Holy Quran. Islam emphasizes integrity, loyalty, faithfulness, and promotes all such measures as would create peace of mind and heart. It takes preventive measures against the society becoming lopsided in its pursuit of pleasure. Hence, any behavior whatsoever and howsoever innocent as it may appear in the beginning, which is likely to lead towards unrestrained permissiveness in the society, is discouraged. The damage done to society is immense and manifold. Such societies are bound to end up in the state of promiscuousness with promiscuousness we find in the world today. In such societies, the unrestricted tendency to pursue pleasure leads, among other things, to the erosion and ultimate destruction of family ties. Contrary to this, Islam cherishes and zealously guards all fatherly, motherly, brotherly, sisterly, and filial relationships. Islam wants to promote friendships which are more platonic than sensual. Chastity Beginning with a plan for women in society, it is essential, according to Islam, to take all such measures to promote chastity, fidelity, and restraint, and clean living. An emphasis on chaste living, well, ins well insulated against the dangers of a short-circuiting of sexual urges, is an important feature of Islamic society. This aspect of Islamic social teachings is extremely important for the protection and survival of the family system. This is the dire need of the hour. Islam seeks to widen the unit of family rather than to squeeze it to a bare minimum, a family in which the human capacity to love and the desire to be loved is satiated not by the mere fulfilling of sexual urges, but by more sophisticated and refined friendship and association such as naturally prevails between close and distant blood relations. It is surprising how the wise men of modern society fail to notice human weakness once sex-related pleasures are permitted to play an unbridled role in the society. Indeed, they flourish at the expense of other refined values and draw their blood like parasites. Sigmund Freud, no doubt, was the product of such a society. He began to analyze every human motivation through the colored eyeglass of sex. 
To him, the most pious child-mother relationship was sex-related. Even the father-daughter relationship had no sanctity but was sex-oriented or sex-generated. Almost everything that man did, irrespective of him being aware of it or not, was for the deeply subconscious sex urges. I wonder if in the time of fruit, society had achieved the degree of promiscuity which prevails today, but it was enough to give birth to a completely sex-dominated understanding of the human psyche. But if fruit was right, it is even more essential not to permit society to play incautiously with such dangerous forces as may cause a short-circuiting. Alas, the present climate of modern societies would not even attempt to understand the nature and features of the Islamic social climate, whether man agrees or does not agree with the concept of God playing a role in human affairs and shaping man's destiny, and whether man is willing to modulate his social behavior in accordance with the revealed word of God or not. One thing is most certain, man can neither defeat the act of God, that is nature, nor the word of God, that is the revealed truth. Both the act and word must be found in harmony with each other to be considered valid. Any social behavior which man adopts in direct contradiction of the word of God is bound to end in disaster. Man cannot have all unlimited and unrestricted pleasure however he may desire it. All he can do is to swap certain values and options. A society which seeks to escape responsibility or the realities of life with the help of opiates and drugs, a society which is obsessed by sex, vain incitement and exhilaration, a society where the tastes are willfully perverted to suit an artificially created market for new instruments and toys of pleasure which are fit only to create excitement and thirst for more, a market masterminded by powerful syndicates whose sole purpose is to amass wealth. Such a society chooses all this at the cost of nobler human values, peace of mind, and security in a society as a whole. You cannot possess both simultaneously. You cannot have your cake and eat it. The emphasis of Islam is exactly the opposite. Pleasure indeed, but not at the cost of peace of mind and the security of society as a whole. All such tendencies which, if unchecked, are likely to lead to a gradual disintegration of family life and promote selfishness, irresponsibility, vulgarity, crime, and violence are strongly discouraged. The climate created by the two philosophies are poles apart. It astounds me how some people believe that by raising ambitions or giving free rein to desires in a society, they can ever hopefully promise peace of mind. No society in the world however economically sound it may be, can support unlimited and unbridled generation of lustful desires. Even in the richest societies of the world, there are always haves and have-nots. Those who are deprived of the most basic amenities of life make a much larger section of the society than the comparatively smaller number of those who can afford to pay for what they like. Even that is questionable because it seems that with the growth of wealth, Desires also rise, and perhaps even the richest cannot fully realize all their dreams. But the case of the comparatively poorer majority is worse. They cannot even have access to the basic amenities of life, not to speak of the luxuries the affluent society can afford. 
It is the poor with whose emotions and desires modern media plays havoc. Day in, day out, it brings to their squalid dwellings rosy images of a glorious lifestyle with palatial homes, fabulous gardens, fleets of luxury cars, helicopters, private planes, and an army of attendants. The lifestyles of Hollywood and Beverly Hills with rivalries, dances, merry-making parties, or the life in casinos, gambling houses, or all that soap operas can conjure up are temptations to which the poorest have access. Yet few, even amongst the richest, can ever dream of achieving this heaven on earth. Such people would most certainly lose interest in their poor core surroundings. The home and health would no longer have any appeal to them. Lack of culture and civilization stand juxtaposed to this rosy vision. And in this context, the realities of their own life begin to lose all meaning. If this were the ultimate achievement of a society fed on vain pleasures and unreal visions, warmth and the peace of home and, and health all become increasingly illusionary, then there would be nothing left for them to live for in the future. It would take more than one measure to restore the traditional family unit so, so essential to bind its members together with mutual trust, reliance, and warmth generating peace. But perhaps we are already too late to talk of this. Islam has a clear message. It has a well-defined plan to protect, guard, and preserve a universal family system or to rebuild it wherever it has been totally demolished. According to Islam, Discipline must be inculcated through conviction and understanding in every sphere of, so of social activity and lost balances must be restored. Segregation of sexes People in the West grossly misunderstand the Islamic social system of Parda seen as the segregation between the two sexes. This misunderstanding partly arises out of a misapplication of the true teachings of Islam in many parts of the Muslim world and the negative role of the Western media. It has become a rule with Western media to associate the ugliness of behavior wherever it occurs with Islam, but to refrain from associating Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, or Hindu behavior to their respective religions. The Islamic injunction of segregation is certainly not born out of a narrow-minded attitude of the past dark ages. In fact, the question of promiscuousness or otherwise in a society has no relationship whatsoever to the advancement or backwardness of time. Societies throughout history have either ridden along the crest or descended to the, uh, to the troughs of social or religious waves. Societies throughout history have either ridden along the crest or descended to the throes of social or religious waves. The concept of women's lib is not at all a progressive trend of human society. There is strong evidence that, both in the remote past as well as in the closer period of human history, women as a class have held a very powerful and dominant position in human society in different parts of the world. Free and inhibited intercourse between the male and female sections of a society is nothing new and novel. Civilizations came and went. Behavior patterns kept oscillating between one style and another. The myriads of social tendencies have been falling and settling down into different patterns 
only to go through new experimentation and formation at each twist of the kaleidoscope. Yet, no trend has ever been fixed by which we could conclude with certainty that, throughout history, society traveled from segregation to promiscuity or from confinement to comparative emancipation and liberation of women. I stop at page 90. I start at page 90. The dawn of a new age in women's rights. It is only fitting here to focus our attention to that dark period of time in the history of Arabia when Islam came to be born, through divine instructions as we Muslims believe, or as the personal teachings of Muhammad وسلم, as the non-Muslims would have it. Whatever the view of some theologians, Islamic teachings regarding the segregation of sexes did not represent Arab behavior at all. The society in Arabia at that time was extremely paradoxical in its attitude towards women. On the one hand, sexual permissiveness, the free mixing of men and women and mad orgies of wine, women and song were the highlights of Arab society. On the other hand, the birth of a girl was considered to be a matter of disgrace and extreme shame. Some proud Arabs are even reported to have buried their newborn daughters with their own hands to escape this ignominy. Women were treated as chattels and were deprived the right to oppose their husbands, fathers, or other male members of the society. However, there were exceptions to the, to the rule. Occasionally, a woman of outstanding leadership quality would play a significant role in the affairs of the tribe. Islam changed all that, not as a natural progressive outcome of social tensions, but as an arbiter of values. A social system was dictated from on high, which was unrelated to the normal forces which shaped a society. Through the teachings of segregation, sexual anarchy was brought to a sudden halt. Order between male and female relationship was established on the basis of deep moral principles. The status of women was simultaneously raised to such high standards that they could no longer be treated as helpless commodities. They were given equal share in the affairs of life, whereas previously they were distributed as chattels of inheritance. Now they could inherit not only the estates of their fathers but also of their husbands, children and, and next of kin. They could now stand up to their husbands and talk back to them. They could reason with them and, of course, have the full right to disagree. They could not only be divorced but they had equal rights to divorce their husbands if they so pleased. As mothers, they were treated with such profound respect in Islam as is hard to find in similar example as is hard to find a similar example in other societies of the world. It was the Holy Father وسلم, of Islam who was to stand for the rights of women by declaring under divine instructions that paradise lies under the feet of your mothers. He was not only referring to a promise to be fulfilled in life after death but to the social paradise which was promised to a people who showed profound respect and reverence to their mothers and were dedicated to please them and provide every possible comfort for them. The teaching of segregation should be understood in this context. It was not the outcome of any male superiority, 
but were designed to establish the sanctity of the home, to create greater trust between man and wife, bring temperance to basic human urges, and to harness the discipline and to harness and discipline them so that instead of being released as powerful demons in the society, they play a constructive role, just as harnessed forces play a role in nature. Segregation is grossly misunderstood when it is conceived as an imposition of restriction on female members of a Muslim society from fully participating in all spheres of human activities. This is not true. The Islamic concept of segregation is only to be understood in the context of measures to protect the sanctity of female chastity and the honor of women in society, so that the dangers of violating these objectives are minimized. Free mixing of both sexes and clandestine affairs between men and women are strongly discouraged. Men and women are both advised to abstain not only from casting covetous eyes at each other, but to abstain from such visual or physical contacts as may lead to uncontrollable temptations. Women are expected to cover themselves decently and are advised not to behave in a manner as to attract untoward attention from wayward men. The use of cosmetics and ornaments are not forbidden, but they should not be worn when appearing in public to attract attention. We fully understand that, in the present mood of societies all over the world, this teaching appears to be rather harsh, restrictive, and colorless. However, a deeper study of the entire Islamic social system may lead one to believe this judgment to be hasty and superficial. This teaching should, therefore, be understood as an integral part of the entire Islamic social climate. The role which women play in the Islamic social system is certainly not of concubines in harems, nor of a society imprisoned in the four walls of their homes, barred from progress and deprived of the four walls of the light of knowledge. This ugly picture of Islamic social system is only painted by internal or external enemies of Islam or by scholars who grossly misunderstand the Islamic way of life. The only thing which Islam would not endorse would be to turn women into playthings, to be exploited or left at the mercy of male vulgarity. Islam does not promote such attitudes towards women. Merely because society as a whole has become more and more demanding, it is sheer cruelty to women if it necessitates that they must always remain conscious of their looks appearances, and the way they are dressed and made up. Feminine charms are always on display. Even selling an article of food or daily needs, such as a washing powder, requires advertisements with female models. Artificial, stylish, and expensive ways of life are presented as essential for a woman to realize her dreams. Such a society cannot remain balanced, sober, and healthy for long. According to Islam, Women must be emancipated from exploitation and playing a role of being mere instruments of pleasure. They must have more time to themselves to discharge their responsibilities towards their homes and the future generation of mankind. Equal Rights for Women You hear so much about women's lip and women's rights, etc. Islam speaks of a comprehensive fundamental principle which covers all situations. وَلَهُنَّ مِثْلُ الَّذِي عَلَيْهِنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَلِلْرِجَالِ عَلَيْهِنَّ دَرَجَةِ وَاللَّهُ عَزِيزٌ حَكِيمٌ And they, the women, have rights similar 
and equal to those of men over them in equity. That is, for women, there are exactly equal rights as for men, as men have rights upon women. There is thus total equality, and there is no difference whatsoever between the fundamental human rights of women and men. But men have a degree of advantage over them, and Allah is mighty and wise. In another part of the verse of the Holy Quran, it is stated, الرجال قوامون على النساء بما فضل الله بعضهم على بعض وبما أنفقوا من أموالهم Men are appointed guardians over women because of that in respect of which Allah has made some of them excel others despite the fact that they spend of their wealth. From the Arabic word قوامون Guardians made responsible to keep their words on the right path. Some medieval-minded ulamas, that's doctors of religion, that use and claim the superiority of men over women, whereas the verse only refers to an advantage that the breadwinner has over his dependents. As such, the guardian is better qualified to exert moral pressure on their words to continue to remain on the right path. As far as basic human rights are concerned, it does not in any way refer to women being unequal or to men's superiority over women. The last part of the verse refers to the above-mentioned advantage and makes it manifestly clear that despite this advantage, the fundamental rights of women are exactly equal to those of men. The Arabic letters wa is to be translated as despite the fact that or while and in this context seems to be the only correct translation. Polygamy In the West, it is quite common to confront a speaker on the subject of Islam with the question, does Islam permit one to marry four times and keep four wives simultaneously? I have had vast experience in addressing many public and select gatherings of intellectuals in the Western world. Seldom do I remember an occasion when this question was not raised. More often than not, a lady would stand up and, of course, with due apologies, innocently inquire whether Islam permits four wives or not. Obviously, everybody knows the answer, but perhaps this is the only aspect of Islam which is so widely known in the West. The other well-known aspect is terrorism, but terrorism has nothing to do with Islam. What sort of equality between man and woman does Islam propound when man is permitted to have four wives and a woman can keep only one husband? This is another form of the same question, which I believe is only used as a ploy to wipe out any good impression about Islam, which may have been built by the speaker. In less formal assemblies, wherein civilities and uh, courtesies are not meticulously adhered to, the same inquiry attains the nature of mockery rather than that of a simple question. Many decades ago, when I was at the SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. A Pakistani student was plagued by an English fellow student with the same question repeatedly and somehow it's never failed to elicit laughter. Once, I remember, he was pushed, perhaps too far, when he suddenly turned back and asked the young Englishman, why do you object to us having four mothers when you have no objection against having four fathers? That's four fathers. A pun of the word four which effectively turned the table against the teaser. Apparently, it was a joke. But when you examine it closely, you will discover more than a joke. 
for it refers to a tragic situation prevailing in societies and offers a befitting case for comparing the attitude of Islam with that of modern society. It is not only a matter for carefree student assemblies, but even the serious-minded, highly respected members of society do not consider it unkind and discourteous to express their disapproval of this injunction with a joke. Not long ago, I received a letter from a senior judge in Frankfurt, whom I personally know to be a very wise, open-minded, courteous, and well-meaning person. He, too, objected to the Islamic provision on limited polygamy and could not suppress the temptations to drive the point home with the help of a crude joke, or at least so I thought. For a fleeting moment, I thought of returning the compliment of his joke with the joke about forefathers, but discretion had the better of me. The brief answer I sent him was to the effect that, first, this provision in Islam of marrying more than once is not a generality. It pertains to certain situations when it becomes necessary for both preserving the health of society and the right of women to have this provision available. The Holy Quran is a logical book. As such, it could not have instructed Muslims to achieve the impossible. God has created men and women in almost equal numbers, with a few pluses and minuses here and there. How could a rational religion like Islam, which repeatedly emphasizes the fact that there is no inconsistency between the act of God and the word of God, preach something so glaringly unnatural and unrealistic, which, if attempted, would create grave situations of imbalance, insurmountable difficulties or frustrations. Imagine a small country of one million men of marriageable age and almost the same number of women. If this provision was taken to be an injunction to be followed to the letter of the law by all, then, at best, 250,000 men will marry one million women and 750,000 men will be left without a wife. Yet, among all the religions of the world, Islam stands out in its emphasis on marriage for every man and woman. The Holy Quran describes the relationship between husband and wife as based on love by nature and providing a source of peace for each other. إذا آتيتموهن أجورهن محصنين غير مسافحين ولا متخذي أخدان. And lawful for you are chaste believing women and chaste women from among those who were given the book before you, when you give them their diaries, contracting valid marriages, not committing fornication, nor taking secret paramours. At the same time, the Holy Quran rejects celibacy, declaring it to be a man-made institution. There is nothing to, go, to be gained from shutting oneself from the rest of the world or from punishing oneself by denying natural desires. The institution of marriage is well established in Islam, but time does not permit me to digress and discuss the various requirements of choosing married partners, the remedies available, and the regulations of divorce, etc. To return to polygamy, it is evident from a study of the Holy Quran that a special situation of a post-war period is being discussed. It is a time when a society is left with a large number of orphans and young widows, and the balance of male and female population is severely disturbed. A similar situation prevailed in Germany after the Second World War. Islam not being the predominant religion of Germany, 
Germany was left with no solution for the problem. The strictly, the strictly monogamous teachings of Christianity could offer no relief. As such, the people of Germany had to suffer the consequence of these imbalances. There were a large number of virgins, dejected spinsters, and young widows for whom it was impossible to get married. Germany was not the only country in the vast continent of Europe to experience such social problem, uh, problems of extremely dangerous and gigantic proportions. It was too great a challenge for the post-war Western society to stem the tide and check the growth of moral degradation and promiscuity, which so naturally and exuberantly thrived on the prevailing imbalances. As can be plainly seen by every unbiased person, the only answer to all such problematic disturbances is to permit men to marry more than once. This is not proposed as a solution to satiate the essential desires, but to meet the genuine requirements of a large number of women. If this very logical and realistic solution is rejected, the only alternative left for society is to rapidly degenerate into a growingly corrupt and permissive society. Alas, that seems to have been the option taken by the West. When you re-examine more realistically and unemotionally the two attitudes, you cannot fail to notice that it is not a question of equality between men and women, but it is simply a choice between responsibility and irresponsibility. Islam only permits marriage more than once with the proviso that men accept the challenge of such difficult and specific situations with full responsibility and met out the full measure of justice and equality to the second, third, or fourth wives as well. وَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا تُخْسِطُوا فِي الْيَتَامَى فَانْكِحُوا مَا طَابَ لَكُمْ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ مَثْنَى وَثُلَاثَ وَرُبَاعَ فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا تَعْدِلُوا فَوَاحِدَةً أَوْ مَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُكُمْ ذَلِكَ أَدْنَى أَلَّا تَعُولُوا Should you apprehend that you will not be able to deal fairly with orphans, then marry of other women as may be agreeable to you, two or three or four. But if you apprehend that you will not deal justly and equally between them, then marry only one, or out of those over whom you have authority. That is the best way for you to ob obviate injustice. The alternative is much uglier. An excessive number of women left without marriage cannot be blamed for attempting to entice and allure, men, allure married men in societies, which are not deeply religious. After all, women are humans too. They have their own emotions and unfulfilled desires. Whilst the psychological traumas of war have enhanced the urge for finding someone to turn to, a life without security of marriage and home, with no life partner, and no hope for children is a life which is empty. The future is as blank and bleak as the present. If such women are not lawfully accommodated and assimilated on the principle of give and take, it can play havoc with the peace of society. They will anyhow illegally share the husbands of married women. The outcome is bound to be preposterous. Loyalties will be split. Married women will begin to lose faith in their husbands. Suspicions will grow. The increasing lack of mutual trust between husband and wife will rock the foundation of many homes. For unfaithful men to live with a sense of crime and guilt will further generate psychological complexes and propensity towards more crime. The noble concept of love and loyalty 
would be among the prime victims. Romance would begin to lose sublimity and descend to commonplace, transient infatuation. Those who talk of equality in every sphere forget that the issue of equality becomes irrelevant in those areas where male and female are built differently. It is only women who can give birth to children. It is they alone who can go through more than nine months of nourishing the seed of human generation for the future. It is women again who can look after their babies, at least during the early period of infancy and childhood, as no man ever could. Because of the long and extremely intimate blood relationships with their offspring, it is the women who have far more powerful psychological bonding with the children as compared to men. If social and economic systems ignore this constitutional difference between man and woman, and the corresponding difference in the role of the two sexes in society, then such a socio-economic system is bound to fail to produce a state of healthy equilibrium. It is mainly because of these constitutional differences between male and female that Islam proposes correspondingly different rules for each. A woman must be kept free, as far as possible, from the responsibility of earning bread for the family. In principle, this responsibility must fall on the shoulders of men. Yet, there is no reason why women should be debarred from playing their part in turning the wheel of economy provided that they find themselves free to do so, i.e., without neglecting their prime responsibility of human reproduction, family care, and concomitant involvement. This is exactly what Islam proposes. Again, women in general have a weaker and comparatively frail constitution. Yet, surprisingly, God has provided them with tougher potentials in their physique. These attributes are mainly due to the presence of an extra half chromosome in their cells, which is responsible for the difference between men and women. This is obviously provided to meet the extra challenge placed on them during pregnancy, childbirth, and the lactation period. All the same, this potential does not make a woman outwardly stronger and tougher. They should not be relegated to hard menial tasks in the produ produ productive economic field merely in the name of equality or any other name. This also requires that they should be treated with more tenderness and kindness. Women should have a lesser load to bear in daily life and should not be forced to bear equal load with men in public activities. It emerges from the above that if the task of the running of a home is a special area of responsibility to be assigned to either man or woman, a woman has obviously much greater merit than a man to perform such responsibilities. Additionally, by nature, women have been assigned the responsibility of looking after the children. Such responsibility can only be partly shared with men. Women must be granted the right to remain at home far more than men if, at the same time, they are absorbed of the responsibility of earning their livelihood. The free time available to them must be employed for their own sake or for the sake of society as a whole. That is how the concept of a woman's place in the home is, the, is in the home is born. There is no question of their being tied to their aprons or imprisoned in the four walls of the home. In no way does Islam infringe the rights of women to go out in their spare time to perform any task or to participate in any healthy pursuit they may choose, providing, again, 
that they do not jeopardize the interests and rights of the future generation of mankind entrusted to them. Among other reasons, this is why over-socializing over or the free mixing of sexes is strongly discouraged by Islam. For Islam to propose that the home is the center of a woman's activities is a very wise and practical solution to most ails of modern times. When women shift their interests away from the home, it has to be at the cost of family life and the neglect of children. To build a family life around the pivotal figure of a mother requires the strengthening of other blood relationships and other restoration of a genuine and the restoration of a genuine affinity with kith and kin. Even though each unit may live separately, this larger family concept is supported and promoted by Islam for many reasons, some of which are as follows. 1. It prevents imbalances from occurring in society. 2. If strong love and affection promoted in the family between brothers and sisters, father and daughters, mother and sons, etc., it would naturally lead to the consolidation and protection of a healthy family unit. This natural bonding is further strengthened by a system of relationships surrounding it in the form of genuine affinity and closeness between aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins, grandchildren, and grandparents. New avenues of seeking warmth and healthy pleasure derived from the consciousness of belonging would open up for this larger family system. 3. The institution of family in such cases is less likely to be fragmented. To share a common roof in the name of a family would no longer be as meaningless as we generally find today. The members of the family would continue to gravitate towards the central beacon of family elders. Most family activities would rotate around this axis. There would be no lone individuals, forgotten, dejected, and relegated to the attic basements or basements of social order, or knocked out of families as useless articles. This exactly is the Islamic concept of homes and families, which is regarded as the most important central unit in society. It is mainly because of this difference in attitudes that today we find in the modern societies of the world a much greater incidence of abandoned, old, or disabled parents considered as burdens on families. I start at page 103. Care of the aged. The responsibility for care of the aged is gradually shifting to the state. Care of the aged represents a heavy burden on the national economy. However much a state is ready to spend, it can never buy them peace and contentment. The most terrible feeling of having been rejected, left out and abandoned, and the most painful realization of a growing void of loneliness within are problems beyond the reach of many to resolve. To consider that a comparatively remote relative would ever be taken care of by the rest of the family has become almost impossible to imagine. In such societies, the need for homes for the aged grows with the passage of time. Yet, it is not always possible for a state to apportion enough money to provide for them even the minimum requirements of a decent life. Physical ailments are much easier to cure or alleviate, but the deep psychological traumas from which a 
a considerable number of elderly members of modern societies are suffering are far more difficult to treat in predominantly Muslim countries. However much values may have deteriorated, this condition, which prevails in the rest of a contemporary society, is unthinkable. It is considered a disgrace and dishonor for the old and aged to be treated with such disrespect and callousness. It is a matter of shame for most Muslims to hand over the, responsibility for the responsibilities of elderly relatives to the state, even if the state is willing to look after them. As such, the role of a Muslim woman amidst her home and family is far from over with the coming of age of her children. She remains deeply bonded to the past as well as to the future. It is her kind and humane concern, and her innate ability to look after those who stand in need of care, which comes to the rescue of the older members of society. They remain as precious and respected as before, and continue to be integral members of the family. The mother plays a major part in looking after them and providing them with her company, not as drudgery and tedium, but as a live natural expression of human kinship. Thus. When she grows older, she can rest assured that such a society will not eject her nor leave her abandoned as a relic of the past. Of course, there are exceptions in every society, and there are old remnants of the past considered as tiresome burdens in some Muslim families living under the influences of the modern trends. But on the whole, Muslim societies are relatively free of homes for abandoned parents unlike other societies. This reminds me of a joke, which may make some people laugh, yet move some others to tears. Once a child observed, with much pain and unease, the ill treatment of his grandfather at the hands of his father. He was gradually transferred from a well-provided and comfortable main bedroom to smaller and less convenient accommodation until it was finally decided to remove the grandfather to the servants' quarters. During an exceptionally severe winter, the grandfather complained of his room being too chilly and his quilt being too thin to make him feel warm and comfortable. The father started looking for an extra blanket from a stock of old, useless rags. Observing this, the child turned to his father and requested, Please do not give all the rags to grandpa. Keep some for me so that I may be able to give them to you when you grow old. In this innocent expression of a child's displeasure is concentrated all the agony of the older generation in modern times. In Muslim societies, it is, a rare, it is as rare to find such exceptions as it is rare and becoming more rare to find exceptions in modern societies amongst relatives in their treatment of the old. Muslims are taught Thy Lord has commanded, Worship none but him, and show kindness to parents. If one of them or both of them attain old age with thee, never say unto them any word depressive, never say unto them any word expressive of disgust, nor reproach them, but always address them with excellent speech, and lower to them the wing of humility out of tenderness, and say, My Lord, have mercy on them, even as they nourished me when I was a little child.
These verses are the most significant of this, of, on this subject. After the unity of God, human beings should, through their attitude of love, affection, and kindness, give priority over all other things to their parents who have reached an old and difficult age. Further, the verses speak of situations when the behavior of one or both of the parents becomes extremely trying and sometimes offensive. In response to that, not even a mild expression of disgust or disapproval should pass one's lips. On the contrary, they should be treated with profound respect. The emphasis on the most excellent relationship between one generation and another guarantees that no generation gaps appear. Such gaps always interrupt the transmission of traditional moral values. Islamic social philosophy, therefore, teaches that no generation should permit a gap to appear between it and the outgoing generation, between it and the outgoing generation, and between it and the future generation. Generation gaps are totally alien to Islam. As stated earlier, the family concept in Islam is not limited to members of a single home. The following verse instructs Muslims to spend not only on their parents, but also their kith and kin, who are mentioned next to parents in order of preference, so that their sense of dignity is not injured and mutual love is promoted. Worship Allah and associate not with him, and show kindness to parents and to kindred, orphans, the needy, and to the neighbor who is a kinsman and the neighbor who is a stranger, and the companion by your side and the wayfarer, and those who are under your authority. Surely, Allah loves not the arrogant and the boastful. The Holy Quran declares that you must be mindful of kindness to your parents. If contemporary society learns the lesson from these injunctions, many problems which it faces today and which represent a blemish on an advanced society would cease to exist. No homes for the aged would be needed except for some aged people who, unfortunately, have no close relative to look after them. But in an Islamic society, the love between parents and children is so repeatedly emphasized that it is impossible for a child to abandon his parents when they grow old for the sake of his or her own pleasure. The Future Generation As for the future generation, the Holy Quran educates society in a unique way. It teaches that to achieve the best of relationships between you and your children, it is highly essential that the relationships between you and your wife should be also be excellent. In this regard, the verse cited earlier, which refers to guardians, Qawwamun, lays a very heavy responsibility on the shoulders of a husband. If his conduct is not conducive to the creation of an ideal atmosphere for a healthy family life, he would have failed in his responsibility to act as a guardian, which is Qawwam. It should be remembered that the best example of Qawwam was the holy founder وسلم, of Islam himself. He was neither harsh nor dictatorial nor in any way offensive or over-assertive in relation to his family. To keep them on the right path was a grave responsibility. 
but the way that he discharged this responsibility serves as an excellent living example for all times to come for all those who want to investigate and comprehend the real meaning of the epithet Hawam. In a famous tradition, Abu Hurairah relates that the Holy Prophet said, The most perfect of believers in the matter of faith is he whose behavior is best, and the best of, uh, of, of you are those who behave best towards their wives. If the parents really want their children to grow up into members of a righteous society, they should remember that mutual relationships between husbands and wives are going to play an important role in the making or breaking of the character of their children. The Holy Quran teaches, those who bear not false witness, and when they pass by anything vain, they pass by with dignity. And those who, when they are reminded of a signs of their Lord, fall not down there at death and blind. And those who say, Our Lord, grant us of our wives and children the, the delight of our eyes and make us a model for the righteous. This prayer possesses a unique charm and is filled with profound wisdom. Both partners in marriage are taught to pray for each other and their children, that God may always provide them deep satisfaction and happiness from one another as well as from their children, and to make their children the forerunners and leaders of a God-fearing, righteous generation. It only takes one to apply this teaching to oneself, to fully realize the significance of this verse. When you desire something vaguely, it may not influence your conduct significantly, but when you pray for it earnestly, then your conduct is bound to be influenced by that prayer. To illustrate this further, there are many amongst us who desire to be truthful, but seldom is this desire translated into practice. Those who earnestly pray to God that he should make them become truthful are influenced far more in their conduct by their prayer than those merely wishing for something big. A genuine effort is made in molding one's behavior for the better. A person would be acting very oddly indeed after such a prayer if he treats his wife and children in a manner inconsistent with their prayer. Turning exclusively to the younger generation and their rights and obligations, the Holy Quran admonishes, Ya O ye who believe, fear Allah and let every soul look to what it sends forth for the morrow. And fear Allah, verily, Allah is well aware of what you do. The Holy Quran warns the parents that if they fail to discharge their responsibility due to their offspring and leave behind a generation which is not beyond censure in its conduct, then the parents will be held answerable before God. Again, the parents are warned not to murder their own children in the sense that the parents become instrumental and responsible in some way in destroying their character. Not only one's own children, 
but that the younger generation as a whole must be treated with love, kindness, and respect is the strong word of advice given by the Holy Prophet of Islam. Akrimu awladakum. Always be kind to your children. One cannot help observing that this is exactly what the contemporary world needs today. There is a serious debate going on in Britain nowadays regarding possible legislation which would make parents vicariously responsible in the eyes of the law for crimes committed by their children and thus as delinquents dealt with by juvenile courts. It is strongly felt that had the parents discharged their responsibility to discipline their children more seriously, there would be much less crime seen in the streets of Great Britain. But the question is how far punitive and restrictive measures can improve the quality of society when there is no background of religious ethics at work in every sphere of life. Wistful, vain pursuits discouraged. The Holy Quran goes on developing this subject of society by declaring, And who shun all that which is vain? Those who are wise shun the waste of their energies in useless and meaningless pursuits. To find time for light entertainment is neither bad nor prohibited in Islam. But if the entertainment begins to exert a negative influence on society as a whole, it is certainly not recommended. Moreover, if instead of providing a genuine outlet for the stresses of life, entertainment becomes an objective itself in itself, it would be condemned as luck, vain and wasteful, in the Quranic terminology. When entertainment begins to interfere in the daily pursuits of life, or takes a toll upon one's time, which could be better spent otherwise, it too would be classified as vain, according to the Arabic word lag. Television has done immense good for society, but children sit all day long with their eyes glued to the box. After returning from work, men continue to sit before the screen no matter what the TV program might be. In doing so, they neglect their responsibilities to their children, wives, friends, and society as a whole. TV has indeed become a modern curse. So much time is wasted in this age in watching television that it will be rather difficult and challenging for one to correctly weigh its pros and cons. But that is not all. By screening films on crime, TV often presents the image of crime in a manner which, instead of creating a sense of repulsion in the hearts of children, achieves the opposite. Even in programs exclusive for children, it is not uncommon to find popular characters causing mischief by devising ingenious pranks that play havoc with the peace at home. However amusing and entertaining such programs may be, they are certainly not educational. No doubt, many a difficult child is born out of watching such programs. The child grows with the potential of becoming a would-be criminal. In the programs for adults, innovative methods of committing crime are inadvertently taught, a leisurely life of fun and playfulness portraying what life should be is painted so rosily that it leaves a false impression on the mind. Alas, little do they realize the distance between fantasy and realities and between what should be and what is. 
The pursuit of vain pleasures forbidden in the Holy Quran is not that minor or inconsequential as most may consider it to be. This and many other modes of entertainment play an important role in the creation of an atmosphere where the level of frustration continues to rise. One wonders when the point of saturation may be reached. Bridling of desires. The Holy Quran requires the bridling of desires. Envy may not be permitted to give birth to inordinate, insatiable desires. This teaching contains a very important message regarding discipline and the trimming of desires. Islam, of course, is not a religion of escapism or denial by monasticism or asceticism, whereby man is required to negate all his natural desires to achieve nirvana or deliverance from material bondage. According to the philosophy of nirvana, it is the desires which bind us to matter and enslave us to materialism. The simple answer is to deny oneself all desires. Islam rejects this philosophy as man-made, unnatural, and inadequate to resolve problems. The concept of nirvana is closer to death than peace. Islam has a completely different solution to offer. To kill desires is no answer, according to Islam, to solve the riddle of life. Among many measures suggested to create social peace is the admonition that man should discipline and curtail his desires and keep them in check. Otherwise, it would be impossible for any man to achieve peace through the satiation of desire. As stated earlier, desires always run faster than one can pursue them. Small as these measures may appear, they are potentially very effective and important. For instance, the Holy Quran states, وَلَا تَمُدَّنَّ عَيْنَيْكَ إِلَى مَا مَتَّعْنَا بِهِ أَزْوَاجًا مِّنْهُمْ زَهْرَةَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا لِنَفْتِنَهُمْ فِيهِ وَرِسْكُ رَبِّكَ خَيْرٌ وَأَبْقَى Strain not thy eyes after what we have bestowed on some classes of them to enjoy for a short time the splendor of the present world, that we may try them thereby. And the provision of thy Lord is better and more lasting. The Holy Quran prohibits thinking ill of others, or to be nosy and inquisitive, or to backbite. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu jitanibu kathiran min al-dhan, inna ba'd al-dhan ithmun, wa la tajassasu, wa la yaktab ba'dukum ba'dha. أَيُحِبُّ أَحَدُكُمْ أَنْ يَأْكُلَ لَخْمَ أَهِيهِ مَيْتًا فَكَرِهْتُمُوهُ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ تَوَّابُ الرَّحِيمُ O ye who believe, avoid much suspicion, for suspicion in some cases is a sin, and spy not on one another, neither backbite one another. Would any of you like to eat the flesh of his dead brother? Certainly you would loathe it, and fear Allah Surely, Allah is oft returning with compassion and is merciful. Building of trusts and inviolability of trusts and treaties. In the Islamic society, the building of trust plays a very important role. The inviolability of trusts and international treaties is considered fundamental to the concept of unity in Islamic society. 
believers are described in the Holy Quran as وَالَّذِينَهُمْ لِأَمَانَاتِهِمْ وَعَهْدِهِمْ رَاعُونَ who are watchful of their trust and their covenants. Eradication of evil, a collective responsibility. The responsibility of educating people is not entrusted to governments, but collectively to the people themselves to do good deeds and to abstain from evil. In more developed societies, it is the job of, of refuse collectors to gather unwanted waste from homes and streets for disposal. In poorer countries, the housewives simply throw away the junk and refuse onto the streets till the streets become littered with filth and are no longer fit as passageways. Of course, it is the responsibility of the inmates to clean their houses, but there has to be some system of keeping the streets and pathways clean. It is tragic that Though the West has learned the importance of this social responsibility of keeping places frequented by the public clean, it has yet to recognize the dire need of acquiring the responsibility to purge society from the criminal human waste which daily spills over from homes to streets and public places. Islam treats this question more comprehensively. The primary stress is on the elders of the family to minimize the social waste so that more goodness than evil is contributed towards society. Secondly, Islam fixes the responsibility on society to launch individually as well as collectively a holy war against evil, not with the help of the sword and restrictive legislation, but more so by constant admonition, advice, and wise counsel. Admonition and persuasion with patience is the best instrument, according to the Holy Quran, to cleanse the society of social evils. وَلْتَكُمْ مِنْكُمْ أُمَّةٌ يَدِعُونَ إِلَى الْخَيْرِ وَيَأْمُرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَيَنْهَوْنَ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ وَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْمُفْلِحُونَ Let there be among you a body of men who are always devoted to admonishing people to do good and who invite to goodness and enjoin equity and dissuade people from indulging in evil. And it is they who shall prosper, i.e. such societies shall survive. It should not be inferred from the aforementioned verse that the Islamic approach of the maintenance of public health and well-being is entirely non-governmental and the state has no part to play in it. Of course, the areas of legislation and this application are the prerogatives of states. But what I have been trying to emphasize is merely the fact that according to Islam, the state machinery alone is inadequate to suppress, discourage, or minimize crime. Once criminal tendencies are permitted to grow and flourish in homes and societies in general, the best a government can do is to wipe out the symptoms from time to time. The root cause of evil is far too deep for the long arm of the law to reach. It is the primary job of families, religious leaders, and leaders of public opinion in every society to eradicate evil. Keeping this and many other similar verses in view, the Holy Prophet wasallam, once declared that the people before you came to a tragic end because they disobeyed authority and were given to transgression. They did not restrain one another from the iniquity that they committed. 
Then he continued, Indeed, by Allah, you must enjoin good and forbid evil. Seize the hand of the wrongdoer and persuade him to act, to act justly. Establish him firmly on the right, else Allah will involve the hearts of some of you with the hearts of others and will curse you as he cursed them. According to the Prophet ﷺ, one of the most serious signs of decline of a people is that they lose the courage to show their displeasure at the public display of indecency and misconduct. The Holy Prophet ﷺ draws the parallel between such a society and travelers on a boat in the following tradition. Norman bin Bashir relates that the Holy Prophet ﷺ said, The case of those who observe the limits set by Allah and those who are careless about them is like passengers on a ship who cast lots to determine who should occupy the upper deck and who should be on the lower deck and dispose of themselves accordingly. Those who were on the lower deck passed through those of the upper deck whenever they had to fetch water. So, they said to the occupants of the upper deck, If we were to bore a hole through our path, we would not then have to trouble you. Now, if the occupants of the upper deck were to leave the others to carry out their design, they would all perish together. But if they were to stop them from carrying it out, they would all be saved. I am afraid this parable applies to a large degree to the contemporary societies of the world. I stop at page 117. I start at page 117. Do's and don'ts. Some verses from the Holy Quran on other social responsibilities which promote peace are The servants of the gracious God are those who walk on the earth in a dignified manner. And when the ignorant address them, they say, Peace. وَإِذَا حُيِّيْتُمْ بِتَحِيَّةٍ فَحَيُّوا بِأَحْسَنَ مِنْهَا أَوْ رُدُّوهَا إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ حَسِيبًا When you are greeted with a prayer, greet ye with a better prayer, or at least return it. Surely, Allah takes account of all things. وَلَا تُسَعِّرْ خَدَّكَ لِلنَّاسِ وَلَا تَمْشِ فِي الْأَرْضِ مَرَحًا إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُحِبُّ كُلَّ مُخْتَالٍ فَخُورٍ وَاقْصِدْ فِي مَشِيكَ وَاقْضُدْ مِنْ صَوْتِكَ إِنَّ أَنْكَرَ الْأَصْوَاتِ لَصَوْتُ الْحَمِيرُ Turn not thy cheek away from men in pride, nor walk in the earth haughtily. Surely, Allah loves not any arrogant booster. And walk thou at moderate pace, and restrain thy voice. Verily, the most disagreeable sound is the bray of a donkey. The character which Islam attempts to inculcate amongst Muslims is in itself inhibitive to the growth of irresponsible behavior and crime. Islam creates a healthy soil. Islam creates a healthy soil which discourages the growth of parasites and weeds. This objective is achieved by very detailed and comprehensive teachings of do's and don'ts, which run into many hundreds. The central core of this teaching 
is common to almost all religions. Instead of highlighting the doctrinal differences between one, re one religion and another, I set some of them before you with the relevant Quranic reference. Do's. Chastity. Chapter 17, verse 33. Chapter 23, verse 6 to 8. Chapter 24, verse 31. Chapter 34, 61. Chapter 25, 69. Chapter 33, 36. Chapter 70, 30 to 32. Cleanliness. Chapter 2, verse 223. Chapter 4, verse 44. Chapter 5, verse 7. Chapter 22, verse 30. Chapter 74, verse 5 to 6. Controlling anger. Chapter 3, verse 135. Cooperation. Chapter 5, verse 3. Courage. Chapter 2, verse 178. Chapter 3, verse 173 to 175. Chapter 9, verse 40. Chapter 20, verse 73 to 74. Chapter 33, verse 40. Chapter 46, verse 14. Doing good. Chapter 2, verse 196. Chapter 3, verse 135. Chapter 5, verse 94. Chapter 7, verse 57. Enjoining good and forbidding evil. Chapter 3, verse 111. Excelling in doing good. Chapter 2, verse 149. Faithful discharge of trusts. Chapter 2, verse 284. Chapter 4, verse 59. Chapter 23, verse 9. Chapter 70, verse 33. Feeding the hungry. Chapter 76, verse 9. Chapter 90, verse 15. Forgiveness. Chapter 2, verse 110. Chapter 3, verse 135 and 160. Chapter 4, verse 150. Chapter 5, verse 7 and verse 90. Chapter 14, verse 8. Chapter 39, verse 8. Chapter 67. Chapter 46, verse 16. Giving of true evidence. Chapter 4, verse 136. Chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 25, verse 73. Good treatment of employees. Chapter 4, verse 37. Good treatment of neighbors. Chapter 4, verse 37. Good treatment of relatives. Chapter 2, verse 178. Chapter 16, verse 91. Chapter 30, verse 39. Gratefulness. Chapter 2, verse 153 and 173 and 186 and 244. Chapter 3, verse 145. Chapter 5, verse 7, and verse 90. Chapter 14, verse 8. Chapter 39, verse 8. Chapter 67. Chapter 46, verse 16. Humility. Chapter 6, verse 64. Chapter 7, 
verse 14, 156, and 147. Chapter 16, verse 24, and 30. Chapter 17, verse 38. Chapter 28, verse 84. Chapter 31, 19 to 20. Chapter 40, verse 36. Justice. Chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 153. Chapter 16, verse 91. Chapter 49, verse 10. Making peace between people. Chapter 4, verse 115. Chapter 49, verse 10. Patience. Chapter 2, verse 46, 154, 156, 178. Chapter 11, verse 12. Chapter 13, verse 23. Chapter 16, verse 127 and 128. Chapter 28, verse 81. Chapter 29, verse 61. Chapter 39, verse 11. Chapter 42, verse 44. Chapter 103, verse 4. Perseverance. Chapter 13, verse 23. Chapter 41, verse 31 to 33. Purity. Chapter 2, verse 223. Chapter 5, verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 103 and 108. Chapter 24, verse 22. Chapter 33, verse 34. Chapter 74, verse 5. Chapter 87, verse 15. Chapter 91, verse 10, 11. Self-control. Chapter 4, verse 136. Chapter 7, verse 202. Chapter 18, verse 29. Chapter 30, verse 30. Chapter 38, verse 27. Chapter 79, verse 41 and 42. Sincerity. Chapter 39, verse 3 to 4. Chapter 98, verse 6. Chapter 107, verse 5 to 7. Truthfulness. Chapter 4, verse 136. Chapter 5, verse 120. Chapter 9, verse 119. Chapter 17, verse 82. Chapter 22, verse 31. Chapter 25, verse 73. Chapter 33, verse 25. And 36 and 71. Chapter 39, verse 33. Unselfishness. Chapter 2, verse 208 and 263. Chapter 11, verse 52. Chapter 59, verse 10. Chapter 64, verse 17. Chapter 76, verse 9 to 10. Chapter 92, verse 20 to 21. Don't. Adultery. Chapter 17, verse 33. Arrogance. Chapter 2, verse 35 and 88. Chapter 4, verse 174. Chapter 7, verse 37. Backbiting. Chapter 49, verse 13. Boosting. Chapter 57, verse 24. Defamation. Chapter 49, verse 12. 
derision. Chapter 49, verse 12, despair. Chapter 39, verse 54, envy. Chapter 113, verse 6, extravagance. Chapter 7, verse 32. Chapter 17, verse 27 to 28. Following that of which one has no knowledge. Chapter 17, verse 37. Haughtiness. Chapter 17, verse 38. Chapter 23, verse 47. Chapter 31, verse 19. Giving short measure. Chapter 83, verse 2 to 4. Nicknaming. Chapter 49, verse 12. Negodliness. Chapter 4, verse 38. Chapter 47, verse 39. Chapter 57, verse 2 to 5. Chapter 59, verse 10. Chapter 64, verse 17. Perfidy. Chapter 4, verse 106 and 108. Chapter 8, verse 28 and 59. Suspicion. Chapter 49, verse 13. Telling lies. Chapter 22, verse 31. Chapter 25, verse 73. Theft. Chapter 5, verse 39. Islam invites leaders of all religions to join hands in an effort to promote and inculcate goodness and to admonish against the committing of evil deeds. Were this to happen, the world would be better for it. Rejection of racialism. Of all the curses which infects the contemporary age, racialism is the one that holds the greater danger to world peace. The Holy Quran reminds not only Muslims but also all mankind. Ya ayyuhan nasu taqu rabbakum alladhi khalaqakum min nafsin wahidatin wa khalaqa minha zawjaha wa batha minhuma rijalan kathiran wa nisaan wa taqu allaha alladhi tasa'aluna bihi wal arham inna allaha kana alaykum raqiban O ye people, fear your Lord who created you from a single soul and created there from its mates and from the two spread many men and women and fear Allah, in whose name you appeal to one another, and fear him particularly, respecting ties of relationship. Verily, Allah watches over you. No one has superiority over others. Similarly, the Holy Quran states, Ya ayyuhan nas, inna khalaqnaakum min dhakarin wa unsa, wa ja'alnaakum shu'uban wa qaba'il lita'arafu, inna akramakum inda Allahi atqaakum. Inna Allah alimun khabir. O mankind, we have created you from a male and a female, and we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes for the sake of easy recognition. Verily, the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is the most righteous among you. Surely, Allah is all-knowing, all-aware. And, Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, لا يسخر قوم من قوم عسى أن يكونوا خيرا منهم ولا نساء من نساء عسى أن يكون خيرا منهن ولا تلمزوا أنفسكم ولا تنابزوا بالألقاب بئس الاسم الفسوق بعد الإيمان ومن لم يتب فأولئك هم الظالمون 
O ye who believe, let not one people deride another people. Happily, they may be better than they, nor let one group of women deride other women. Happily, they may be better than them. And do not defame your people, nor call one another by nicknames. It is indeed bad to fall back into the malpractice of ignorant days after having believed. And those who repent not, such are the wrongdoers. Apparently, contemporary society seems to be moving far away from racialism and apathy, and is becoming more conscious of the horrors related to them. But if you examine the issue more carefully and in-depth, you will begin to realize that racialism exists everywhere. One major difficulty is the definition of racialism. It can appear different from various perspectives. It is difficult to draw hard and fast lines between racialism. Consciousness of class or religious superiority, tribalism, fascism, imperialism, and nationalism. The most tragic and inhumane treatment of the Jews at the hands of Christians in Western Europe for more than a thousand years may be considered buried in the past. But the recent beastly treatment of the Jews during the 30s and 40s at the hand of Nazis is too fresh in our memories to be forgotten. Therefore, the moment we hear the word racialism, our minds are inadvertently turned to anti-Semitism and the long history of the ill treatment of the Semitic race at the hands of the Gentiles. This is a very limited understanding of racialism, of course. It is so limited that the other connotations, the other connotations of the same scenario, completely miss our attention. We hardly stop to think of extremists among the Jews looking at the Gentiles with the same horrid prejudices of which they themselves have been the targets. But that is not all. There is much more to racialism than meets the eye. Racialism, though not clearly identified as such, does exist under different guises, nationalism being one of them. Again, religious, tribal, and regional prejudices are but a few examples where racialism is found at work under different names. The prejudices of white races against non-whites are also forms of racialism, but it is unjust to blame only the whites for harboring prejudices against people who do not share their color and complexion. There also exists black racialism, yellow racialism, and the racialism of such people who cannot be so clearly defined into white, black or yellow, but lie somewhere in between. The essence of racialism is class prejudice. Perhaps this is the best definition of racialism. Whenever people begin to act prejudicially against another class of people on the pretext of their own class interests, racialism uncoils and raises its ugly and venomous head. No discretion is exercised in the expression of such hatred. No individual merit is taken into account and generality becomes the law. Not many centuries ago, the Western Hemisphere was divided mainly along the plane of Christianity versus Islam. Whatever role the Jews played during that age of strong religious prejudices towards the Muslim East is relatively obscure. What is known, however, is the fact that the Jews were a part of Christian Europe 
which hated and mistrusted Muslim nations around the Mediterranean and were apprehensive of Muslim expansion westwards. During that period of intense hostiles between Christians and Muslims, there was an added element of racialism based on a difference in color. At that time, the Muslims of Indonesia, Malaysia, China, and India remained totally aloof and unconcerned. The conflict looked more like that of a Turco-Arab axis versus Christian Europe in general. Although this history seems to be buried and forgotten, I can see it raising its head again. Human problems never seem to die permanently, howsoever deeply buried they may appear. Returning to the superpowers and their allies, it was vital for the interests of the West not to stir such issues or permit them to be, to be stirred. But ever since the dawn of the new era of the East-West relationship, a dark night from the medieval ages is also about to cast its sinister shadow. There is a real danger of revival of the historic Christian-Muslim religio-political rivalries in the new climate created by the momentous changes in the USSR and Eastern Europe. This could be further fanned by consideration of vested interests on both sides. I am afraid that in this regard, the clergy of both Christianity and Islam are very likely to, to play a sinister role in aggravating the situation and further destroying the prospects of peace and harmony between Muslims and Christians. If this happens, it would certainly be of advantage to the cause of Israel. Israel cannot be conceived in the role of a disinterested and uninvolved observer. Again, there are political-economic dividing, dividing lines which are giving birth to a new type of racialism, i.e. the racialism between the rich north and the poorer south, and the west, east and west best expressed by east is east and west is west, and never the twain shall meet. The recent rapprochement and detente between the superpowers may revive the historic religio-political controversies and rivalries between the Christian Occident and the Muslim Orient. It should not at all be surprising if East and West begin to drift further apart as a result of the new imperialism and a broadly based racialism which is bound to be born out of the recent detent between the superpowers. According to the universally accepted terminology, I may appear to be outstepping the definition of racialism and extending it to areas which are not understood to have any racial implications. But my observation is based on a detached and deeper study of human motives which give birth to racialism. As long as the underlying motive forces remain the same, whether you name a certain expression of distorted human behavior as racialism or call it by any other decent and civilized name, Essentially, the malady remains the same. Racialism, in the broader sense, has to be understood as group prejudices, as opposed to considerations of absolute justice and fair play. The rapid, the rapid waning of polarization between the American and Russian blocs has ushered us into a completely new era in which we are moving towards global readjustments rather than the disappearance of divisions. As ideological divisions fade, 
divisions already marked on different planes in international relations are bound to grow and become more sharply defined. The age-old traditional division between the Occident and the Orient was reduced to a comparatively insignificant second place during the era of heightened capitalist-socialist rivalries. That being no longer so, the East-West division will once again emerge as the most pronounced dividing line between the developed nations of the West and the underdeveloped nations of the East. The emancipated East European countries, as well as Russia, will gradually shift and ultimately merge with capitalist states adopting the same attitudes towards the Third World, although new rivalries would result from a competition to capture them and monopolize foreign markets. As a whole, the West will emerge as a much larger political economic unit than ever before with the ultimate assimilation of the Eastern Bloc. This will bring into greater relief and emphasize the traditional division between the Occident and the Orient. Add to this the birth of new socialism, where nations will replace the individual and classes of individuals. The have-all and have-not polarization will, therefore, not be between the rich of one nation and their interplay with the poor of another nation. For some years to come, this catastrophic polarization may be kept subdued and blunt, but ultimate large-scale confrontation cannot be averted forever. I have deep-seated fears that we are entering a new era of global racialism of the most heinous type, which may be further aided and abetted by a section of the Zionist political leadership. If Benjamin Beit Halami of the University of Haifa and author of The Israeli Connection, Whom Israel Arms and Why, is to be taken seriously, and if the evidence he has produced of the well-formed and well-defined political philosophy of the Zionists is to be considered authentic, it augurs ill indeed for the prospects of world peace. The following picture of the role played and of that yet to be played by Israel in global affairs emerges. David Ben-Gurion, Israel's founding father, said in January 1957, from the point of view of our existence and security, the friendship of one European country is more valuable than the view of all the people of Asia. Medzini, 1976, page 75. Israel's own concern for regaining its superiority against the Arabs has come to coincide with the American goal of halting imperial decline. Page 205. What the modern right-winger loves is the Israeli tall, tough, armed with an Uzi and killing dark-skinned natives in a triumph over the forces of third world radicalism. That is how Argentine generals, Paraguayan colonels, and Africana brigadiers have come to love Israelis. Page 218. The new down with the third world rhetoric developing in the United States since the 1970s was tied to Israel, and its champions such as David Patrick Moynihan and John Kirkpatrick have regarded Israel as an ally and an inspiration. Page 222. Vladimir Jabotinsky, the leader of the right-wing Zionism before World War II, 
was quite blunt about the alliance between Zionism and imperialism. Zionism has the unshakable resolve to keep the whole Mediterranean in European hands. In every East-West conflict, we will always be on the side of the West, for the West has represented a more superior culture than the East over the last thousand years after the destruction of the Baghdad Caliphate by the Mongols. And we today are the most prominent loyal bearers of the culture. We can never support the Arab movement, which is at present opposed to us, and we are heartily pleased at every mishap to this movement. Brenner, 1984, page 75 to 77. The idea of liberation for third world group threatens the very essence of Zionism. Concepts of human rights are too dangerous for the Israeli political system. The injustice done to the Palestinians is so clear and so striking that it cannot be openly discussed and any discussion of what Israel has been doing in the third world is certain to lead to an examination of the rights of Palestinians. They, that's Israelis, are quick to denounce the rest of the world as hypocritical when issues of human rights and universal justice are discussed, in that they are quite similar to white South Africans. Page 236 to 237. From Manila in the Philippines to Tegucigalpa in Honduras to Windhoek in Namibia, Israel's emissaries have been involved in a continuous war, which is truly a world war. And what enemy is Israel fighting? It is the population of the third world which cannot be allowed to win its revolution. Page 243. Israel's prognosis looks good only as, as long as the Arab world and the rest of the third world remains divided and weak. Any change in this picture bodies ail. Page 247. What Israel has been exporting is the logic of the oppressor, the way of seeing the world that is tied to successful domination. What is exported is not just technological, armaments, and experience, not just expertise, but a certain frame of mind. Page 248. It is strongly hoped that, against this battle cry of Zionism, the voice of the more sober section of Israel's leadership will prevail. Of all the Israeli writers who can perhaps be described to be moderate and logical, Hakabi appears to be a typical example. He does not only disapprove of the hawkish attitude of Zionist extremists, but also genuinely considers it to be suicidal for the ultimate Zionist interest itself. The views expressed by Hakabi are not shared equally by other Jewish thinkers and intellectuals. Hakabi, for instance, takes a more pragmatic and realistic view to the same problem. Particularly, his Land for Peace proposal opens an avenue of hope for the Arabs. I firmly believe that discrimination and any efforts to divide mankind on any plane may yield short-lived dividends for some, but in the long run, the consequences are bound to be evil for all concerned. In this contemporary scenario, Islam has a very positive message and an effective role to play. Islam denounces racialism and class hatred in the strongest terms. To create disorder in any form is abhorred. The verses of the Holy Quran quoted earlier are a few of the many on this subject.
the character of the Holy Prophet of Islam is described as the light of God which belongs neither to the east nor to the west, i.e. equally shared by both. Allahu nuru samawati wal ard mathalu nurihi kamishkatin fiha misbah al misbah fi zujaja al zujajatu ka'annaha kawkabun durrun yunyuqadu min shajaratin mubarakatin zaytuna la sharqiyatin wala gharbiya yakadu zaytuha yudhi'u walaw lam tamsashu nahum nurun ala nur yahdillahu li nurihi man yasha'u وَيَضْرِبُ اللَّهُ الْأَمْثَالَ لِلنَّاسِ وَاللَّهُ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عَلِيمٌ Allah is the light of the heavens and of the earth. His light is as if there were a, there were a lustrous niche, wherein is a lamp contained in a crystal globe, the globe as bright as a glittering star. The lamp is lit with the oil of a blessed tree, an olive, neither of the east nor of the west. The oil would well nigh glow forth, even though no fire were to touch it. Light upon light, Allah guides to his light whomsoever he wills. And Allah sets forth parables for men, and Allah knows all things full well. He is further introduced as Rahmatan lil'alameen, a mercy and source of blessings for the whole world and the whole of mankind. I am astounded to see many medieval-minded Muslim scholars erroneously referred to as fundamentalists subscribe to the view that Muslims must confront non-Muslims in an armed struggle and remain at war with them till either they are exterminated or they accept Islam. Islam, as found in the Holy Quran, has nothing whatsoever to do with this distorted and corrupt notion of a holy war. As many verses have been quoted in the section dealing with religious peace, there is no need to repeat them. Let me conclude by reaffirming that Islam truly advocates and suggests measures to bring mankind together through a peaceful process with the object of establishing world peace and the unification of mankind. As far as the attitude of the Holy Founder of Islam is concerned, the following excerpts from the last sermon, known as the farewell sermon, he delivered before his demise in front of the largest assembly of mankind he ever addressed should suffice. O oh men, lend me an attentive ear, for I know not whether I will stand before you again in this valley and address you as I address you now. Your lives and your possessions have been made immune by God to attacks by one another until the day of judgment. God has appointed for everyone a share in the inheritance. No testament shall now be admitted which is prejudicial to the interests of a rightful heir. A child born in any house will be regarded as the child of the father of that house. Whoever contests the parentage of such a child shall be liable to punishment under the law of Islam. Anyone who attributes his birth to someone else's father or falsely claims someone to be his master, God, his angels, and the whole of mankind will curse him. O oh men, you have some rights against your wives, but your wives also have some rights against you. Your right against them is that they should live chaste lives and not adopt ways which may bring disgrace to the husband in the sight of his people. 
But if the behavior of your wives is not such as would bring disgrace to their husbands, then your duty is to provide for them food and clothing and shelter according to your own standard of living. Remember, you must always treat your wives well. God has charged you with the duty of looking after them. Woman is weak and cannot protect her own rights. When you, when you marry, God appointed you trustees of those rights. You brought your wife to your homes under the law of God. You must not, therefore, abuse this trust which God has placed in your hands. O men, you still have in your possession some prisoners of war. I advise you, therefore, to feed them and to clothe them in the same way and style as you feed and clothe yourself. If they do anything, if they do anything wrong, which you are unable to forgive, then pass them on to someone else. They are part of God's creation. To give them pain or cause them suffering can never be right. O oh, men, what I say to you, you must hear and remember. All Muslims are as brethren to one another. All of you are equal. All men, whatever nation or tribe they may belong to, and whatever station in life they may hold are equal. Raising his hands and joining the fingers of the one hand with those of the other, he added, Even as the fingers of the two hands are equal, so are human beings equal to one another. No one has any right, any superiority to claim over another. You are as brothers. O men, your God is one and your ancestor is one. An Arab possesses no superiority over a non-Arab, nor does a non-Arab over an Arab. A white man is in no way superior to a black, nor for that matter is a black man better than a white, but only to the extent to which he discharges his duty to God and man. The most honored among you in the sight of God is the most righteous among you. Even as this month is sacred, this land inviolate, and this day holy, so has God made the lives, property, and honor of every man sacred. To take any man's life or his property or attack his honor is as unjust and wrong as to violate the sacredness of this day, this month, and this territory. What I command you today is not meant only for today. It is meant for all time. You are expected to remember it and to act upon it until you leave this world and go to the next to meet your maker. What I have said to you, you should communicate to the ends of the earth. Maybe those who have not heard may benefit by it more than those who have heard. The passage is very powerful and self-evident, but particularly noteworthy is a reminder by the Holy Prophet that we are children of the same father. This, in fact, has the evident connotation that different religions should not be permitted to divide the universal brotherhood of mankind originating from a single parenthood. I stop at page 132. I start at page 136. The case of those who spend their wealth to seek the pleasure of Allah 
and to strengthen their souls is like the case of a garden on elevated ground. Heavy rain falls on it so that it brings forth its fruit twofold. And if heavy rain does not fall on it, then light rain suffices, and Allah sees what you do. The Holy Quran, chapter 2, verse 266. Beautified for men is the love of desired things, women and children, and stored up heaps of gold and silver, and pastured horses and cattle and crops. That is the provision of the present life, but it is Allah with whom is an excellent home. The Holy Quran, chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3. Socio-economic peace. Islam also has a word of advice concerning the areas where the horizons of society and economy meet. If these teachings are implemented, they can turn our dusks and dawns into twilights of exceptional beauty. Economic justice under capitalism, socialism, and Islam. Economic justice is a beautiful slogan, whereas attempts have been made to monopolize it to the exclusion of the others. The slogan is common to both the capitalist society of the free market economy as well as the scientific social doctrine of dialectical materialism. Both talk of justice. But with due apologies, I must express my dismay in that both have failed to do full justice to the golden principle of economic justice. But more of this later. The Islamic concept of absolute justice is all-prevailing and all-pervading. It covers every aspect of Islamic teaching. But that is not all. Islam goes one step further. In scientific socialism, an attempt is made to level off the economic soil so completely and perfectly that there are no ups and downs left. If watered, such soil will get its share equally. There is no question of any demand from the have-nots, nor any threat to the have-alls from the less fortunate sections of society to forcibly rob them of their surplus wealth. In the capitalist society, they talk more of equal opportunities, level playing fields, and free economies than to equal distribution of wealth. Thus, there is always room for the demand of rights and the creation of pressure groups such as trade unions, etc., which seek the most out of the government or other capitalists for the sake of the employee and the laborer who always live under its sense of deprivation. If scientific socialism is implemented ideally, there is no need left for any section of society to make demands. Either that society would be rich enough to equitably distribute national wealth according to the needs or it would be so poor as to have failed to fulfill their needs, leaving every member of the society sharing his or her misery equally. Either way, it would end up as a society where demand no longer has a meaningful role to play. The capitalist system, on the other hand, is demand-oriented. The less fortunate section of society must be given the right to express its dissatisfaction and a free opportunity to be heard. Hence, the need for the formation of pressure groups and strikes, industrial strife, lockouts, etc. Islam attempts to create an attitude whereby the government and the wealthy are constantly reminded that it is in their own ultimate interest 
to establish an equitable economic system. They are also constantly exhorted to be on the lookout for the rights of others. The weak and poor should not be denied their fundamental economic rights, such as freedom to choose one's profession, equal access to opportunities, and the basic requirements of life. The lack of this very special attitude has already caused much misery, pain, and disorder in the history of human struggle for survival. There is thus greater emphasis in Islam on giving than on taking or keeping. The government and the wealthy must constantly be on the lookout lest there be a section of society which is deprived of the fundamental human right to live decently. A truly Islamic state would have felt the need and taken appropriate measures for its fulfillment. Before grief turns into cries and protest, and before the need threatens peace and order, the cause of grief must be removed and the need fulfilled. Apparently, in this respect, Islam shares its character with the socialist society, but in fact, the similarity is only superficial. Islam achieves its goals, but not through the same coercive means prescribed by scientific socialism. Time does not permit me to describe in detail how Islam endeavors to achieve this lofty goal, but we can briefly mention that the Islamic approach to this issue is not lifeless and mechanical like the philosophy of dialectical materialism. The Islamic social system remains deeply wedded to the innate laws of the human psyche. Among other things, Islam creates the atmosphere where the demand for one's own rights gives way to regard for the rights of others. The level of consciousness and sensitivity to the suffering of fellow human beings is raised to a degree whereby members of society as a whole are concerned more about what they owe to society than what society owes to them. Give the liberal more than his dues is the Holy Prophet ﷺ's repeated reminder to his followers. Pay him what he has earned before his sweat has dried out. Do not put those who serve under you to such tasks as you cannot perform yourself. As far as possible, feed your servants with whatever you feed your family. Provide them with similar clothing. Do not transgress against the meek in any way, or you will be held responsible before God. Lest you succumb to false pride, occasionally make your servants sit on the same table with you and serve them. Spending in a good cause, even in adversity. Human dignity is emphasized in the strongest terms in every sphere of life. The following verses of the Holy Quran present the code of ethics regarding the needs of the poor and needy and how these should be fulfilled. God's reward for forgiveness is for الَّذِينَ يُنْفِقُونَ فِي السَّرَّائِ وَالْضَرَّائِ وَالْكَاذِمِينَ الْغَيْضَ وَالْعَافِينَ عَنِ النَّاسِ وَاللَّهُ يُحِبُّ الْمُحْسِنِينَ those who spend in prosperity and adversity, and those who suppress anger and pardon men, and Allah loves those who do good. Spending in the cause of the poor. The concept of arms generally understood in the world is double-edged. On the one hand, it pays compliments to the qualities of excellence to the donor of the arms. On the other hand, it creates an embarrassing, if not disgraceful, image of the recipient. The very act of receiving arms degrades his status. Islam revolutionizes this concept. 
A fascinating analysis is made of why some people are very poor and some rich in the following verse of the Holy Quran. A part of their wealth comprises that we should by right have belonged to the one who asked for help, beggar, and the one who could not, the poor. The point generally missed is usage of the word haq, that is right. That speaks volumes about the attitude of the one who gives alms as well as the attitude of the one who receives alms. The one who gives is reminded that what one gives to the poor in reality did not belong to one. Something has to be very wrong with an economy where some people are left destitute or compelled to beg for their living. In a healthy economic system, there should be no destitute. There is no genuine need to beg for one's survival. The message delivered to the recipient of arms reminds him that there is no need for him to be embarrassed or to suffer from any complexes because, in fact, God has granted him the fundamental right to survive decently and honorably. So, whatever your apparent benefactor is giving to you is your own right, which somehow had got transferred to the donor. As already mentioned earlier, God's teachings are directly related to human nature. Any injunction which is likely to disturb the equilibrium is counterbalanced by corrective measures. Gratitude. In the case discussed above, there was of course an inherent danger that some people would become ungrateful to their benefactors. Instead of expressing gratitude for any favors they received from others, they may end up by saying that what one has given us was our right. There is no need for us to be grateful to such a person at all. If this tendency were to be promoted, then it would be at the cost of courteous and decent behavior. Turning to the recipient of favors, the Holy Quran repeatedly reminds him of his duty to be grateful and to express his gratitude for even the smallest favor shown to him. The believer is repeatedly told that God does not love the ungrateful people. In takfuru fa inna allaha ghaniyun ankum wa la yarda li ibadihi al-kufr wa in tashkuru yardahu lakum wa la taziru waziratun wizra ukhra thumma ila rabbikum marji'ukum fa yunabbi'ukum bima kuntum ta'malun innahu alimun bidhati sudur If you are grateful surely Allah is self-sufficient being independent of you and he is not pleased with ingratitude in his servants. But if you are grateful, he likes it in you. No one shall bear the burden of another. Then to your Lord is your return, and he will inform you of that which you used to do. Surely, he is well aware of whatever passes in your thoughts. Further emphasizing the importance of a grateful disposition, the Holy Founder, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam of Islam, reminds the believers, Man lam nasa, lam One who is not grateful to human beings is not grateful to God. The implication is that anyone who is ungrateful to fellow human beings, even if he were grateful to God, his gratitude will not be accepted by God. So decency, courtesy, and gratitude are not discouraged by the message of the Holy Quran as contained in the earlier verses. It is only a quiet message to the recipient of favors that 
he should not suffer from any complex and his dignity should remain uninjured. The inference would be that to express gratitude is not against the dignity of man. On the contrary, it elevates its feather. Turning to the donor, Islam inculcates a completely different attitude. It is considered against dignity and modesty to accept gratitude as if one deserved it. This tendency is found to be a part of civilized behavior everywhere in the world. But there is one fundamental difference between this universal mannerism and Islamic teachings of noble conduct. Islam instructs the donor to serve mankind for a higher and nobler cause than merely to satisfy a natural urge or earn good reputation by benevolent acts. Islam repeatedly reminds man to do acts of goodness for the sake of God and only to win his pleasure and earn his favors. From this, it becomes obvious that when a true Muslim donates something to anyone in need, in truth, he does not do it for his own sake or anyone else's sake, but only for the sake of pleasing his creator who initially bestowed on him everything he possesses. In the light of this principle, whatever he spends on others is by way of an expression of gratitude to his Lord and not by way of any favor to anyone. This sublime attitude has its roots in one of the earliest verses of the Holy Quran, which reminds the believers, From what we had provided them, they spend a part thereof in our cause. Therefore, it is not of mere courtesy that a true believer rejects gratitude, but he genuinely believes that if a recipient of his favors owes gratitude to anyone, it is only to God and not to him. True believers who really understand the meaning of faith feel extremely embarrassed whenever their favors are returned with thanks. The Holy Quran declares, They feed for the love of him, the poor, the orphan, the prisoner, even when they themselves stand in need, saying, We feed you for Allah's pleasure only. We desire no reward, nor thanks from you. Just to feed people is not enough. You should feed them when you yourself know the meaning of hunger and suffering, and you share in their pain, expecting no reward or thanks in return. The beauty of this verse is dazzling. If the believers were taught to show a superficial, and condescending attitude by just refusing to accept gratitude and posing as humble men, there was every danger that this would promote hypocrisy. When we say no thanks, in fact, we are conscious of the fact that by doing so, our image is further enhanced in the eyes of the person under favor. The Islamic teaching is much more sublime. The benefactor is reminded that he cannot sell his commodities twice over to different parties. An act of goodness can either be done to win the pleasure of God or to win public favor. According to this verse, one cannot entertain both intentions simultaneously. When the refined, faithful servant of God tells the needy that his intentions were indeed to please God, it also reminds him at the same time that God is his real benefactor. So whatever inferiority complex may have been born is wiped out.
no human reward for favors. In Islam, to be courteous to others should not be a superficial habit acquired out of values of civilization, but should be deeply rooted in the belief in God. All arms given to the needy should be given without any ulterior motive of getting any return from the recipient. Bestow not favors seeking to get more in return. Once a favor is shown to anyone, Islam would require him to forget it as if nothing had happened. To exalt over one's act of goodness and to rub in one's favors are declared suicidal and self-annihilatory to the very act of goodness. On the contrary, the true believer behaves as described in the following verses, which compare the correct behavior with the incorrect one most comprehensively. مَثَلُ الَّذِينَ يُنْفِقُونَ أَمْوَالَهُمْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ كَمَثَلِ حَبَّةٍ أَنْبَتَتْ سَبْعَ سَنَابِلٍ فِي كُلِّ سُنْبُلَةٍ مِئَةُ حَبَّةٍ وَاللَّهُ يُضَاعِفُ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ وَاللَّهُ وَاسِعٌ عَلِيمٌ الَّذِينَ يُنْفِقُونَ أَمْوَالَهُمْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ ثُمَّ لَا يُتْبِعُونَ مَا أَنْفَقُوا مَنًّا وَلَا أَذًا لَهُمْ أَجْرُهُمْ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ وَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا هُمْ يَحْزَنُونَ قَوْلٌ مَعْرُوفٌ وَمَغْفِرَةٌ خَيْرٌ مِنْ صَدَقَةٍ يَتْبَعُهَا أَذًا وَاللَّهُ غَنِيٌّ حَلِيمٌ يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تُبْطِلُوا صَدَقَاتِكُمْ بِالْمَنِّ وَالْأَذَى كَالَّذِي يُنْفِقُ مَا لَهُ رِئَاءَ النَّاسِ وَلَا يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ فَمَثَلُهُ كَمَثَلِ صَفْوَانٍ عَلَيْهِ تُرَابٌ فَأَصَابَهُ وَابِلٌ فَتَرَكَهُ صَلْدًا لا يقدرون على شيء مما كسبوا والله لا يهدي القوم الكافرين The case of those who spend their wealth in the cause of Allah is like that of a grain of corn which grows seven ears. In each ear there are a hundred grains and Allah multiplies it even more for whomsoever he pleases. Allah is bountiful, all-knowing. Those who spend their wealth for the cause of Allah then follow not up that which they have spent with taunt and injury. Have their reward with their Lord, and they shall have no fear, nor shall they grieve. A kind word and forgiveness are better than charity followed up by injury, and Allah is self-sufficient, forbearing. O ye who believe, render not vain your arms by reminding the recipient of your favors or causing him any inconvenience in return for what you have done for him. As such, his case will be like him, who spends his wealth to be seen of men, and he believes not in Allah and the last day. His example is like that of a smooth rock covered with earth, on which heavy rain falls, washing it clean and leaving it bare, smooth and hard. Such people shall not secure aught of that which they earn, and Allah guides not their disbelieving people. Likewise, وَأَمَّا السَّائِلَ فَلَا تَنْهَوْ Chide not him who seeks thy help. Begging Even beggars should be treated with respect. Do not speak harshly to a beggar, although begging is discouraged. The right to beg when one is in dire need is guaranteed. Not only that, 
No one is permitted to injure the self-respect of those who are compelled to beg. In early Islam, despite the fact that the self-respect of even the beggar had been fully safeguarded, society as a whole had not failed to understand that not to beg was certainly better than to beg. Once the holy founder, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, of Islam, highlighted this comparison by stating, Al-Yadul Ulya, Khayrun min al-Yadi Sufla, the hand of the donor is better than the hand of the receiver. As a result of this, a considerable number of Muslims preferred to die in poverty than to beg for survival. To cater for their needs, the Holy Quran reminds society as a whole that among you there are people striving in the path of Allah who have no way out of their poverty. These arms are for the poor who are detained in the course of Allah and are unable to move about in the land. The ignorance considers them to be free from want merely because they desist from begging. Thou shalt know them by their appearance. They do not beg of men with importunity. And whatever you spend of your wealth on such people, of that Allah is fully aware. This principle becomes very clear from the following verse. مَا أَفَاءَ اللَّهُ عَلَىٰ رَسُولِهِ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْقُرَىٰ فَلِلَّهِ وَلِلْرَسُولِ وَلِذِ الْقُرْبَىٰ وَالْيَتَامَىٰ وَالْمَسَاكِينَ وَابْنِ السَّبِيلِ كَيْ لَا يَكُونَ دُولَةً بَيْنَ الْأَغْنِيَاءِ مِنْكُمْ وَمَا آتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوهُ وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُوا وَاتَّكُوا اللَّهُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ شَدِيدُ الْعِقَابِ Whatever Allah has given to his messenger as spoils from the people of the towns is for Allah and for the messenger and the near of kin and the orphans and the needy and the wayfarer that it may not circulate only among those of you who are rich and whatsoever the messenger gives you take it and whatsoever he forbids you abstain from that and fear Allah surely Allah is severe in retribution the holy prophet of Islam also mentions this principle in a tradition partly translated as عن حكيم بن حزام رضي الله عنه عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال اليد العليا خير من اليد السفلى وابدأ بمن تعول وخير الصدقة عن ظهر غنى ومن يستعفف يعفه الله ومن يستغني يغنه الله نريد حكيم بن حزام رضي الله عنه the Holy Prophet said, The upper hand is better than the lower hand. That is, he who gives in charity is better than he who takes it. One should start giving first to his dependents. The best object of charity is that which is given by a wealthy person from the wealth left after his expenses. Whoever abstains from asking others for some financial help, Allah will give him and save him from asking others. Allah will make him 
self-sufficient. You have an upper hand in service, i.e. to give alms and serve others and not to be on the receiving end of alms and favors. What can be given in charity? Apart from the manner in which you give, what you give is also important. If you give something of which you yourself will be ashamed to receive from anyone else, this will not fall within the definition of arms, according to the Holy Quran. It will be more like throwing something in the dustbin. Ya ayyuha alladhina amanu, anfiqu min tayyibati ma kasabtum, wa mimma akhrajna lakum min al-ard. وَلَا تَيَمَّمُوا الْخَبِيثَ مِنْهُ تُنْفِقُونَ وَلَسْتُمْ بِآخِذِيهِ إِلَّا أَنْ تُبْمِذُوا فِيهِ وَعَلَمُوا أَنَّ اللَّهَ غَنِيٌّ حَمِيدٌ O ye who believe, spend of the good things that you have earned, and of that which we produce for you from the earth, and do not select out of it for charity that which is worthless, which you yourself would not take without extreme embarrassment and a sense of shame. And know that Allah is self-sufficient, worthy of highest praise. The flesh of the sacrificial animals reaches not Allah, nor their blood, but it is your righteousness that reaches him. Giving openly and secretly. Islam leaves both options open, to spend publicly or privately. The Holy Quran teaches, وَمَا أَنْفَقْتُمْ مِنْ نَفَقَةٍ أَوْ نَذَرْتُمْ مِنْ نَذْرٍ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ يَعْلَمُهُ وَمَا لِلظَّالِمِينَ مِنْ أَنْصَارٍ إِنْ تُبْدُوا الصَّدَقَاتِ فَنِعِمْ مَا هِيَ وَإِن تُخْفُوهَا وَتُؤْتُوهَا الْفُقَرَاءَ فَهُوَ خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ وَيُكَفِّرُ عَنْكُمْ مِنْ سَيِّئَاتِكُمْ وَاللَّهُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ خَبِيرٌ Whatsoever you spend in the cause of Allah or vow as an offering, surely Allah knows it well, and the wrongdoers shall have no helpers. If you give alms openly, that is indeed good. But if you give them secretly to the poor, it is even better for your own selves. Thereby will he remove from you many of your ills, and Allah is aware of what you do. I stop at page 150. I start at page 150. Social Responsibilities In Islam, it is considered highly essential that those in authority should be sensitive to the cause of the people to a degree that there is no need to form pressure groups. According to the Holy Quran, the ruler is repeatedly held responsible and answerable to God for the state of affairs of those who are under him and placed under his trust. In one of the traditions of the Holy Founder وسلم, of Islam, we read, كُلُّكُمْ رَاعٍ وَكُلُّكُمْ مَسْؤُولٌ each of you is like a shepherd to whom the sheep belong. He is entrusted with the responsibility of tending the sheep. You will be held answerable. This tradition mentions the various relationships in which one can be in charge of other human beings, 
Example, master of a servant, the, ser the wife who is the lady of the house and the father as head of the family who are both responsible for the entire family and the employer who is responsible for the employees under him and so on and so forth. And each time the Holy Prophet ﷺ repeated, remember, you will be held responsible and answerable. An example from early Islam. Once Umar, عنه, the second caliph in Islam, was passing through a street in a suburb of Medina at night. It was his custom to walk the streets incognito to see for himself at first hand what was happening to the people under his authority. He heard from a house the cries of children who seemed to be in some pain. His inquiry revealed that there were about three children sitting around a fire on which a kettle or pot was boiling and their mother was sitting by them. He inquired what had happened. She said, My children were hungry. I have nothing to feed them. It is only to console them that I have put some water and some stones in the kettle or pot to create the impression that food is being cooked. That is what you see. In deep pain and anguish, Umar عنه, immediately returned to his seat of government. He procured some flour, butter, meat and dates and put them in a bag. He asked a slave standing nearby for help in putting the bag on his back. The slave, in surprise, asked Umar عنه, why he wanted to carry it himself and asked that he should be permitted to carry the bag instead. Umar عنه, replied, no doubt you can carry this weight for me today, but who will carry my burden on the day of judgment? He meant that on the day of judgment, the slave would not be in a position to answer on Umar's behalf as to how he discharged his responsibilities. He had to do it himself. It was also a sort of self-inflicted penance because Umar felt responsible for the misery of a helpless poor woman and her children whom he had just witnessed. He felt, in fact, that the entire township and its affairs were his ultimate responsibility, a trust he had to discharge himself. It is impossible for the head of every government to physically emulate what Umar did, but in both spirit and attitude, Umar remains an excellent model. This is the spirit which must be followed by modern societies everywhere. If the governments become sensitive to the cause and sufferings of the people, then, even before the people began, begin to give voice to their pain and sense of deprivation, those in authority would be compelled to take remedial measures, not because of demands from fear, but from the impelling voice of their own conscience. Extended Boundaries of Expenditure the Holy Qur'an enlarges the boundaries of what should be spent in the cause of Allah to vast dimensions. An oft-repeated phrase in the Holy Qur'an, hard to come by elsewhere, is And the true believers spend in our cause of whatsoever we ourselves have bestowed upon them. This covers all faculties, qualities and also, of course, every type of material possession, human relationship and ties. The phrase also covers such values as honor, peace, comfort, etc. In short, nothing conceivable is beyond the domain of the Arabic expression Wamimma Rozakunahum. Again, 
It is striking how the usage of the word min, literally something of or of that, brings the advice within access of everyone. It does not mean that you should spend all or any fixed portion of that we have given you in our course. All that is required is that you should spend something of that which God has given you. The scope of something is so variable that even ordinary weak people who do not find the strength to make substantial sacrifices can at least participate to whatever degree they can afford. This is the atmosphere of social services which Islam endeavors to promote. It belongs partly to the social behavior of man and partly concerns his economic activities. In an economy where the entire society is possession-oriented and is only concerned with what it can take, it is very hard and impractical to draw a line between what is foul and fair. Such a society is most likely to trespass into the domain of the rights of others than to remain within its own boundaries. On the other hand, a society which is constantly reminded and trained to give to others more than their dues should be furthest from usurping the rights of others. It is hard to imagine how exploitation can flourish in such a climate. Service to others The principle of the Islamic concept of service is described in a single verse so beautifully and comprehensively. It states, كُنْتُمْ خَيْرَ أُمَّةٍ أُخْرِجَتْ لِلنَّاسِ تَأْمُرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَتَنْهَوْنَ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ وَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ O people of Islam, you are the best people ever raised for the good of mankind because you have been raised to serve others. You enjoin what is good and forbid evil and believe in Allah. You will remain the best as long as you are service-minded. If you fail to serve others, then you no longer have a right to boast of the superiority of Islam and the Muslim Ummah. Prohibition of drinking and gambling When one talks of addiction, generally drugs come to mind. There is another connotation of addiction in a wider sense, which is seldom associated with the word addiction. I refer to society's regard for certain modes of pleasure namely drinking and gambling, neither of which argues well for the peace and good of society. Gambling is institutionalized in almost all advanced countries of the world, but even in some third world countries where it is not institutionalized on such a large scale, gambling is found almost at every level as a small-time individual occupation. Drinking is the second addiction to which societies of the world have fallen prey. The Holy Quran prohibits both gambling and drinking. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, innama al-khamru wal-maysir wal-ansab wal-azlam rijsum min amal al-shaytan, fajtanibuhu la'allakum tuflihun. Innama yuridu al-shaytanu an yuki'a baynakum al-adawata wal-baddo'a fi al-khamru wal-maysir, wa yusaddakum an zikrillahi wa an salah. Fahal antum muntahun? O ye who believe, wine and the game of hazard and idols and divining arrows are only an abomination of Satan's handiwork. So shun each one of them that you may prosper. Satan desires only to create enmity and hatred among you by means of wine and the game of hazard. 
and to keep you back from the remembrance of Allah and from prayer. But will you keep back? The Holy Prophet ﷺ declared drinking to be Ummul Khaba'ith, the mother of all evils. The two addictions are so widespread and universal in nature that it is hard to draw a dividing line. Politically, the East and West may never merge, but perhaps in ever greater propensity towards gambling and drinking, East and West, the North and South have already met. Both drinking and gambling are socio-economic evils. The amount spent on drinking in one day in Great Britain is enough to feed the famine-stricken multitudes of Africa for many weeks. Yet, in the most poverty-stricken countries of Africa and other continents, drinking is not considered a luxury that people cannot afford. Having failed to provide for the basic necessities of life and their children's education, there are millions of Africans who would still have access to the consumption of alcohol. In the poor south of India, where factory-made wine is not available to all, homemade toddy serves as a substitute. However, poverty does deter the spread of the mother of all evils to a degree. If the per capita income rises, so does the expenditure on drink. Until someone becomes an alcoholic, nobody seems to care much about it. One may wonder why drinking and gambling should be treated as problems of the contemporary world, while, in fact, they are an ancient as the records they are as ancient as the records of human history go. Indeed, wine and gambling have been found in every age and part of the world. Yet, by their very nature of being timeless, they can be considered as problems of all ages. In economics, Gambling is more objectionable than drinking. In gambling, money changes hands without pushing the wheel of economy, just as money is exchanged from money without an underlying exchange of commodity in the money markets. In gambling, money changes hands without participating in the process of economic development and production of wealth. Though some economic purpose is served in the money markets, almost none is served in gambling. Under a free trade and industry environment, money does not change hands without serving the economy in material form. In trade and commerce, the exchange of value, more often than not, is beneficial for all concerned. It is inconceivable that the majority of traders should most often suffer losses. While in gambling, as a rule, a large majority of participants suffer losses most of the time. For instance, few casinos go bust. For the gain of a few, hundreds of thousands of people must suffer. The only value they get in exchange for the money they lose is the excitement and thrill of suspense until the realization that they have lost their stick at last dawns upon them. After that, they begin to wager again with a slim chance of recouping their losses until the tension and stresses grow far beyond the pleasure of excitement they receive in the bargain. The anguish and the heartache no longer remain a private matter for an individual, but begin to tell on family relationships. In the poorer sections of society, the daily needs of family members have to be sacrificed at the altar of gambling. The Holy Quran, while prohibiting drinking and gambling, acknowledges that there is, of course, some partial benefits to be derived from them, but most certainly their harm always outweighs their advantage.
يسألونك عن الخمر والميسر قل فيهما إثم كبير ومنافع للناس وإثمهما أكبر من نفعهما ويسألونك ماذا ينفقون قل العفو كذلك يبين الله لكم الآيات لعلكم تتفكرون They ask thee concerning liquor and gambling Tell them There is great harm in both And also some benefit for people But their harm is greater than their benefit And they also ask thee What, they sh- what shall they spend Tell them Whatever is spare Thus does Allah make his commandments clear to you that you may reflect. It may be argued that to acquire pleasure from the money which one earns is nobody else's concern. Let everyone enjoy himself as he pleases. Society has no right to interfere in individual freedom to the extent that one should be told where one may spend one's earnings. But it should be remembered that most religious teachings are by way of admonitions and warnings. Coercive measures here on earth have no part to play in the teachings of any religion unless specific crimes are committed against others. Crimes which are recognized as such even from a non-religious point of view. Murder, theft, fraud, corruption and usurpation of rights fall under this category. But there are other social crimes which in according to religions are poisonous for society as a whole. Yet the penalty For such crimes is not meted out individually. Society as a whole suffers. It is the broader social laws which pass the sentence. Indulgence in liquor and gambling does not take very long to become overindulgence for society as a whole. But that is no surprise. Moreover, such societies always become progressively more expensive to maintain. A sizable portion of the national wealth continues to be flushed down the drain. Frustration grows in this atmosphere. Crimes go hand in hand with both liquor and gambling. Miseries and tragedies of many homes where the peace of family life is shattered is the ever-increasing byproduct of drinking and gambling. Many a broken home and ruined marriage are the direct outcome. Alcoholism has serious economic and social consequences as indicated by the magazine Scientific American. Apart from domestic violence, there is child abuse, incest and rape due to the removal of inhibitions under the influence of alcohol and fatal alcohol syndrome. Mortality statistics. 10-year decrease in life expectancy in alcoholics. Two times the usual death rate in men, three times the usual rate in women. Six times the usual suicide in alcoholics. Alcohol is a major factor in the four leading causes of death in men between ages 25 and 44. Accidents, 50%. Homicide, 60%. Suicides, alcoholic cirrhosis. Economic toll per year. Lost production, $14.9 billion. Healthcare costs, $8.3 billion. Accidents losses, $4.7 billion. Fire losses, $0.3 billion. Cost of violent crimes, $1.5 billion. Cost of response by society to above, $1.9 billion. Total cost of alcohol abuse, $31.6 billion. Drinking, gambling, music, 
dancing, and other modes of pleasure are largely considered innocent pursuits by most societies of the world. They are presented as essential parts of different cultures. Though the modes of expressions change from society to society, the basic features remain the same. Bearing sculpture, painting, etc., most of the pursuits mentioned earlier no longer remain as innocent features of culture, but become hard task masters which sometimes overburden and break the backbone of society. Society is no longer the master of its trends. Drinking, gambling, music, dancing, etc. invariably begin to attract increasing attention from society. The speed at which they capture the youth does not take very long to become a stampede. Looking at such societies, one may be led to believe that the seeking of vain pleasures and total submission to the sensual desires is, in fact, the very purpose of man's creation. Not so according to Islam. In the creation of the heavens and the earth and in the alternation of the night and day, there are indeed signs for men of understanding. Those who remember Allah standing, sitting and lying on their sides and ponder over the creation of the heavens and the earth, say, Our Lord, thou hast not created this in vain. Nay, holy art thou. Save us then from the punishment of the fire. This is the declaration attributed by the Holy Quran to the wise servants of Allah, who, after pondering over the riddle of creation and life, spontaneously exclaimed that whatever the purpose of creation be, it is not vanity. These verses of the Holy Quran remind one of the great expression of joy by Archimedes when he shouted, Eureka! Thus, there are two completely different climates. According to the Holy Quran, man has been created to achieve the noble goal of pursuing the path which leads to his creator. In this wider meaning of worship, the Holy Quran declared, I have not created jinn and men but to worship me. In examining each mode of seeking pleasure, one may not find much fault with any to justify their total ban, particularly in the free societies of the world. It is very difficult for the people to understand why Islam is so puritan to the extent of dryness. Islam is not at all dry and boring, howsoever it may seem so from a distance. First of all, those who acquire a taste for goodness also learn to draw sublime pleasure out of an act which may seem rather drab to the outsider. Secondly, the more fortunate among those who experience the true love of God transcend to a state of sublimity from where worldly pleasures appear too lowly, base, meaningless, and transient. Thirdly, in this much broader application, a society not given to the pursuits of pleasure is not left empty-handed at the end of a day. In the final analysis, it turns not only to be an exchange of value, excitement, 
acceleration, intense sensual experiences, and explosive raptures are battered for peace, tranquility, equilibrium, growing sense of security, nobility, and contentment, which as a reward per se is the noblest of all rewards. When the two social atmospheres and climates are compared as a whole, it is not difficult at all to understand that the tree of God's love and devotion to him can seldom take root in the materialistic climate of a fun-loving society. Of course, there are exceptions, but exceptions do not make the rule. The two climates are very different. I end at page 161. I start at page 164. Allah will abolish interest and will cause charity to increase. And Allah loves not anyone who is a confirmed disbeliever and an arch sinner. The Holy Quran, chapter 2, verse 266. Nay, but you honor not the orphan, and you urge not one another to feed the poor and you devour the heritage of the poor, and you love wealth with extreme love. The Holy Quran, chapter 89, verse 18 to 21. Chapter 4. Economic Peace. Economic Philosophies of Capitalism, Communism, and Islam. The Islamic economic order neither belongs to capitalism nor to scientific socialism. The economic philosophy of Islam is scientific without being mechanical. It is disciplined without being over-restrictive. It allows private possession and private enterprise, but does not promote greed and the amassing of wealth in a few hands whereby a large section of society turns into destitute, serfs enslaved to a cruel and relentless system of exploitation. There are three fundamental differences in the economic philosophies of capitalism, communism, and Islam. Capitalism. In capitalism, capital is rewarded with interest. It is intrinsically accepted in principle that capital has a right to grow. Interest plays the central motive force for the amassing of capital which is then channeled as energy to set and keep the assembly line of production in motion. In short, interest acts as an incentive for keeping capital in circulation. Scientific Socialism In scientific socialism, although there is no incentive of interest to cycle and recycle capital into a productive mechanism, the state monopolizes capital, so there is no need for motivation. In free private enterprise, whether one pays or does not have to pay interest, one's sense of personal ownership is sufficient to create an urge that one's capital should grow at the fastest possible rate. If one has to pay interest on board money, the rate of interest acts as a benchmark. It works like a window through which one can monitor the comparative growth or diminution of capital. In the socialist economic system, however, there is neither this urge because those who employ capital do not own it, nor is there any means of comparison whereby one can judge whether the rate of growth is economically sufficient or not. 
in socialist scientific order, the forcible possession of the entire state's capital by the state itself renders the system of interest totally irrelevant and meaningless. The snag is that when you are not under any pressure to earn more than the interest you may have to pay, you lose all incentives and any sense of responsibility. If the entire capital in circulation in a communist state could, for instance, be valued from the point of view of how much interest it could earn had it been deposited in a bank, that would present us with one side of the picture. The second side of the picture could be conceived by assessing the economy on a profit and loss basis. Of course, it would present many complications such as assessing wages, etc. But if financial experts put their heads to it, such hurdles may be overcome. A comparison of these two would present very interesting possibilities. It is more than likely that the real culprit for the decline of standards of living could precisely be pinpointed in this way. Even without such a gigantic exercise, it is not difficult at all for one to determine the causes of such decline. I believe that because the state becomes the capitalist, it is deprived of a monitoring system to warn it of failures, wastage, and blunders regarding the way it handles the state's capital because it has no financial obligations to fulfill and can employ capital without accountability. Such a situation is rife with inherent dangers, lack of personal interest, and a warning system of the profit or loss arising from the employment of capital works havoc with the input-output ratio. The quantum of waste goes on increasing. Again, there is no check placed on the policy of channeling capital. For instance, there is no mirror for the socialist governments to judge the real rate of economic growth in comparison to the free market economies of the outside world. An added problem is that communist states require much larger expenditure on defense, surveillance, and law enforcing agencies within the country. Other things being equal, this requires a disproportionate level of expenditure on defense and the maintenance of law and order. These and other small factors take a heavy toll on the economy. The ultimate collapse of the economy can be delayed, of course, but cannot be averted altogether. Islamic concept. While communism provides no incentive for direct dedicated involvement in the production of wealth, despite banishing interest, Islam provides the incentive. Islam does away with the system of usury and interest without sharing the specific problems of the communist world. In the absence of interest dragging capital along non-productive channels, Islam checks idle capital. This check is a form of tax known as zakat, which is levied not on income or profit but on the capital itself. The contrast is very clear. In capitalist societies, Capital is amassed in the hands of a few out of greed to increase capital through the accumulation of interest and is recycled into the economy with the set task of yielding a profit greater than the prevailing rate of interest. Failing this, the economy is bound to go into recession. In Islam, out of fear that any idle capital would be gradually eroded away through the imposition of zakat, anyone with surplus savings would have to employ it in earning profits 
to offset the effect of zakat. According to Islam, the answer to the economic problems of the world lies neither in the scientific socialism nor capitalism. It is impossible to elaborate on this subject here, but we must have a topical view of the economic imbalance created by capitalism to draw some lessons for the future. Four Characteristics of a Capitalist Society The signposts for determining that such an imbalance has arisen in a society are very clearly stated in the following verses of the Holy Quran. Kalla Balla tukrimun al yatim Wala tahaduna ala tu'amil miskin Wata kuluna turatha akla lamman Nay, but you honor not the orphan, and you urge not one another to feed the poor, and you devour the heritage of the other people wholly, and you love wealth with exceeding love. Briefly, these features are 1. Dishonorable treatment of orphans. 2. Feeding of the poor is not promoted. 3. Usurpation of the heritage of others. 4. Endless amassing of wealth. Capitalism ultimately leads to destruction. Without endorsing the philosophy of scientific socialism, Islam rejects some aspects of capitalism because Mutual rivalry in seeking worldly increase diverts you from God till you reach the graves. Nay, you will soon come to know the truth. The Changing Economic Order Exploitation of poorer citizens by interest-based capitalism, which gives birth to socialist rebellion, seems to be relegated to history. But a deeper study would reveal that it is only a change of guise. Already the world as a whole has been split into the haves and have-nots, thanks mainly to the exploitation by the advanced capitalist countries. And to this situation, the momentous return to capitalism by the repentant Eastern Bloc. One shudders to visualize how much more blood would be sucked from the already enfeebled and anemic nations of the third world. But it would seem that the vampires of capitalism must draw more blood. It is clear that the age of confrontation between the two major opposing economic philosophies of capitalism and scientific socialism is over. The economic systems based on Marxism-Leninism have bowed out of the stage of human affairs. On the other hand, the so-called free economy of the West seems to be exultant over its apparent victory. Barring China, the Eastern Bloc countries are still struggling to mitigate the miseries of the multitudes of have-nots in their respective countries in the wake of their newfound freedom. The economic gap between the East and West is not as big as that between the North and South. The first world countries of the North are divided on another plane from the third world countries of Africa and South America. Though in terms of economic disparity, the gap between North and South America is certainly hurtful. It is nowhere near the gap between Europe and Africa. Africa, 
so close in proximity to Europe is, in terms of economic disparity, the farthest apart from Europe. The sense of security that was once enjoyed by the weaker countries of the world because of the rivalries between the superpowers and any chance of the poorer nations benefiting from the thawing of the Cold War will fast fade out. There is going to be much greater and more earnest competition between the USA, Russia, and the rest of Europe to win, monopolize, and secure the markets of the third world countries. Japan will no longer be the only serious rival to America. A new Europe emerging out of the rapid growth of the European community and the prospective participation of Eastern Europe in a larger common market will pose a far more formidable competition to America than the rival states of Europe. The teeming millions of East Europe and Russia are looking forward to and stand in dire need of raising their living standards. Merely the rehabilitation of a closed market would not be sufficient to meet this tall order, which is likely to grow taller with the passage of time. The dire necessity of external markets to support the rising living standards in East Europe and Russia may be met by the EC, America, and Japan. It offers little hope for the third world countries, a bleak picture indeed for the third world, much more so for the less fortunate people of Africa. The politicians of the economically and politically advanced nations of the world are far more concerned by the capitalist economic revolution taking place in the Far East Japan, South Korea, Formosa, Hong Kong, and Singapore. It seems that the distance between the Far East and the West is being bridged over the heads of many less fortunate Asian countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, Cambodia, Thailand, Burma, Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka, and Pakistan. It is also possible that, to meet the growing challenge from the gigantic economy of Japan and to put a check on its rapidly expanding economy, other Far Eastern countries would no longer remain beneficiaries of American know-how and capital. On the other hand, it is also possible that America may lean even more on its Far Eastern allies to meet new combined challenges from Japan and an economically much bigger and united Europe. This augurs ill for the future of mankind and may ultimately shatter the prospects for peace on a completely different plane than the ideological rivalries between capitalism and communism. It is too early to predict how the changes in Eastern Europe and Russia may influence the economic balance of the world and whether their return to capitalism may be complete or partial or slow or rapid. Whatever happens, one thing is certain that these changes will further adversely influence the economies of the third world such a state of affairs cannot last indefinitely. Already, the world is heading towards a global catastrophe. Islam has a word of advice for the presently exultant capitalist countries built on a hollow foundation of usury and interest. They are ultimately bound to tumble down and shatter to pieces. The so-called recent victory by capitalism over socialism will only provide transient peace. Capitalist philosophies by themselves will give birth to powerful demons which will rapidly grow to gigantic size in the absence of rivalries from socialism.
the volcano of capitalism will finally erupt with such force that the whole world will shake, quick, and convulse. Islamic Economic System As with the social system advocated by Islam, the Islamic economic system commences with the premise that all that is in the heavens and the earth has been created by God, who has bestowed man various provisions on trust. As a trustee, man will be held accountable for the discharge of this trust. The possession or absence of wealth is a means of trial so that in both abundance and adversity, those who are mindful of their accountability may be distinguished from those who resort to callousness and scant attention to the sufferings of the rest of mankind. The Holy Quran repeatedly reminds us, To Allah belongs the kingdom of the heavens and the earth, and Allah has power over all things. Then it teaches that if everything has been created by God for all, some of it should be shared amongst men. Have they a share in the kingdom? Then would they not give men even so much as the little hollow in the back of a dead stone? Wallahu fakbala ba'adokum ala ba'adin fir rizq. Fama alladhina fuddilu biradi rizqihim ala ma malakat aymanuhum fahum fihi sawaun. Afa binirmati Allah yajhadun? Allah has favored some of you above others in worldly gifts, but those more favored will not restore any part of their worldly gift to those under their control, so that they may be equal sharers in them. Will they then deny the favor of Allah? Man's responsibility is to discharge this trust honestly and equitably. Inna Allah ya'murukum an tuaddul amanati ila ahliha. وَإِذَا حَكَمْتُمْ بَيْنَ النَّاسِ أَنْ تَحْكُمُوا بِالْعَدْلِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ نِعِمَّا يَعِذُكُمْ بِهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ سَمِيعًا بَصِيرًا Verily, Allah commands you to give over the trust to those entitled to them, and that, when you judge between men, you judge with justice. Surely, excellent is that with which Allah admonishes you. Allah is all-hearing. All seeing. The fact that material wealth is a source of trial is expressed in the Holy Quran as follows Verily, your wealth and your children are a trial, but with Allah is an immense reward. An important concept of possession under Islam is that. Certain resources are taken out of individual ownership and placed in the hands of mankind as a whole. Thus, mineral resources and the produce of seas and oceans is not the exclusive property of any individual or group of people. Zakat Zakat is one of the five pillars of Islam, the others being the affirmation that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad Sallallahu alayhi wasallam is his messenger. Prayers, fasting during the month of Ramadan, and pilgrimage to the house of Allah in Mecca. For instance, 
The Holy Quran commands, وَأَقِيمُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَآتُوا الزَّكَاةَ وَأَطِيعُوا الرَّسُولَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُرْحَمُونَ Observe prayer and pay the zakat and obey the messenger that you may be shown mercy. The Arabic word zakat literally means to purify something and in the context of a mandatory levy would mean that the residual wealth after the deduction of zakat had rendered it pure and lawful for the believers. It is normally levied at 2.5% on disposable assets above specific thresholds, which have remained in the hands of owners beyond one year. Although much has been said about the rate or percentage of this tax, we find no reference to any fixed percentage in the Holy Quran. In this respect, I beg to differ with the dogmatic view of medieval scholars. I believe that the question of percentage remains flexible and should be determined according to the state of the economy in a particular country. Zakat being a specific levy imposed upon capital beyond certain thresholds, it can only be utilized for certain categories of expenditure. These have been spelled out in the following verse of the Holy Quran. إنما الصدقات للفقراء والمساكين والعاملين عليها والمؤلفة قلوبهم وفي الرقاب والغارمين وفي سبيل الله وابن السبيل فريضة من الله والله عليم حكيم Arms are only for the poor and the needy and for those employed in connection with their collection and distribution and for those whose hearts are to be comforted and for the freeing of slaves, and for those burdened with debt, and for those striving in the cause of Allah, and for the wayfarers. This is an ordinance from Allah. Allah is all-knowing, wise. The treasury is charged the administration of this ordinance. In the early history of Islam, Hadrat Abu Bakr anhu and Umar anhu, the first two caliphs, were renowned for personally ensuring the speedy disbursement of arms in what became known as the first welfare state. This system had been at work with great success for centuries during the Abbasid period. As has already been explained, the motive force of interest is replaced by the deriving force of zakat. When we examine this system in operation, Many differences between the Islamic economic order and other economic systems come to light. The features of a completely different economy begin to emerge. No amount of idle money, irrespective of it being large or small, can survive for long without multiplying faster than the rate at which it is taxed. That is precisely how zakat propels the economy in a truly Islamic state. Imagine a situation where an individual with a small amount of capital is unable to directly participate in trade and there are no banks to credit him with interest on his deposit. Yet, if the deposit be sufficiently large to be taxable by zakat, there are revenue collectors who knock at his door each year for a percentage of his capital. Zakat is not beyond a prescribed threshold. Such individuals have only two alternatives either to personally employ their money profitably or to pool their resources to establish small or large enterprises. This will promote joint ventures, partnerships, the forming of small companies 
or public shareholding in larger companies on a strict profit and loss basis. Such companies will owe nothing to any financial institution to which they have to repay debts with interest. Hypothetically, when you compare the lot of such companies with that of their counterparts in capitalist economies, they will be found facing on, on completely different platforms during periods of trial and crisis. In the case of trade and industry facing a recession in a capitalist economy, the slowdown in production because of dwindling demand can push them to the brink of liquidation. The interest they have to pay to service their debts will go on mounting relentlessly until it will no longer be possible for such companies to stay afloat. On the other hand, if an economy is run on Islamic principles, a slowdown in business and trade opportunities will only send trade and industry into a state of hibernation. That is how nature ensures survival of the fittest at the time of extreme stresses and adversities. When the input of energy decreases, output has to be lowered lest energy should drop below the critical level necessary for survival. As there is no relentless pressure of debt servicing in an Islamic financial system, it can withstand far greater pressure and challenges during a recession. Prohibition of interest The Islamic economic system runs on the total absence of the interest factor, yet there is no historical nor current evidence to suggest that, as a result of no interest, the demon of inflation went amok and set the prices spiraling up beyond control. In the contemporary times, we have a very interesting opportunity to draw comparisons with regard to the influence of interest rates or its absence on inflation. The government of China under Mao Zedong's era made many experiments with the economy. Some faltered, some produced excellent results. But during the entire reign of Mao Zedong, interest was not allowed to play any part, either domestically or internationally. Yet, throughout this period, there was no prominent increase in inflation. In fact, when ultimately the overall production level increased, prices began to register a fall. As compared to this, in the state of Israel, perhaps the world's most capitalist country, the rate of inflation has been amongst the highest recorded anywhere in the world, except, of course, in Latin American countries where the post-war exceptional phenomenon of inflation in Europe, particularly in Germany. But then, those, who were, not, those were not normal days. On things being equal, the role of interest in any economy cannot be described as anything other than inflationary. High interest rates in Britain. The current hot debate in Great Britain regarding the pros and cons of high interest rates offers an interesting example for study. For a long time now, the conservative government has kept interest rates precariously high with the sole declared purpose to curb private consumption and thus suppress inflation. The economy is already squeaking and groaning under the stresses this policy has caused. Many a lesson can be drawn from this study. Among other things, this study presents a fit case of highly potent economic decisions being taken on the basis of a theory, which in itself is debatable. 
the notion that the higher the interest rate is raised, the more will inflation be reduced seems to be the only reason to justify the maintenance of interest rates at an unnatural high level for so long. In the case of our current study of what is happening in Great Britain, the rate of interest has never been the real culprit in the inflationary trend. There must have been mismanagement in many areas of the economy and an overall faulty economic policy which resulted in the relative high inflation rate of the present time. The raising of interest rates has only served to distract the attention from the root causes to an easy scapegoat. This strategy may show a measure of success in combating inflation to begin with, but it has already set in motion, set in motion powerful factors which would produce secondary effects. The country would be pushed to an unmanageable state of recession and unemployment would soar. It is impossible to believe that advice from leading economists, experienced financial planners, central bankers and other experts is not available to the think tank of the conservative government. There has to be some reason for this prolonged willful delay in lowering the high rate of interest on the hollow plea that it is essential for the survival of the national economy to push down the inflationary trend with the leverage of high interest rates. Could it be possible that the timing of lower interest rates is not politically suitable to the present government? Perhaps, if it is delayed until close to the next general elections, the immediate relief felt by all sections of society from the cut in interest rates could be turned to the political advantage of the Tories. If this is done too early on, the secondary effects to which I have already alluded may begin to manifest themselves and offset any gains from the temporary relief brought about by lower interest rates. Some of the factors which may unleash this undesirable phenomenon are as follows. 1. The high rate of interest has not only choked the buying power of the general public, but has also squeezed the jugular vein of industry. 2. It has, certainly had, it has certainly had a large section of the British public in its quest for the basic necessities of life. Those who borrowed large sums of money for a roof over their heads had calculated carefully before taking on a mortgage. They squeezed their ability to repay the mortgage and had squeezed their daily budget to meet repayments. Such people were already exercising restraint in unnecessary and imprudent expenditure. There was, in any case, little leeway to do so. This section of British society was certainly not responsible for inflationary trends. But ironically, this is the section punished most severely by the so-called anti-inflationary measure of the government purportedly for the benefit of the general public. Meanwhile, the value of their houses has begun to nosedive and they find themselves in an insoluble dilemma, unable to meet higher repayments and unable to find a buyer for their property. 3. Inflation is a complex phenomenon. It is not the purpose of this address to devote unnecessarily longer time to this subject, but for reasons which will become apparent after a while, I have to beg the audience's indulgence. Among other things, the ball of inflation can be set rolling when excessive money in the hands of the buyer 
artificially raises demand while the supply of goods remains low. Too much money for too few goods. There is more to buy and less to be bought. But perhaps, in the case of the British economy, this situation did not prevail. The greater volume of money in circulation was supporting British industry to a large degree by increasing the consumption in the home market. Add to this the influence of tax cuts and moderate rates of exchange on the value of sterling in the international markets. This moderate exchange rate of sterling attracted overseas buyers to British manufactured goods to the advantage of British industry, which was already being generally helped by the expanding home market. The most logical outcome should have been a drop in the prices of manufactured goods. A rise in production should have absorbed fixed overheads leaving only marginal costs to be borne by ex-factory prices of such goods. Even a bigger profit margin should have left the manufacturers with sufficient cushion to reduce prices. The prolonged high interest rates have reversed this natural growth of the British economy with dire consequences for the future. Meanwhile, foreign markets, which slip out of their hands, will be difficult to regain. 4. The changes in Europe are transfusing more blood to the already robust economy of West Germany. Or should one say, Germany. The secondary negative effect enumerated earlier may augur ill for the British economy. The present government may unsuccessfully manipulate the th timing of the much-needed drop in interest rates, but the next government, if it is conservative, is going to inherit colossal problems from the erstwhile government of its own party. The point which emerges from all this is a very important lesson for policymakers all over the world. Interest as a tool for controlling national economy meddles with the very concept of a free market economy. No economy run on the philosophy of interest-related capital can genuinely be declared to be free when its government has all the power to raise or lower interest rates. The Islamic economic system provides no such measure of exploitation to the government. Other evils of interest Perhaps it will not be out of place to mention a few other aspects of interest. The interbank interest rate is only paid on wholesale deposits and not on savings accounts to the average depositor. Despite the compounding effect of interest, the return obtained on a small deposit is far below the true purchasing power of money. Although short-term rates fluctuate, in the long run, interest earned on deposits is below the inflation rate. On the other hand, a similar principle some invested in some business venture has potential for growth in real terms. In an interest-motivated society, owners of capital are always ready to lend money without investigating the ability of the borrower to repay. On the borrower side, there are few who seriously consider their repayment ability. Little do they know that borrowing from the loan sharks, the likes of Shylock, and prestigious finance houses and banks, is tantamount to borrowing from their own future earnings. It encourages the habit of living beyond one's resources. It results in overspending and an increasing inability to repay and honor one's pledges. Such societies give an unrealistic boost to production to meet consumer demand. 
This evil aspect of interest-run economies has to be further elaborated and illustrated. In a society where keeping up with the Joneses becomes an obsession, the obsession is largely abetted by advertisements of the latest models of this and that. An introduction is provided to the general public of the luxurious lifestyle of the rich by displaying the latest designs of sofas, luxurious chalets fitted with the most modern kitchen and bathroom appliances and gadgets. People with less means available to buy all that they want are willingly turned to false plastic money to fulfill their desires. Obviously, this means that they buy far more than their earnings. If this money was to be repaid even without interest, it would be tantamount to increasing one's buying capacity at present, at the cost of lowering the same in the future. If a man earns $1,000 per month and goes shopping for expensive articles with the help of bird money, say to the tune of $40,000, his ability to repay will be determined by his net savings per month. Let us suppose that he can barely make the ends meet at $600. This will leave him with net savings of $400 per month. He will have to live within that, uh, that tight budget for the next 100 months to repay the loan arising from his spending spree of $40,000 without interest. What, what he has, therefore, done is to borrow money from his future 100 months, i.e. 8 years and 4 months, to spend at the beginning of this period. The only advantage he has gained is to satiate his impatience and fulfill his desire instead of waiting for the next eight years or so. But if he has also to pay interest on his $40,000 borrowing, his financial position will be far worse than the one discussed in the previous example. At an average of, say, 14%, his total loan from his own future earnings would work out to be far greater than the actual money he borrowed. This will lower his ability to repay and lengthen the period of repayments to a considerable degree. Such a person will have to suffer patiently for some 20 years or so as a punishment for his impatience, making monthly repayments of about $500, i.e. a total of about $120,000 to repay the loan with compound interest. The loss is most certainly of the borrower and not of the lender. The lender is part of a very powerful system of exploitation, which guarantees, after allowance for inflation and loan loss, that the lender ends up with more money in his pocket. With inflation, the situation of the borrower in question will further worsen. His buying power will continue to decrease so that if it was difficult to live within $600, it will be impossible to cope with the same as time goes by. There are but a few who are fortunate enough to receive annual increments equal to the rate of inflation. To further aggravate the situation, in a society where people become more pleasure-seeking, it is impossible for them to wait for a long period of sheer austerity imposed on them by themselves after a few moments of reckless spending. More money is borrowed with greater recklessness and the expenditure is increased far beyond the means of income. In fact, decades of one's future earnings with ever-increasing debt servicing and concomitant problems are pledged to the lending banks and financial institutions. As a whole, 
such economies are inevitably heading for a major crisis. You cannot limitlessly pledge your future to the present before reaching the precipice of financial crisis arising from irresponsible spending, which then raises the rate of inflation. To combat inflation by raising interest rates in the hope of making less money available for expenditure is bound to trigger a chain of events culminating in economic recession. It is bad enough at the national level, but when the same factors create a recession in most countries of the world, a global recession looms large on mankind. Such global recessions pave the way for global wars and gigantic catastrophes. Bankruptcies and liquidations begin to increase. Trade and commerce enters into the doldrums. The underlying unemployment rate begins to creep up. Real estate businesses start to collapse. The resultant overall frustration in every area aids and abets homelessness, deprivation, fraud, and crime. If this happens, it should not surprise anyone, least of all the stout champions of capitalism. In the capitalist economy, the situation is not limited to private individuals being financed beyond their means to repay. In fact, the future of the entire industry is jeopardized at the cost of temporary gains. To begin with, of course, the industry of the country benefits to a great degree. This helps in lowering the price of homemade goods. The transfer of money to an individual not only boosts his buying power, but also has an impact on the productivity of the national industry. An increase in demand is followed by more production, and with rising production, lower costs are achieved. It gives the national industry a competitive edge in international markets. All seems silvery and rosy. Then comes the hangover. When, because of impatience and excessive spending beyond its means, the society as a whole is deeply indebted to the banks, the buying power of the entire society gradually comes to the end of its tether. Such industry has no alternative but to seek larger foreign markets to stay afloat and competitive. The smaller the country's economic base, the sooner it reaches the end of the blind alley. The larger the economic base, the longer will the period of ultimate realization of the impending crisis. Let us turn to the USA to see how things may work there. Without doubt, it is a country with the largest home market to support its industry, so much so that some economists believe that even if America is cut off from the international community, the broad base of the home market would guarantee the survival of its industry. But such economists do not take account of other related factors. If you apply, for instance, the case discussed earlier to the America scenario, you will certainly begin to see that there can be no logical conclusion other than the one drawn earlier. It is only a question of time. With a huge budget deficit and trillions of dollars in outstanding debts, the USA as a whole has already overspent and the American public is under very heavy debt to its own future. The buying power of the nation as a whole is bound to slow down or, or lending houses will have to go bankrupt. It is only a question of size, but the inevitable laws of nature must operate and apply equally to all similar situations. In a hot summer, pools and ponds warm up quickly to the ambient situation, but it takes a bit longer for the lakes. Likewise, smaller seas get warmed up sooner than the larger ones, yet they all follow the same inevitable fate. 
It takes the Pacific Ocean so long to warm up that by the time it reaches that stage, winter is already set in most of the countries bordering on its gigantic mass of water. That is why the climate is more temperate than that of land bordering smaller oceans. Such also is the case of the oceans of the economy. The very philosophy of spending from borrowed money is basically so crooked that to expect straightforward, honest results would be madness. Another important factor should also be brought to the focus of one's attention. When industry and the national economy reach choking point, poorer and less developed countries face ever-increasing danger of suffering from the fallout of the explosive situation of the developed and advanced countries. It begins with greater urgency by political leaders of the industrialized countries to sell more goods in the market, to save industry from slowing down and to maintain the standard of living of its people. The problems they face are twofold. 1. The people are accustomed to modern comforts and 2. For the sake of its own survival, industry continues to excite them with new inventions and devices which bring comfort and pleasure to their homes. No political government can survive the pressure of a public which continues to demand higher living standards. The economy must be kept afloat at whatever cost possible. Obviously, the third world countries have to be bled more than before for the maintenance of artificially high standards of life in the advanced countries. What about the new challenge of the reshaping economies of the USSR and Eastern Europe? And what about the growing need for foreign markets by the newly emerging capitalist states of the erstwhile communist world? Again, what about the havoc, which the Western media is already playing with the desires and ambitions of the poor and almost destitute common people of the socialist and third world countries? All these factors put together will certainly not change the face of the earth for the better. I stop at page 187.